If you would like a free newsletter on this or other subjects, just give us a call at Christian Answers. The phone number is area code 512-218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Or you could email us at cdebater at aol.com. That's cdebater at aol.com. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows Matthew chapter 19 verse 24 And again I say unto you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God John 6, 70-71 Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. My pastor of thirty years, Jackson Boyette of Dayspring Fellowship in Austin, Texas, said the following about Judas in a sermon found on our YouTube channel, C Answers TV, which stands for Christian Answers Television, called Judas. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. For one, John makes a remark in the 12th chapter about his hypocrisy concerning the poor and about how he used to help himself to what was in the money bag. So we know that he was a thief. But other than that, we do not see any tendencies to instability or treachery. The disciples did not suspect Judas of being the one to betray Jesus. But what Judas proves is that you can start well and end in wickedness. You can start well and end in rebellion. And it is always how you end that determines the ultimate fate. The wickedest king of all was King Manasseh. And yet the Bible records that he repented of his sins. He started badly and ended well. But Judas Iscariot started well and ended badly. He had done what the other disciples did. He had, in fact, the same two things going for him that all of them had. First was profession. He had made a profession of faith and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one could tell that his profession was any different from anybody else's. Of course he confessed that Jesus was Savior. Of course he confessed that Jesus was Lord. Now it's very interesting he never is actually pictured as calling Jesus Lord. He's only pictured as calling Jesus Rabbi, Master. That's the only term that he ever uses in speaking to Jesus. But certainly he professed faith. And that tells us that there can be a false faith. That tells us that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ actually has the change of heart to match. 
that those who are not actually born again may glibly say that Jesus is Lord. Or, of course I'm a Christian. And one of the things that the story of Judas makes us realize and shudder over is the fact that someone can be so close to Jesus and professing faith in his name and in his ministry and yet not have a heart that's right toward God. So according to profession, he started well. And according to, and according to power, he started well. That's the second way that he started well because Jesus sent those disciples out on a mission tour. And he commanded them to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. And Judas was on that mission tour. Judas was one of those missionaries and we have uh, no reason to think that he did not have God's power operating in him. We have no reason to think that God wasn't pleased to use him to heal some people. We have no reason to think that God did not use him to preach the gospel and some people actually be converted under the preaching of a man who did not actually know Jesus as Lord. And do you realize that they were sent out two by two? And so that means that another disciple was his partner and he was going out witnessing with Judas the man of Cariath by his side and he never knew that the man beside him was false and would one day sell out his Lord and betray him and hand him over to his enemies. This does not bode well for those who simply profess faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. At the head of the line for that will be Judas Iscariot, who cast out demons and did many wonders in the name of the Lord, and yet he was not saved. The second thing we know about, Jesus, about Judas is that he had one besetting sin and that besetting sin was greed. We don't like to hear this because we fancifully construct other theories much more complicated as to why Judas did what he did. The Hollywood theory that is uh, used in virtually all films about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Judas was a zealot, that Judas was a member of the guerrilla group that wanted to overthrow the uh, government of Rome. It's completely unscriptural. There's not a shred of scriptural evidence that there was anything so sophisticated about Judas Iscariot. He just was a sinner whose besetting sin was greed. He loved money. It's just that simple. You see, he had seen that Jesus had deprived him, or rather Mary had deprived him, of a box of alabaster oil that could have been sold for much and given to the poor because it was Judas, as I said last week, that made that objection when Mary gave her extravagant gift of a box of oil that was uh, uh, worth a whole year's wages. And Jesus rebuked Judas for that. What Judas had been hoping for is that 
the box would have been sold given and the money given to him who as treasurer could dispense it to the poor and then he could have gotten a little take on the side. That's what John tells us in the 12th chapter. But his besetting sin was simply greed and he went, it says in our text today, to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? In other words, his whole concern was to get money. That was all that filled his vision. That was all he wanted. And we don't like that. We would rather have some more exotic, complicated, uh, complex explanation of this sinister character Judas because to say he's greedy means he's like us. To say he's greedy means that he has a love of money that is not all that far removed from our love for money. And you know what? The Apostle Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, there is a passage that could be written about Judas Iscariot. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That very word perdition means ruin or destruction, and it is the very word described uh, or descriptive of Judas by the Lord Jesus himself when he calls Judas the son of perdition. That word. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Could Judas Iscariot have really been so crude as to betray the Lord Jesus Christ for money? Oh yes, if he wasn't a Christian, if he wasn't really real, if he wasn't filled with God's Holy Spirit, there's no telling what he might do. You've read of crimes that have been done for far lesser reasons. I say to you in closing, the fate of Judas is the fate of all who die without God. Repent. Imagine for a moment that after Judas betrayed Jesus to death, that Judas, instead of hanging himself, had come back to the scared and intimidated disciples immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus, and told them that he, Judas, was now the, quote, hand-picked successor, end quote, of Jesus by virtue of the fact that he held the office of treasurer and money bag holder of the group. Imagine how Judas would have informed these intimidated disciples that they had better start doing what he wanted to raise money or else they were out of this new business enterprise completely. Perhaps Judas would have told the disciples to go out and hang themselves instead, while quoting Luke 10:37, which says, Go thou and do likewise. This imaginary scenario about Judas reflects, in essence, what Walter Martin's Judas, Hank Hanegraaff, has done to Walter's ministry. This rather long video documentary will endeavor to document the many things Hanegraaff has done over the years to make money for himself.
and bring disrepute to the gospel of Jesus Christ at the same time. For those of you who would like to cut to the chase, so to speak, as to how Hanegraaff grabbed Walter Martin's ministry for himself in the first place, are urged to skip to the back of this video at the four hour and eight minute mark and listen to Jay Howard's presentation from his well-documented book called Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man. Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. This book can be purchased at www.focusonthefaulty.com. There is extensive first-hand documentation in the index section of this book, which will verify the facts of the case. This book has been available to the public since 2009. For those of you who'd like to see this entire video, just watch on and may the Lord be with you. ministry are going to give an account for how we teach, for how we live our lives before others. We're going to give an account for everything that we have done while in the flesh. So the real problem, and particularly from the perspective of Christian capitalism, is not a wealth, because by the world standards, we're all wealthy. It's a matter of degrees. But it is what we do with what God gave us, how we use what God gave us. That ultimately is the issue. Um, uh, capitalism says there's not a fixed pie, and you have to divide it up equally, the distribution in an equal fashion of wealth that can create wealth, and therefore it can be used in a way to bless others. And that's got to be our purpose. It has to be... Uh, not self-aggrandizement, but self-sacrifice at the end of the day. And, and, and the sin, if you look at Judas, uh, was a sin. <laughs> he was following the master, not because he loved the master, but he was following the master because of what was on the master's table. I remember uh, walking through the streets of Brazil and seeing the hunger of so many people who are being fleeced by the cults, literally, and uh, it, it appears to me that the cults are willing to do for a lie what many Christians are not willing to do for the truth. Our entire bottom line of what we need to read and, uh, raise in a capital funds campaign is $5.5 million. Take a moment and put that in perspective for me. What's $5.5 million compared to $50 million in a place as small as Santa Ana? Uh, we're talking about uh, Tonga. Uh, what is in fact the perspective that we can give to people so that they understand how strategic this uh, particular move is. Prayerfully consider getting involved in this one-of-a-kind strategic opportunity and if the Lord leads you a tax-deductible gift to the Christian Research Institute. I want to leave you with a question today. Are you willing to do for the truth what the cults are willing to do for a lie? Hello everyone, this is Larry Wessels of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater Ministry. As you have noticed, the name of this video is Hank Hanegraaff ripped off Walter Martin.
to become the fake Bible Answer Man. This particular video seeks to document accurately the shady and underhanded methodologies employed by Hanegraaff to not only subvert the ministry of Walter Martin, but to expose the type of religious charlatan Hanegraaff really is as he seeks to ever gain money for himself in Jesus' name. As most of my regular YouTube subscribers already know, over 18,000 of them last time I checked, I became a born-again Christian back on May 16, 1981. And in that same year, by God's grace, came into contact with the ministry of Walter Martin and thus became a big fan of Brother Martin as a young believer. For more on this fact, see our YouTube videos, Evangelism and Apologetics, Part 1. Origins of Christian Answers, Jesus, the Only Way of Salvation. Also, Walter Martin inspired our Christian Answers Apologetics and Evangelism Ministry, 1 Peter 3.15. And yet another video, Walter Martin's Cult's Reference Bible, a perfect street witnessing tool for Christian evangelists. This is the Bible Answer Man, Walter Martin, you're on the air. I'm calling to find out if there's any scriptural basis for marital separation. Stay tuned for the answer to this and other important questions as the Christian Research Institute presents Dateline Eternity with Professor Walter Martin, the Bible Answer Man. I follow Walter's ministry closely, listened to every Bible Answer Man radio broadcast I could, bought all his tapes and books, and was on his ministry mailing list. It was Walter's ministry which inspired me to go out to Mormon wards and temple openings, Jehovah's Witness conventions and kingdom halls, Reverend Moon meetings, Christian science reading rooms, Unity School gatherings, Hindu and yoga teaching centers, Witness Lee and the local church functions, Islamic student centers, the National Atheist Convention in Austin, Texas with Madeline Murray O'Hare, and repeated university campus encounters with Baha'is, Muslims, agnostics, atheists, evolutionists, communists, Marxists, abortionists, and every other stripe of anti-Bible cultists known to man. Since I am a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, Bachelor of Science in Advertising, I can honestly say that if I needed Bibles to send overseas to missionaries or churches that were requesting them, I could go out there on the first day of each spring or fall semester and pick up hundreds of them. The reason for this was simple. The Gideons International came out there, that's the University of Texas campus, every year at that time to hand out small, mainly New Testament Bibles to the students. It was apparent that large numbers of Bibles taken by students were thrown on the ground, in the gutters, on the street, and in the available trash cans, and all I had to do was gather them up, then ship them out. These days, according to polls, only about 4% of millennials have any kind of biblical worldview, and the generations after them is even worse. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 18.8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Biblical ignorance is great even among people who claim to be evangelical Christians these days. See our video, 87% of evangelical Christians don't know what the gospel is or what justification is. 
If 87% of so-called real Christians do not know what the gospel is, then that obviously means that 87% of so-called real Christians, known as evangelical Christians, aren't real Christians at all, but are really fake Christians. See Matthew 7, 13 through 29, cross-reference to Luke 13, verses 23 through 30, to get Jesus' commentary on this. What better environment for a fake Bible answer man to enter upon the scene? The Apostle Paul knew what was coming as a threat to the Christian church when he said in Acts 20, 27 through 31, quote, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. End quote. Thus, with the death of Walter Martin on June 26, 1989, a day I sat on my couch at home and cried about it when I heard the news, came some unknown person I had never heard of called Hendrik Hank Hanegraaff. It did not take me long to realize that Hanegraaff was as phony as a $3 bill concerning Christian apologetics just by listening to him during the first few days he appeared on the Bible Answer Man radio broadcast. Hanegraaff was just plain ignorant about how to answer common Bible questions that were coming in. And Walter Martin's hand-picked radio broadcasters that were there, people like Craig Hawkins, Ron Rhodes, Rob Bowman, etc., had to do all the main answering while Hanegraaff just threw in some insignificant drivelings. To me, Hanegraaff sounded like a total buffoon who absolutely had no business being on the radio broadcast at all. I immediately began to wonder why Walter would leave his ministry to an apologetic joke like Hanegraaff. Over the years, I always suspected that something was definitely smelly in Denmark concerning Hanegraaff but I wasn't close enough to know exactly what it was that went on behind the scenes of Walter Martin's Christian Research Institute. I simply left the Hanegraaff situation to the providence of God, feeling that if God could use Balaam's ass to talk, then God could certainly use Hanegraaff too. See Numbers 22 verses 21 through 38. Lately, I've been getting a lot more inquiries about Hanegraaff than I have in the past, so I decided to make this video to deal with them. I know a lot more about Hanegraaff now than when he first began in Walter's place in 1989. The following is just one of the inquiries I've received. Okay, the letter is several pages long, but I'm just going to read this last part of the final page here. It says this, 
Was Hanegraaff really Walter Martin's hand-picked successor? Or why does Hank make over $250,000 a year? Why did he fire so many key people after he took over in 1989? Why did CRI buy him a $66,000 Lexus sports car in 2004? Is Hanegraaff's personal witness training a plagiarism of evangelism explosion? by D. James Kennedy. Who should replace Hank on the Bible Answer Man? Let us know what you think. And it goes on from there. Besides this, there are many other issues with Hanegraaff going on, such as his denial of the biblical record in Genesis. You can see there Hank Hanegraaff's abuse of biblical truth by Ken Ham from May 9th, 2013. Now, looking at what Ken Ham says here in this article, he says, Most of you have likely heard of Hank Hanegraaff, president of the Christian Research Institute, CRI, and host of the radio broadcast, Bible Answer Man. In a recent issue of the Creation Research Journal, which is published by CRI, Hanegraaff made some very disturbing statements about Scripture's account of dinosaurs and sea monsters and the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Hanegraaff wrote a book on the issue of creation titled The Creation Answer Book. I previously published a review on my blog. Sadly, the Creation Answer Book made it evident that Hanegraaff does not hold to a literal genesis, but buys into geological and astronomical evolution, as he was unwilling to understand genesis in its most natural form, historic narrative. And as we see here, and for the viewers at home, we can see what Ken Ham is saying concerning what Hanegraaff is saying and what the scripture actually teaches from Genesis. And for those that want to see that, they can freeze frame the uh, information on their YouTube screen and read it and then proceed on from there. But uh, page after page is documented here by Ken Ham concerning Hanegraaff and his strange views concerning creation. Since Hanegraaff refuses to believe what the Bible clearly teaches concerning creation and what Jesus himself taught concerning this issue, see our video, Jesus on the Age of the Earth. He was a young earth creationist, not an old earth Darwinian evolutionist on YouTube. It brings into further question whether he's a real Christian or just another fake Christian like so many others. Titus 1, 15 through 16 states, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. The major mistake made by so-called Christians who want to deny what Genesis clearly states and what Jesus affirms is to use the hermeneutical fallacy of an interpreting a biblical text called eisegesis rather than the correct method of biblical interpretation, which is called exegesis. Exegesis and eisegesis are two conflicting approaches in Bible study. Exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful objective analysis. 
The word exegesis literally means, quote, to lead out of, end quote. That means that the interpreter is led to his conclusions by following the text. The opposite approach to scripture is eisegesis, which is the interpretation of a passage based on a subjective, non-analytical reading. The word eisegesis literally means, quote, to lead into, end quote, which means the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever he wants. Obviously, only exegesis does justice to the text. Eisegesis is a mishandling of the text and often leads to a misinterpretation. Exegesis is concerned with discovering the true meaning of the text, respecting its grammar, syntax, and setting. Eisegesis is concerned only with making a point, even at the expense of the meaning of the words. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 commands us to use exegetical methods, not eisegesis, but exegetical methods. Present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth, end quote. An honest student of the Bible will be an exegete, allowing the text to speak for itself. Eisegesis easily lends itself to error as the would-be interpreter attempts to align the text with his own preconceived notions. Exegesis allows us to agree with the Bible. Eisegesis seeks to force the Bible to agree with us. The process of exegesis involves one, observation. What does the passage say? Two, interpretation. What does the passage mean? Three, correlation. How does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible? And four, application. How should this passage affect my life? Eisegesis, on the other hand, involves one, imagination. What idea do I want to present? Two, exploration. What scripture passage seems to fit with my idea? And three, application. What does my idea mean? Notice that in eisegesis, there is no examination of the words of the text or their relationship to each other, no cross-referencing with related passages, and no real desire to understand the actual meaning. Scripture serves only as a prop to the interpreter's idea. Thus, people like Hanegraaff use eisegesis to force their secular Darwinian ideas about the age of the earth into the biblical text in order to get the Bible to agree with what they already want to believe, rather than what the biblical text actually says. Eisegesis is a classic form of biblical misinterpretation used by false cults and religions around the world. See our video on this phony methodology called Scripture Twisting, 20 Ways Religious Cults Misread the Bible. 20 Ways the Cults Misread the Bible. And basically, I've listed out James Sire's different points he use, uses in the book on how biblical text and so forth are perverted and changed by different groups representing themselves as Christians, hmm. but in the end they deny the gospel as Rob so eloquently uh, described at the beginning of the program. Uh, of course in his book he's mainly covering how Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, groups like this, uh, Christian scientists, so forth, pervert it. 
but uh, it's overall a good guide to just how groups can take the Bible and, uh, as we say, just twist them, as Peter said, to their own destruction. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go through this list and start taking a look at what we can find out here. Now, the first point is an accurate quotation. Now, what this means is it's a biblical, uh, a biblical text is referred to, but is either not quoted in the way the text appears in any standard translation or is wrongly attributed. And, of course, we have virtue by association. I'm just going to run through these briefly just so I have some time left. Esoteric in interpretation, supplementing biblical authority. There it is. From the outset, I wish to thank Jay Howard, who's the author of the eye-opening book, Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man. Also, Paul Vandrutti and former CRI Hanegraaff employee, Perry Robinson, who have all given me permission to use their insightful research in the making of this video. Keep in mind what the Bible teaches concerning matters such as what we will be dealing with with the fake Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff. The Bible tells us to expose error, Ephesians 5.11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And to expose error, we must make righteous judgments. Christians must judge in order to, one, try the spirits to see if they are from God, for many false prophets are in the world. That's 1 John 4.1. Two, Mark and avoid false teachers, slaves of their own bellies, deceiving many with their smooth and flattering speech. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Point three, rebuke false teachers, rebellious men and deceivers who subvert whole families with their false doctrine. Titus chapter one, verses nine through 16. Point four, have no fellowship with immoral, impure, or covetous men. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. Point 5. Receive not deceivers who do not abide in the teaching of Christ into our homes, nor giving them any greeting. That's 2 John, verses 7 through 11. Point 6. Be wary of those who preach another gospel. That's 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 4, and Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Even David, who feared touching one of God's anointed, did not hesitate to judge and expose Saul's sin before the world. Quote, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. End quote. 1 Samuel, chapter 24, verse 10, verses 12 through 13. Thus, shouldn't true Christians, following the biblical standards laid down, judge and expose the sins of false teachers, prophets, and immoral brothers in the church, all those who would pollute the truth with perverted doctrines or watered-down teachings which tickle the ear? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-5, through 5, quote, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. 
fulfill your ministry, end quote. From here, let's begin with an interview that host Paul Vandrutti had with author and researcher Jay Howard concerning the fake Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. Very few people know much about Hank Hanegraaff, the so-called Bible answer man. If you're one of those people who knows nothing about him, then you're in luck. I have on the phone with me the man who literally wrote the book on Hanegraaff. The book is called Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard, founder of the Religious Research Project in Logan, Ohio. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be with you. Jay, I want to start with the subtitle of your book. The subtitle is Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. Let's just abbreviate Christian Research Institute to CRI for the rest of the show. Sure. Okay, Jay, the guy who founded the Christian Research Institute is actually not Hank Hanegraaff, but no one would know that if you went to the website of CRI, would you? No, uh, I talked to a lot of people over the years who think that Hank Hanegraaff is the founder of CRI, and uh, in fact, to kind of give you a little a little idea of this, uh, back in 2002, a friend of mine was doing a radio interview with him, and uh, they he, they were talking about the Bible Answer Man program itself, and uh, he said, well, who, you know, who is the the, the uh, radio fellow? I asked him who is the, uh, the the original Bible Answer Man, and uh, Hank answered something like. Uh, well, there's been many men behind the microphone, but I'm the current Bible Answer Man. And this is a, a pattern that he had for many years where he went out of his way not to mention Walter Martin because Walter Martin was the Bible Answer Man. He started the show back in, the, I think, the 60s. And uh, so... Um, and he's the founder of CRI as well. Yeah, CRI. Yeah. He started the CRI in his basement in New Jersey uh, back in 1960. Uh, they moved out to California in about 74, 75, when uh, Martin realized that all the major cult issues going on in the, in the United States were kind of coming out of California and going east. Imagine that, so, cults coming from California, who'd have thunk it? And so he kind of thought that, you know, being at the heart of the cult world would be the best place to be for a ministry like CRI, which is heavy into uh, cult apologetics. So they moved out there in 73 and, and, uh, or 74, 75 time period. And, uh, of course, Martin, uh, you know, ran the ministry for, you know, from 1960 till 89 when he died. And unfortunately, he didn't really leave uh, a will or anything about, you know, who would succeed him. And so it was kind of up in the air as to who would take um, Martin or, yeah, Martin's place if he was to retire or die. And so, who did take his place? Well, it was obviously Hank Canareff. Um I remember uh, getting a newsletter from CRI um, in 89, or late 89, early 90, that had a little blurb in the middle of it talking about a guy named Hank Canareff who was going to take the ministry forward into the future. And at that time, I had never heard of him. I mean, I know a lot of people in the cult and apologetics world because I'm in this field myself. And I had honestly never heard of Hank Hanegraaff, and I just assumed he was some kind of a, you know, some seminarian that Walter Martin was impressed with and kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I, I, I knew nothing about him at that point. 
Okay, you thought he was a seminarian, which is what most people would have thought, but in fact, your book says that he was really just some kind of a bean counter there at CRI. Yeah, if you, um, I, I got a hold of his uh, resume for for the book, and the book talks about you know different ministries that he supposedly worked for. He helped raise money for them and this kind of thing. Uh, there is no mention in his bio that uh, CRI had that said anything about him being any kind of a theologian, having any seminary or Bible college training uh, in the field of cults and philosophy and apologetics. There is nothing like that in his biographical uh, statement. So what was he doing at CRI? Was he? Uh, well, I think you said in the book that he was a fundraiser, and that's why Walter Martin brought him onto the board. Yeah, see, Walter Martin um, uh, would go to a church called uh, Mount Perrin, uh, Church of God in Atlanta, Georgia, where the pastor really liked him about once a year. And at that time, uh, Hank Hanegraaff was attending Mount Perrin in, um, in Atlanta, and that's when he first met Walter Martin. He started talking to him and you know, kind of promoting himself to Walter Martin. And uh, so they, they met a couple of years before he got involved at CRI back in the 80s. Okay, so he met Hank Hanegraaff in Atlanta, and then that's where he decided to bring him on board as a fundraiser. So Hank Hanegraaff ended up getting onto the board, and I read in the book that the board comprised all of three people aside from Walter Martin. That's rather unusual. Yeah, from what I could see, for several years, Martin kept a very lean board, uh, usually four or five people, uh, hardly ever more than five. And at the time of his death in June of 89, there was only um, three other men on the board besides himself. And Hank Hanegraaff had been one of those men. Jay, the book gives a rather scandalous description of some of the shenanigans that went on at Walter Martin's funeral. Why don't you uh, sketch that funeral for us and let us know what happened there? Okay. Well, you know, the family and the, the, the board members were in a room. If you've, ever been, if you've been part of a funeral before, there's always a room where the people involved in the funeral, the relatives, that kind of thing, they sit in this room until they're called, you know, to go to, to sit in the front of the church. And so uh, Walter Martin's immediate family, his board, uh, John Ankerberg, Hank Hanegraaff, they were in this room together. It was a handful of people, literally. And... Um, uh, a few minutes before they were to be ushered into the church, uh, Hank Hanegraaff approached Darlene Martin, who was uh, Walter Martin's widow, and asked to see her funeral notes. So she, you know, she was in a state of shock, and she wasn't going to doubt the guy because she trusted him. So he, she handed his notes to uh, uh, Hank Hanegraaff, and Hanegraaff took them to another man uh, that she remembers um, handing the notes to this other man, and he wrote something on the paper uh, on the bottom of her funeral notes. And so he came back a couple minutes later and said, read this note, um, you know, when, once you finish reading your prepared uh, typed-out speech. And so she just tucked it in there at the bottom and, and took it with her. And she, when she got to uh, her prepared statement, uh, you know, typed-out statement, she read that about her husband and his ministry. And then uh, I've listened to the audio tapes of the funeral, and right when she hits this prepared statement that he had written down, I mean, not, not that he had written down, but somebody else had written for her in, in, in uh, you know, cursive writing, she started to, to not, she started to stammer a little bit because she was, 
trying to read it for the first time in her life. And the um, the note that and I I have this note because she sent me a photocopy of the of the uh, of this handwritten note that was at the bottom of her statement. It's also it reproduced in the how, book. Yeah, it's it's in the book, and uh, uh, in that she started talking about how you know uh, her and Walter had talked many times about who would take over CRI once he died or retired. And then, then she, she launches into this, you know, and that man is Hank Canagraph, and we thank God for Hank Canagraph, and Hank Canagraph is a great guy, and he's going to do this, he's going to do that, and, you know. So it was really kind of a, a mini commercial for Hank Canagraph that she had not even prepared. It was Canagraph's own statement that, she, that he literally wanted read into the funeral notes, you know, in, into the recordings and the videotaping of the funeral so that it would appear that she was giving her her her, her imprimatur, her her pledge of, of loyalty to Hank, that he was the man that, that Walter Martin had chosen. Now, I, I interviewed Darlene Martin several times over the course uh, of putting this book together, and she told me something very interesting, that when Walter Martin would come home at night, you know, from CRI, you know, he wanted to be just father and a husband. He, he, he said... She said that he never would talk about what's going on in the ministry, who we're hiring, who we're firing, nothing about the stuff they're going to be doing. And so she didn't know anything about Hanegraaff. There was no talking, you know, in bed, hanging around with with uh, Hank, with Walter Martin, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, talking about what would happen if he died. That was all made up. Hanegraaff just created this, this whole image out of whole cloth to make it look like there had been thought put into his being chosen as, as uh, the president. When in actuality there there was no advanced uh, warning that he would become president of Sierra. Just a classic example of opportunism. Yeah, he he has he had this. Uh, I don't know. I think he started building this case for himself in his head because he got on the board of CRI in February of 1987, which is about a year and a half or so before Walter Martin died. And um, so he was on the board with those other men, uh, Stan Tonneson and Everett Jacobson, and then Walter Martin. So he'd only been on the board for a little over a year and a half when uh, Martin died unexpectedly of you know diabetic uh, complications. Now, just to set the tenor of what Hanegraaff's regime was going to be like when he took over the Christian Research Institute, his first action as president apparently was to hike his salary. That was one of the very first, yeah. Um, Walter Martin, at the time of his death, was making the princely sum of $40,000 a year, which is really nothing, you know, when you, when you think about being the head of an organization. And the first thing that, that Hanegraaff asked the board for was a $20,000 raise from forty to 60000 That was his first move within the first month of him being there. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. Jay, I want to read a quote from your book because I think that it starkly contrasts exactly what kind of ministry Hank Hanegraaff was going to run, and I think it starkly contrasts his character with that of his far worthier predecessor, Walter Martin. The quote's found on page 59. Quote, from July 1989 until 1995, over 100 people were either fired or felt compelled to quit under Hank Hanegraaff. All of this in only the first six years of Hank Hanegraaff's Machiavellian control of CRI. 
But Hanegraaff's presidency, which would be marked by avarice and an almost maniacal need for self-promotion, had just begun. There is no record of Walter Martin firing staff during his tenure at CRI over a 30-year period. End of quotation. Yeah, uh, you know, I I didn't know Walter Martin. I mean, I've met him several times, but I didn't know him, like, really well. Uh, I don't think he could have picked me out in a crowd, to tell you the truth. But he was always a very jovial, happy, um, lovable fellow. And I've talked to, you know, many of his employees, you know, since, you know, after the book came out and before the book came out. And nobody was, you know, saying he was tyrannical, that he had a bad temper or anything. So it's hard for me to believe that Martin ever, you know, fired pretty much anybody unless they, they had some kind of a real need to be fired. Uh, a bit. But when, when Hanegraaff came in, he was so insecure. He didn't have, you know, he had no real apologetic cult philosophy education. He had a high school diploma and quite a bit of college at Calvary College, or yeah, Cal- Calvin Calvary College. College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, I think you wrote Calvin was, College. Yeah, it was a Dutch Reform school. And so, but the transcripts show that he never even graduated from a Bible college. He, so, he left uh, short of graduation. So he just meandered his way through college without even finishing, whereas the researchers at CRI had to have degrees, and he was going to be president of all of these degreed people. Yeah, at, at the time that uh, Hanegraaff took over, uh, it was a requirement that if you wanted to be a research person, you know, I'm not talking about a secretary or something, but if you wanted to be a research person, you had to have at least a bachelor's degree working on a master's, et cetera. And, uh, you know, if you had a high school diploma, that wouldn't cut it as a research person. So, yeah, Hanegraaff came in and took over a, a very highly educated ministry with less than a college degree, and that's one of my points in my book that I make that I, I you know, I reason that a man like Hanegraaff, who knew pretty much all the, you know, evangelical scholars of the day, you know, the most brilliant Christian minds of the, of, you know, of America at that time, if he was picking a, a successor, he would not have picked a, high, you know, a person with a high school diploma. I mean, I don't care how, how nice the guy was, it just wouldn't be part of his uh, makeup to pick a person with with limited knowledge in the field that, you know, CRI was involved in. And he wouldn't pick somebody who would alienate everyone on the staff and then go on to alienate many other people in the Christian world. Jay, we've been talking about the people whom Hanegraaff terminated at CRI. On pages 39 to 43 of your book, you give a list, necessarily a partial list, but still a long list, of some of the people whom Hanegraaff fired. Let's go through some of these and just find out what the reasons were behind the firings. Uh, Jay, tell me about Robert Bowman. Well, Rob Bowman, I've known for quite a while. Um, you know, he told me about his CRI experience with Hank Hanegraaff. That um, I think the, the turning point for Rob was um, one day Hank Hanegraaff was on the um, Hank, yeah, Hank Hanegraaff was on the Bible Answer Man program. And he was quoting from a, what's called a CRI perspective, I believe, which is like a one-page sheet on a group. And let's make sure we're clear. And, this is after the death of Walter Martin. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is after the death of Walter Martin. And Rob Bowman had written that particular perspective. You know, it's like the one-page uh, outline of the group's uh, theology and history, that kind of thing. And according to Rob, what he told me was uh, Hanegraaff read that on the air as if he had written it, took kind of he took credit for writing it, and... Um, 
Rob Bowman uh, went into his office a little later after the show and said, you know, you can't do that because that I wrote that. I mean, I know I wrote that because that's my my writing. And, uh, you know, Hanegraaff sort of protested a little bit. And uh, it wasn't until a week later um, Bowman kind of found out what happened. He was fired. He was fired from CRI and told they had a financial uh, problem that month and they had to let some people go. Now, Rob actually went back into the numbers of that month and found out that, in in truth, the the um, the giving for that month uh, was actually higher than normal for the year, and he was the only one fired. So it wasn't like uh, a, a massive group of people let go on that particular week. And you know, the people you don't let go when you're having trouble are the people that keep you you know keep your ministry going. The research department. He was a researcher one of the top researchers at that time. And so they fired him. And it, so it was a retribution, retribution firing for doubting or challenging Hank Hanegraaff. Jay, tell me about Craig and Lisa Hawkins. Well, Lisa, I think she worked in the, um, she was a secretary there, I believe. But Craig was one of the senior researchers. In fact, um, many times when uh, Walter Martin was out of town for a weekend or something or for a couple days, um, he had Craig fill in um, as the voice of the Bible Answer Man for a day or two, and I've uh, Craig's another one of those people I have met in the past. Uh, I don't really hang out with him too much anymore. He lives um, in Santa Ana, California, I believe. But um, you know, he's he's a very gifted speaker. Um, he has a background in philosophy and cults and world religions, uh, and so you know, he was really good at getting behind a microphone and taking calls and questions because he had such a broad knowledge of the Bible and philosophy and Christian apologetics, something that Walter Martin had. And so Craig Hawkins spent many, many uh, days uh, being the voice of Bible Lanchman when Walter Martin died. Uh, after, and you know, there was like 10 samples, Rob Bowman, Paul Cardin. There was about a half dozen men that filled in, but Craig did it a lot. And to... To be the president of CRI, you'd have to be the voice of the Bible Answer Man. I mean, it's, you know, you couldn't be the president of CRI and not be the voice of the Bible Answer Man program. So Hanegraaff understood that he had to do something to get rid of Craig Hawkins. In fact, uh, he told people uh, before the firings and after the firings that his wife, Kathy, uh, had had a, like a dream or something, and God had told her, that Craig Hawkins had, he was like demon-possessed. Have thou nothing to do with that righteous man, in other words. Yeah, and so they fired uh, Craig Hawkins, or for, I should say they forced him out, uh, made it terribly uncomfortable for him to be there, because, see, see uh, Hanegraaff, again, he needed to be the Bible answer man voice, and uh, Craig Hawkins was probably the one man who could stand between him and that chair. So he got rid of Craig Hawkins. He really... I mean, he feared Craig Hawkins in a sense because most of these men, uh, you know, he, he was, I think he was living in fear that they would figure out how bad he was, how l limited uh, background he had in cults and a philosophy and, and the Bible and everything else. And so he, he, little by little, got rid of pretty much everybody who had a real, uh, you know, background in these kinds of things, who had studied them, gone to college for these issues. And so, little by little, most of the men uh, were, were sort of 
moved out of uh, the CRI or, or outright fired. And um, uh, Craig Hawkins was one of those. Jay, let's switch gears here from firing and talk about hiring. Tell me about this Paul Young character whom Hank Canegraaff brought on board. Well, Paul, Paul Young was a Canadian. He met him up in Canada because there's, there's a thing called uh, CRI Canada, which uh, was started about 10 years before Walter Martin died. And so Hanegraaff was, went up there after Martin died to check out CRI Canada, met with John Teeb, the director of CRI Canada, and um, he ended up he ended up you know firing John Teeb and the whole staff that was up there because uh, they were not too happy with the way he was running things, and they were, became very concerned. So John Teeb was let go, and it was kind of a bloodbath up there. But he he did meet Paul Young. Was, they must have hit it off somehow because he he invited him to come down to Southern California to be the uh, you know to be his his uh, right hand man you know to be the vice president of CRI. The only problem was at that time Paul Young was married to a woman by the name of Estelle, and he literally picked up, moved down to Southern California, left his wife in in Canada, left her with the bills and you know all the, the problems of what happens when you you know you get you leave your spouse. Uh, she called down to CRI to talk to Hank Canegraaff privately about the desertion of her husband you know, to, to work for CRI. And she told, you know, she went public on this, and she said that Hanegraaff would never take her phone calls and never would help her to reconcile with her husband. So he literally took on a man who had abandoned his family. And I do believe the Bible says a man who will not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Well, you gotta... Exactly. I mean, you have a man, the head of the CRI, you know, this Christian research organization, that is actually, uh, you know, basically breaking with biblical statements. I mean, you know, you don't you, you don't help a man or a woman uh, flee their family when they're responsible to their mate. You know, to, I mean, this is you know, this was a marriage. This wasn't you know, boyfriend girlfriend. This was a marriage, and Hanegraaff completely disregarded that that relationship and took Paul on and left. His, his ex-wife to flounder by herself. The name of the book, ladies and gentlemen, is Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man. Hank Hanegraaff and his takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. Jay is on the phone with me right now. There was uh, a good friend of Walter Martin's by the name of Tony Collaril, Collaril perhaps. And I interviewed him back in, I think, 2001, 2002, when I was working on the book, Research. And uh, he told me a little interesting story. He said that um, they had a dedication of their building. The CRI had a dedication of their building in Irvine, California. And uh, Tony Colorell came out to um, attend the, um, you know, the, the little shindig. And while he was there, Hank or Walter Martin had invited him to go to a Baptist church with him to, you know, because Walter Martin had been booked to speak there. And uh, I think it was in, like, uh, I want to say Garden Grove or Garden City, one of those towns. So they get in the car, and they're driving, they're driving away. And uh, Tony told me that uh, Walter, you know, he was asking him about, you know, how things are going at CRI. And, and Walter started, like, waxing eloquent about several men there that had, you know, sort of uh, showed themselves to be superior uh, you know, Christian leaders there. 
he mentioned Paul Carden, he said. He mentioned uh, Craig Hawkins by name. He might have mentioned like uh, uh, Rich Paul, who was there uh, for a time. And, uh, you know, he was talking about all these young men who he had hired to be researchers at CRI. And it just so happened that driving to uh, the church engagement, the man driving was Hank Hanegraaff, you know, and he was behind the wheel. Now, uh, I asked him, did he say anything about Hank Hanegraaff? Did he say how wonderful he was and this is going to be my next president of CRI or whatever if something happened to me? And um, Tony said no. I mean, the guy drove the car and there was no you know, extolling of Hank Hanegraaff's credentials to him. Now, the reason this is significant is because Tony Collarill and I've heard this from other people, they were like really good friends. I mean, Tony and Walter were, were good friends. They've been friends for many, many years. Back in New Jersey. Back in New Jersey, because that's where Hank, uh, Walter Martin was originally from. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be driving, uh, you're going to be driving to this church thing, and, you know, you're at the dedication, and you've come all this way to, to see your friend Walter, uh, I think this would be a great time to discuss with him and say, hey, you know who's driving this car right now? The man who's going to take over for me after I die or if I retire, uh, Hank Hanegraaff. He's the man, and he's driving this car right now, and this is why he's so wonderful. And, but he didn't say one word about Hank Hanegraaff, and to me that would have been, been the perfect time to discuss the future with his friend Tony. And I just think that's indicative of, of one of the reasons why uh, Hanegraaff is not the pre- – or should not have been the president because, you know – Walter Martin has said nothing about him to to anybody that I can find, uh, you know, in, in public or private. Uh, I interviewed many people. None of them had any advanced no- knowledge of Hank Hanegraaff uh, going to be the next president. It just it just wasn't in the cards. So the men whom Walter Martin mentored and trained all got canned, whereas the chauffeur slash fundraiser is the one who ended up becoming president of CRI and the Bible Answer Man. Exactly. Yeah, Jay, you've got a priceless quote about this on page 29. I want to read it. Quote, Hank was given authority by the board to build the BAM program by adding or subtracting radio stations in order to make the BAM program profitable. This, again, was only a business-related project. He was not being asked to appear on BAM and had never spent any time on the radio show at that point. To put this into perspective... It would be analogous to a business manager at a hospital being offered the position as the head of thoracic medicine. It would never happen because the manager has no training in that field, end quote. Uh, one of um, Martin's board members, his name was Stan Thomas, and he just died here a couple months ago. Uh, he was a great guy. I mean, I, I met with him um, in 2008. I, I flew down to Fort Myers, Florida, uh, to uh, spend a week with him and his wife. And uh, Stan had had saved pretty much everything that he was ever given from CRI. He had he had notes and he had uh, minutes from board meetings. He had I mean boxes and boxes of stuff. And so I was able to take all the board minutes that Stan still possessed uh, at CRI or from CRI home with me, and I brought, took a big thick briefcase with me and stuffed full of notes, and I took it home. And in the in the book itself. I quote from several board minutes of different years that that Hanegraaff was on. He was on there from February of 87 until he took over in 89, June of 89. Now, if you read these board minutes, you'll notice that 
there is any time that Hanegraaff speaks up in a board meeting, it's related to business, you know, fundraising, going on a cruise, you know, raising money to go on a cruise for CRI people or whatever it was. There was all kinds of projects and things he talked about, but he was never talking about, you know, being the BAM guy or being a theologian, working with the uh, research crew. He was always talking about raising money, cutting costs, very uh, accounting-related stories. Yeah, he was just counting the shekels, in other words. Yeah. Now, some people may be puzzled at this point, because if you listen to Hanegraaff on the radio now, he's a smooth operator. And I think just by dint of longevity, um, he has become so. But that wasn't always the case. When he first took over on the Bible Answer Man, it was a daily disaster. And, Jay, you have a letter here that you've reproduced in the book by Michael Stevens, former director of broadcast media at CRI. I just want to read a couple of the the choice uh, sentences from this, and you can jump in at any point. Sure. Okay, here we are on page 53. Quote, never did a BAM broadcast go by without Hank rewording a caller's question to enable himself to answer the reworded question. Hank would usually ask, does that help? or something along those lines, and the response by the caller was often something like, well, actually, in which Hank would say, well, stay on the line and we'll send you some information, and not ever really answering the question, probably due to ignorance, end quote. Moving down, quote, there were also two of the unfortunate things that happened on the Bible Answer Man quite regularly. The first is this, Hank would walk into the studio, briefly scan the pre-screened call sheets, and then scrambled to find a quick-fix answer. Oftentimes, he would ask Ron Rhodes or Bob Lyle what this or that word meant, or what that cult believes. Some of the questions to which Hank had no answer were frighteningly simple. I must say that he didn't always do this. The sad fact is that when he didn't, the answer would often be wrong." End quote. All right, so he's depending on Ron Rhodes, uh, Ron Rhodes and Bob Lyle there, two of the men we said earlier were probably qualified to sit in as the actual Bible answer man. Yeah. Also, I've talked to a couple of the radio people there, and they said they had created, they created a book with, you know, tabs, so you could open the book to a tab, you know, say, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they would have, like, statements in there about Jehovah's Witnesses so he could pull information. Now, uh, one of the one of the radio guys, I want to say it was Michael, but I'm not sure who it was that, had told me that he had um, he had actually given him a him a, a device to use on the air. He gave Hank Hanegraaff a device where uh, he'd be reading something off the page, and he'd stammer and stop and make it look like he was pulling it all from memory. And so. When he would be quoting a, a source from Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or something, he was trying to make it sound like he was, you know, he had this already memorized. He would stop and stammer and like he was like fighting to pull it out of his memory. And so he would use these little devices to make it make himself look good on on the air. The name of the book is Hard Questions for the Bible Answer Man: Hank Hanegraaff and His Takeover of the Christian Research Institute. The author is Jay Howard. You know, he positioned himself. He was a vice president on the board, which means nothing in real terms, because I've sat on boards, and just because you're the vice president of a, of a ministry board doesn't mean that you have the, the knowledge to actually sit in that seat in the real ministry world. Um, that's just a position that he held on the board. And, uh, you know, he may have worked with, um, talked Everett Jacobson and Stan into letting him be the president for a while because he thought, well, maybe 
if I, I he may have said, well, you know, I'll be the president for a while until we can find somebody to take my place. Just a I'll, caretaker just, president. Just to keep it going. Now, I think it's worth noting, too, that, um, you know, they didn't wait until weeks or months after the funeral to make him president. Hank Hanegraaff called a special meeting at 8.45 in the morning, the day of the funeral, and had them vote on his presidency. Now, who, who, who needs to have a new president, you know, the morning of the funeral? But he, see, I believe that he was, so, he was struggling to consolidate his power as soon as possible so nobody could, you know, could, um, you know, could fight him on it. And then, of course, he had John Ingerberg during the funeral announce that he was unanimously voted on as president of CRI or for CRI in the morning. And, but you, you just don't have a, a business meeting the morning of the funeral of the founder. It's just, it's unheard of. And unanimously voted by three people, Hanegraaff yeah, being one of the three people. Yeah, exactly. Now, and so, yeah, I mean, everything he did was seemingly calculated to consolidate his power as quickly as he could. You know, as much as that makes the steam come out of my ears, I've got to admit, there's a part of me that admires that level of piracy. Just being able to pull off a feat like that, there's something, I mean... I mean, it's admirable in a deplorable way, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the, we call it, you know, uh, we call it chutzpah. You know that the the Yiddish term chutzpah. Oh yeah. He he, did, he had a lot of chutzpah just to think that he could even try to make this work. But as you mentioned a few minutes ago, he's not an original person. He could never have started the CRI himself. So the only way he could make it in the world um, was to, you know, take over an existing ministry and. As I've shown in the book on on on, in, on several pages, even when he before he supposedly became a Christian in 1979, Hanegraaff admitted that he wanted to have money and power. He craved to have a lot of money, and so he used CRI as his personal ATM machine. I mean, the guy is making in excess of four hundred thousand dollars, him and his wife, because she's supposed to be the head of yeah, public relations. Yeah, what now, exactly does she do? She makes eighty grand. What does Kathy Hanegraaff do? Well, I don't think anybody's ever able to figure that out because when when I was working on the book, I talked to people and they said she was never around. You know, if she was doing PR work, she was doing it from her home because she had you know she had like eight or nine kids or something, and but she never was in the office working. She was always doing it supposedly at home. So, you know, we don't really know how she worked or what she worked on, but this is what she was supposed to be doing. But you know, between that and and the uh, you know, I'm sure he has the expense account, so he probably has another. And 100, I've heard it, it's, it's closer to 600000 now, because my book, when it came out, it was about 400000 Jay, we talked about how Hanegraaff stole CRI. Uh, apparently, even before he came on to CRI, he began his ministry career with a ripoff. You've inter- interviewed D. James Kennedy, and apparently Hanegraaff stole from him as well. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, yeah. Um... I, I interviewed um, D. James Kennedy in, in uh, 2000 uh, because at that time uh, Hanegraaff was going on the radio and claiming that D. James Kennedy was an astrologer and trying to you know mess up uh, D. James Kennedy's ministry career by claiming that he was a heretic and, a, and an astrologer. So uh, I, I called Hanegraaff's office and set up an interview with him and because it became pretty clear at that time that um, – Hanegraaff had stolen or plagiarized material from what's called Evangelism Explosion, which is um, uh, sort of the opus work of 
of D. James Kennedy back in the 60s, and or 70s, I think. And so um, I called D. James Kennedy's office and talked to him for 10 minutes, and we talked about how um, you know this, he knew about the plagiarism. He was very concerned about it. He wasn't going to sue him. He wasn't going to take him to court because Christians don't sue Christians, he told me, which is pretty biblical. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, and so, uh, but but and Hanegraaff knew that that he knew about it, and he tried to, you know, he met him at a at a restaurant, no, at a at a hotel one time, and sort of, kind of, a bit, little bit pleaded with him not to, you know, do anything, you know, and and uh, Kennedy told him, don't worry, I'm not going to sue you, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, but he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, uh, Hanegraaff, I mean, uh, Kennedy was routinely being sent copies of. Of the PWT, comparing it to E. e that's material. personal witness training. Yeah, personal witness training, and that's Hanegraaff's material, and it was really close. Now, uh, Rob Bowman back in '95 did a, a you know a point by point comparison, which I replicate. I think most of it in my book. And just to remind and, the listeners, Rob Bowman was the CRI employee who actually wrote the CRI perspectives. Right. Now, um, so he went. He did this point by point comparison. To show that the uh, you know plagiarism was real, and it really was. I mean, it's so blatant that uh, it, it it could not have been just a, a coincidence, you know. And uh, so yeah, he was he was he's written several books, but they were always been written by a committee or by other people. He being Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, and he put his name on it. So yeah, you know uh, that, guy just, that that that's extremely interesting, Jay, because. I'm not the biggest fan of Hanegraaff's books, but the one that I actually did like was Christianity in Crisis, and it turns out that's written by committee. Yeah, CRI uh, staffers. Yeah, CRI staffers. Did Hanegraaff actually plagiarize D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion for his own personal witness training? Next, let's hear from well-known minister Dr. D. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries in Florida about this issue. I began to get numerous uh, letters from people telling me that he had been attacking me again on several more occasions on his radio program. He has been doing this off and on for the last three or four years and has attacked me in books and on tapes and uh, his magazine. I have made it a position over 42 years of ministry that though I would take on the atheists and the agnostics and the cultists and the pagans and the humanists and the evolutionists that I never would uh, attack fellow evangelical believers. And so uh, I had called him one time trying to get him to uh, not do that, but he continued to, to do it, and apparently is increasing that attack. And so I finally simply wrote a letter to the people that uh, had responded, ha had sent me letters telling me that he was attacking me, tried to explain uh, what, why what he said wasn't the case. And apparently, and I'm not sure, but somebody said that they think that he took that and put it on the web and made it public and now is accusing me of attacking him, which is utterly absurd because I have been sitting here saying nothing for three or four years while he has continued this assault. Okay. Now, um, how did uh, Hank Hanegraaff uh, come to get involved at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, your home church? Well, he was led to Christ by one of our evangelism explosion teams that visited in his apartment one night, led him to Christ. Uh, he came and was received as a member, and he was a very uh, eager young man, uh, had a 
uh, a good mind and was growing very well. Uh, we, we led him to Christ. I, we taught him uh, Reformed theology. Uh, we taught him how to evangelize through Evangelism Explosion. Uh, then he came to work uh, a couple of years later for EE and uh, in the fundraising uh, department. And then uh, finally, <clears throat> he left and went to at Atlanta to uh, work with uh, Archie Parrish. Okay. Approximately how many years was he uh, attached to your church there in uh, um, Fort Lauderdale? Uh, I was afraid you were going to ask that because uh, I don't. I really don't know. And this would just be. Uh, you know, a guess. I, I don't know. I would. I really have no idea. I would say it seems like it might have been five years or more, uh, but that's purely a guess. I have not checked any figures, and my memory for those things is getting a little bit fuzzy. Oh, sure, I understand. Um, what was was there any particular reason that you know of why he he left um, uh, Fort Lauderdale area and the Coral Ridge Ministries there? Uh, he was working for EE, and when uh, Parrish, who was then our vice president. Uh, went to Atlanta to start his own ministry. Uh, he went with him to work for him. Okay, so there was no, no, no problem with him that you know of? Uh, no, no. As far as any uh, personal problem, I, not that I knew of. Uh, he later uh, was uh, removed from that ministry because of uh, the conduct that he exhibited there. I just talked to uh, Archie Parrish at General Assembly a couple of days ago, and he was telling me about the very unhappy circumstances where uh, he was forced to let him go. Now, um, maybe you can just speak to this just for a moment. Uh, was he was Hank Anagraf a representative for Evangelism Explosion in Atlanta, or just or just when he was with you? Uh, just uh, when he was with us. He would then represent us to donors anywhere in the country, not just Atlanta. Uh, but when he left us and went to Atlanta, he no longer was. Okay, so um, there was no reason to. So he didn't just. He didn't have to. He, he didn't leave the EE program in Atlanta. He actually left that in uh, in Fort Lauderdale. That's correct. Okay, best uh, I remember. That's been I don't know, twenty years or more ago. Sure. And now, when did you first hear about uh, Hank Hanegraaff's personal witnessing training program? The first time I ever heard of that is when I began to get letters from people telling me that he had, uh, that Hanegraaff had uh, plagiarized my book, Evangelism Explosion, which is the basis of the whole evangelistic, EE, uh, uh, -E, Evangelism Explosion ministry all over the world, and that he had come up with uh, a very, very similar uh, program, and I guess that's what he called it, and it was till people began to send me uh, a page of his book and a page of my book right next to it, another page of his, a page of mine, and on and on, that uh, I had ever seen it or even heard of it, and uh, they were wanting me. I, I had all kinds of people saying, you really ought to sue this man for plagiarism, and uh, I said then what I have always said, I don't think that's what Christians ought to do. I don't think we're supposed to sue other Christians. And I met him one time at a at a hotel somewhere. I don't remember when or where. And he was trying to explain to me how how this wasn't really plagiarism. And uh, and I said to him, Hank, look, forget it. Don't worry about it. I have no intention of suing you. I don't believe Christians ought to sue other Christians. So just forget about it. And uh, so that was my uh, my experience with that. 
Now, do you have a sense of how many years ago it was? I mean, when you first started hearing about this new um, PWT program? Oh, gee, I don't know. Was it uh, 10, 12? When did he when did he publish it? I don't remember. Well, it's been out um, since he was in Atlanta because that's when he first started developing it. Well, you know, it could have been longer than that. I okay. I don't know I don't know when I started hearing about it when people began to write me letters and tell me about it. Other than that, I'd never heard of it. Now, um, <clears throat> Christian Research Institute and Hank Hanegraaff claims that you gave um, um, Mr. Hanegraaff permission to use evangelism explosion materials. To, uh, for the development of the personal witnessing training program, uh, either verbal or written uh, authorization. Did you ever do this? No, that is just not the case. Uh, in fact, the matter is, I did, at his request, take it to the board and ask them if they wanted to get uh, involved with doing uh, something like this, and uh, they turned it down. And if I had given him permission, then I would ask at that hotel that time, why would he have so belabored the point that this really wasn't plagiarism? Now, I had, uh, I think I had seen the pages set side by side. I never even made an investigation on my own to get a hold of it or anything, but some people had sent me to copy the pages. And since there was such a startling uh, uh, comparison between the two, you know, I, why was he trying so hard to convince me that this wasn't plagiarism when he could have said to me, well, Jim, you know, this is what I've come up with, and since you gave me permission to use your book any way I wanted, uh, I guess you'll recognize the large segments of this coming from your book. He never said that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he kept saying it wasn't plagiarism. Now, apparently, he's saying it was, but he had permission from me. Now let's hear from former CRI employee Perry Robinson of his own experiences while he worked behind the scenes at Hanegraaff's operation there at CRI. Perry, one of the objections that you and I continually encounter when we speak negatively about Hank Hanegraaff is that Hanegraaff is a genius with an encyclopedic knowledge of the faith. But you, Perry, from your experience at CRI, have actually been in the studio during the recording of the BAM radio show. BAM, of course, stands for Bible Answer Man. You've seen what actually goes on behind the scenes. Why don't you tell us about the radio magic and sleight of hand that makes Hanegraaff look, so, look and sound so good? Yeah, some of this is, is confirmed by other former employees like Mike Stevens and others who worked in the radio engineering department, so it's not just my word. There are multiple eyewitnesses to this. When Hanegraaff came to CRI, in his own words, as he expressed in a recent interview with Frank Beckwith, he really knew nothing about cults or apologetics. So he had to crib from the other employees who actually had degrees, because to be a researcher, you actually had to have earned degrees, at least a bachelor's degree to be even considered for hiring. It had to be a bachelor's degree in a relevant field. So what people have to understand about the BAM show is first, now that Hanegraaff's been doing this for 25 years, he's gotten better at this kind of facade. But generally, he has a number of tools. He only answers about five to six questions per hour. He has uh, a call screener, of course. And so he can screen out all the hard questions that he's really not qualified to answer. Uh, he also has about a 10-second delay or at least he did when I was there, 
because it gets shot up over satellite. So he so can, du he, he can dump a call if it goes bad then. Yes, he can. He can just turn down the volume and make it seem like he's answering the person and the person doesn't have anything further to say. And then be like, okay, I hope that helps. Now we're on to the next question. These are tools that he uses. Now, he has a computer in the desk, which he uses for caller ID, but also uh, to look up information. When BAM first, when he first started on BAM, there was no computer there. So there were other employees from the research department, such as Erwin DeCastro, who was a junior researcher, who would literally feed Hanegraaff text to read from, um, from other people's work or uh, standard statements for CRI in a particular issue. Now, I was not very old, but I had done enough apologetics to realize that if you're doing this, you're really not qualified. And then on top of that, Hanegraaff was just making all kinds of egregious historical and theological mistakes. Uh, initially, he kept talking about three separate persons in the Trinity. That was one. Uh, he couldn't put major historical events within five centuries. If you can't nail down the Crusades of the Inquisition within 500 years, you probably don't know what you're talking about. So what happened was, is whenever Hank would make a major screw-up, the BAM show for that day would become mysteriously unavailable. Because there were, the error was so bad and it took up so much time that they just couldn't edit it out of the tape that would then be purchased for distribute, you know, to the public. So, so it, just went down the, it just went down the George Orwell memory hole, in other words. Right, exactly. So what people are seeing in the show is not reality. It's a facade. Uh, he has no earned degrees in any field, not plumbing, not HVAC. He has no earned degrees. He has three years at Calvin College, I believe, as an undergraduate, which he dropped out from. And he can't read the biblical languages. He has no competence in philosophy or church history. So it's all just a big show. It's, it's fakery. This is why he doesn't generally do debates. Because on a debate, you have to do a couple things. You have to construct an argument, present it, and respond on your feet. You have to be able to think through your opponent's objection right then and there. You don't get time to edit it out or hit the mute button. So the one debate he did with a Dallas Seminary graduate, which is on YouTube for viewing, he Mark, gets annihilated. Is that Mark Hitchcock, the eschatology debate? Yeah, that's the Hitchcock debate over, over Revelation. And you can see Hanegraaff about two-thirds of the way through becomes visibly angry and starts lashing out at people in the audience because he's losing the debate really bad, uh, which is really not professional and not somebody with his supposed stature should be doing. Uh, so he's really incompetent uh, as a theologian, as a philosopher, and this is why you generally get the same questions uh, over and over again. After about a year, you've pretty much heard everything Hank's going to say, both in terms of verb verbosity, using a lot of big words to make it sound like he's educated, um, but he's like a JW. Once you get the JW off his memorized spiel, he's helpless. So to illustrate very quickly, uh, a few months ago, there was a caller who called in who was an Orthodox catechumen. And the catechumen 
ask him about arguments against the papacy from an orthodox point of view because the guy's wife was still Catholic and she didn't want to convert. And so this was the, the linchpin for her, which is understandable. Handgraf talks for seven minutes and he can't name one argument. He cannot provide one argument against the papacy from an orthodox perspective. Perry, that's now, the, the Perry, what... Uh, in your in several of your blog posts, there's this exasperated expression that keeps cropping up, and it goes along the lines of, after 30 years of doing theology five days a week, he should know this by now. So, no, I think that's exactly right. He he should. I mean, he, he for example, he does not understand the Protestant view on justification that works are merely contiguous. Of faith, they don't participate in justification. He doesn't understand either a Catholic or an Orthodox view on justification. Um, that that our good works under the power of grace are God's works, and therefore they please Him. There's not these two things next to each other. They're actually one and the same thing. He doesn't understand that. Now, I use myself as the measure for this because it's about the same amount of time. I under learned these things because I read the Reformers. I read Lutheran scholastics. I read Reform scholastics. I went to lecture after lecture of, of Reform contemporary Reformation authors from, you know, John Gerstner and Mike Horton and people like this for months. So I'm not holding him to a standard that I don't hold myself to, but he should have been able to articulate these things even before he was received into the church, but he can't. Well, he really doesn't know what he's doing. Perry, what you are doing uh, is what a scholar is supposed to do, and that is to go back to the primary sources. Ad fontes is what they said in the Reformation. Uh, whereas you have pointed out that Hanegraaff will not do anything beyond more uh, a mere surface level. I think the phrase you said that he uttered in your presence once was, the research has been done, now all we have to do is package it. Yeah, and I'm not the only person he said that to. Um, so this is why CRI really hasn't done any cutting in apologetics in almost 30 years. Uh, the research staff has been liquidated. He, he publishes popular books under his name, um, which there's ample reason out there. He's been called on the carpet for having ghost writers for these books. So when he presents himself as having written 20 books, well, I'm very doubtful of that. Researchers put together entire sections of Christianity in Crisis. There are other books that he took the titles of from other authors who already had books published on this. This has been out there if you wanted to use Google to see it. There should at least, it should at least strike people as red flags, that there's enough smoke there that there's probably fire in there somewhere. But in general, all of this is just a facade. He's not, he's not an apologist. Hanegraaff is, is at best a, a, a popularizer who has to have information fed to him. I mean, he's a, he's a glorified teleprompter reader. And so it's an entirely false appearance that you're getting. You know, it's okay for the Christian faith to have popularizers, but when the popularizer portrays himself as an academic... That's the problem. And Perry, Hanegraaff has made himself appear 
if people just listen for 20 minutes here and there, to be a top apologist. And he's done it by means of the sleight of hand that you've talked about in the radio studio. Now, according to your blog, though, the ironic result of that is that uh, the Christian Research Institute now, under Hanegraaff, is at an extremely rudimentary level of apologetic sophistication. It's really not very scholarly at all. No, it's not. And as I said before, uh, they, they have another problem on top of that. Because their stuff is so basic, for the most part, you can find it just about anywhere. You can find what they provide on the Internet um, just about anywhere. And the majority of books and materials that they provide, especially the books, I mean, you can just get them on Amazon. You can get them on over the Internet through various booksellers. There's no particular reason to go through CRI. There's nothing really unique that they're offering. And people, for example, in the counter-cult community know that the really best stuff, for example, on Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't go to CRI for the best stuff on Jehovah's Witnesses. You go to Dwayne Magnani's Witness, Inc. If you want some of the best stuff on the Mormons, you go to the Tanners and people like this. It's long since been the case that CRI has nothing substantial to offer on apologetics other than just getting your feet wet. Well, at one time they did, because, of course, that was the foundation that was established by Walter Martin. Regrettably, you cannot get Martin's materials through CRI anymore. Yeah, to my knowledge, you can't, no. I'm not holding Hanegraaff to a standard he doesn't hold other people to. He regularly denounces people on TBN and other venues, word, faith, teachers, all the popular televangelists, for living a lavish lifestyle at the expense of, of ordinary people. Now, regardless of their you know, theological quackadoxy on TBN, the principle is still the same and applicable to Hank. Hank lives, uh, to my knowledge, and, and this is public record, so I'm not gossiping, uh, in a 9,200-square-foot, $3.1 million house in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, if you were to buy a house for that price in, say, Newport Beach, California, on the coast, that would get you probably a 1,500 to to 1,800 square foot uh, little house on the beach. So you wouldn't be getting a lot, but you're paying for location. But he's got a 9,200 square foot house. Um, now people will say, well, that's because he has 12 kids. Well, most of his kids are all adults, and they have been for some time. They're not necessarily living there. He lives on essentially a country club estate. The entrance fee for the country club uh, I believe, which is also public record, is about $65,000 for the interest fee, and it's about $1,000 a month. And $65,000 is more than what the average American grosses in a year as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that's real money to the rest, to the rest of us poor people. I mean, uh, ordinary people, $65K is not chump change. Perry, are you speculating that the reason he moved the Christian Research Institute from California to North Carolina was that his real estate dollars would go farther? Well, it's interesting you say that. That's a possible speculation, and to be fair, I don't want to try and expe uh, speculate. But I do know that when he was here in California, where I reside, he purchased a home in Coto de Casa, which is prime real estate in Southern California, a brand-new home for $731,000 in, I believe, 1992, which is also public record. And you have to understand, $731,000 then was a lot of money. And it was, a, I believe, about a 4,800 or 5,200-square-foot house. So it wasn't a small house. 
And then, of course, he lies about it that he never paid that amount of money for the house. He just flat out lies. There's a YouTube video of it you can see called uh, Did Hank Hanegraaff Lie About His House? made by another former employee. For the listeners, that YouTube channel is Mr. Call Me the Seeker. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's another former employee. Uh, on that same channel, there is a video of Hanegraaff blatantly reading straight out of Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cult, and passing it off as his own answer on the Bible Answer Man show. Yeah, he does that, and I document that even recently um, in the last three months. For example, he gets a call on justification, and then he just reads off a prepared statement with the appropriate pauses interjected in to make it sound like, uh, he's just doing it off the top of his head, but he's just cribbing from this. Uh, so he really doesn't understand the theology. But the point about his lying about the house to callers in the past was is that you can't take him at his word. He, even though he sounds really sincere, how would you ever know if he's telling the truth or not? You know he's demonstratedly lies. You know he misrepresents himself and uses the works of others without attribution. Um, and the most Really, the most troubling thing, in my mind, is there are instances where Hank is essentially selling doctrinal approval for the ability to have speaking opportunities or the exchange of funds. He's selling doctrinal indulgences, for lack of a better term. Right. That's the term that you used with me in our phone conversation, and I thought it was wonderfully evocative. Let's elaborate a little bit more on that. Explain what an indulgence is and how it applies to Hank Hanegraaff. Well, the crass popular medieval understanding in Catholicism was that for those people who were going to end up in heaven and had to go through purgatory, um, they could, uh, one of the kinds of acts of charity that they could do to lessen the time in purgatory was by making a mon monetary donation. And this, of course, through John Tetzel, scandalized Luther because it gave the impression that somebody could buy forgiveness. And so that set off the Reformation debates, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know. So Hank is, is selling approval, and I witnessed this uh, in a debacle with a group in Southern California at the time called Set Free. Uh, but there are many other groups that I strongly suspect or have good reason to, to think that this was actually done. All right, let's back up just a moment, Perry. Who are Set Free? Set Free is, is a, or was a group in the early 90s that was affiliated with TBN. They were a biker church, for lack of a better term. And what had happened is a number of complaints had been made about abuses there, abuses of power, potentially selling of drugs within the church and things like this. I don't know if any of those things were true, but these were the complaints that were conveyed to Odin Fong at Calvary Chapel Coast to Mesa. These complaints were eventually became so serious that Fong handed over everything to CRI. CRI then issued a statement saying that they could not recommend Tet Free as a church because of all of these problems, that there was sufficient evidence there to warrant that there were significant problems in the leadership. So what happened in my case was we would, every once in a while, we would get a letter and a donation from somebody who really didn't understand our ministry. So you'd have some Mormon lady listening in Utah, listening to our show critiquing Jehovah's Witnesses, which she thought was just hot diggity, right? So she'd send in 20 bucks. And then she'd say, I'm Mormon and I love your ministry. 
So what we would do is put the money in a pending account and send her a letter saying, well, it's really not right for us to take your money. If you still want to give it to us, that's fine. But this is who we are. We also critique the Mormon church, for example. So I started getting letters from Set Free, people in Set Free, saying Set Free loves CRI and things like this. And I went to my boss across the hallway, who was Cindy DeVore. And I said, uh, Cindy, should I just put this in um, whatever the four-digit account was, like 4080 or whatever the account was, um, and send them the standard blurb? And she says, no, just put it in the general donation fund and route the letter to research, which was not what we were supposed to do. But she was my boss. And I said, but yeah, we should do this and just route it to research, Perry. Okay. And then another one came through and another one and another one. That was the first day. The second day, we started getting all these pink envelopes with set free printed on them, dozens of them. And it was the same thing, route them to research, put the funds in the general donation, route it to research. Now, one of the other jobs responsibilities that I had was tracking the mail. So the mail was batched into groups and we would keep mail by date and batch number up to two years back. We had a catalog system in the back warehouse. This was in case there was a mistake in an order. So we could go back and say, ah, we missed this, or no, you didn't actually order this. So it was just to cover our behind, so to speak. It was just good business practice. None of those letters ended up back there in the batches with the other mail for, for that day, which is where they should have gone. Now, the third day, we got boxes, post office boxes full of these letters. So we're talking three or four of these boxes filled with letters of donations from Set Free and these bright pink letters and envelopes. They all went up to Hank's office, and I never saw them again. Now, that by itself seems bad, but I was walking down the hall, and I ran into Jane Huckabee. And that means, of course, nobody, nothing to any of your listeners, but Jane was one of the vice presidents at CRI. And I asked Jane, so Jane, uh, what's going on with all the set-free stuff? Keep getting all these letters, and I'm sending them to research, but it's kind of weird. So I'm playing dumb. And Jane obliges me and says, well, what happened is Hank was on the phone with Phil Aguilar trying to work out a deal where he could do his personal witness training at Set Free. And what happened, she said, is Aguilar taped the phone conversation without Hannah Graff knowing it, which I believe at the time in California was not illegal to do. And then she said that Aguilar leveraged that recording against Hannah Graff that he better go through with the deal or Aguilar will just let the tape come out to the public. So we were stuck taking all those donations. We couldn't get out of it as an organization without humiliating Hank. So what we have is we have a doctrinally dubious organization that, uh, for lack of a better word, is able to blackmail or strong-arm Hanegraaff into giving them cover, giving them legitimacy through the name of CRI. Yeah, and the doctrinal statement that um, CRI had done on Set Free was yanked within a few days. So there were other books that I noticed that we yanked. And I don't know if you want to get into this here or, or later on. So let it fly. Um, but this, this, was, this was not the only case. So, for example, there was another book by a guy named Gomes out of Biola, out of Talbot School of Theology, a professor of theology there called Lead Us Not Into Deception. 
the book had an endorsement from Bob and Gretchen Passantino. It had a, a front page endorsement from Walter Martin, I believe himself. It had been sold for from CRI. It was an expose of youth with emissions, finite God teaching. So this is like open theism before open theism existed. And so CRI had been selling this expose, but all of a sudden we stopped selling it. So this is about 1991. And this is, of course, before the days of caller ID. So you could, you know, crank call anybody you wanted as a kid and get away with it because nobody knew where you were calling from, right? So when I got home, I called up Alan Gomes and I said, uh, Dr. Gomes, I said, you don't know who I am. I said, but I work at CRI. And I can't tell you who I am, but I want to know, is YWAM still teaching the finite God doctrine? And he said, yes. I said, has anything changed substantially with youth of the mission? Have they sat down to talk with you? Have you they negotiated their position, any kind of movement? He says, no. I said, do you know why they pulled the book? And he says, no. And this was done uh, in, in a number of other cases where things, materials would be pulled, which is why I am so very suspicious that the deal, uh, the change in position of CRI on Witness Lee in the local church reeks to high heaven. And that's me. far more recent, too. Yeah, that's very recent. On top of that, with Witness Lee in the local church, one of the CRI board members self-confessively has been says that he's been going to the local church for multiple years. Well, how can you be an impartial judge of a group when one of your board members is a de facto member of the church that you're evaluating? I mean, that's a direct conflict of interest. Well, I hate to sound like a cliche, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And I don't have hard evidence for this at all, Perry, but there's anecdotal evidence all over the Internet from people who belong to the Worldwide Church of God and belong to it in the 90s when... Uh, CRI decided to remove its cult label. You know, the people who were actually on the ground in the Worldwide Church of God said, no, the theology hasn't changed at all. Joseph Tkach is either pulling the wool over Hannah Graff's eyes or something more nefarious is going on. So Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that case. I do know about Set Free, and I do know about some of these other cases. And I do know I was not alone in this, and, and really what people have to understand is we were all loyal to CRI. We all sacrificed to financially and career-wise to work there because we believed in its mission. We didn't go there to try and find problems. We, we didn't complain because we were fired. We were whistleblowers within the organization. So these kinds of problems are made, are you know, brought to light by people from every level of the organization, right? From the shipping department all the way up to, to board members, uh, to members of the Martin family. Darlene Martin served on the board for a number of years before Hank booted her off the board. And we all have the same kind of story. And the only thing that's constant is Hanegraaff. The couplet that Johann Tetzel used to like to sing was, When the groschen in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I guess we can say in this case, the cult from cult status springs. Yeah, something definitely like that, uh, I think, has been going on. And that's really why it's the most serious problem, because CRI was set up to expose and to inform the public of what was actually inside the can of whatever it is they were buying. 
there's a big parallel between Money Man Anagraph and many of the other phony but filthy rich TV preachers out there in the world. Namely, lots of money, big salaries, fancy cars, expensive houses, and other amenities. Let's see how gullible Hanegraaff is when he is interviewing Robert Morey about Morey's book, The Islamic Invasion, on the Bible Answer Man broadcast. As we begin, let's just take a few quotes from these two apologists for the 21st century, Hank Hanegraaff and Bob Morey. As the viewers can see, quote, I myself am a plain old layman. He, Walter Martin, asked me to become president of the Christian Research Institute, end quote. That's Hanegraaff from the Bible Answer Man radio show on November the 15th, 1993. Now a quote from Maury here, quote, I'm a professional apologist as opposed to a lay apologist, end quote. Maury from In Defense of the Faith, March 19th, 1994. Once again, Maury says, quote, folks, I love Walter Martin. He is a man that God used. God uses crooked sticks to draw a straight line. That's from Maury in his Truth Seekers radio show, January 15, 1994. Quote, ask the critical questions. Where is your documentation? A lot of times what happens with these conspiracy theories is that we find out that there is a story told by someone who is supposedly reliable. You find out when you check it out that it's a rumor, sensationalistic, end quote. That's from Hanegraaff's Bible Answer Man show of November 15, 1993. And looking at some other quotes here, mainly from uh, Robert Morey, he says, quote, if there's one problem to which we must trace back the present stupidity, absurdity, and craziness is the fact of gullibility, which I call gulpability. Christians are gulping down all this stuff. They never stop to test it. They just gulp it down like dogs. In result, they are believing the most absurd, crazy, insane things. End quote. That's from Maury as a guest on the Bible Answer Man from January the 7th, 1992. Quote, when someone says one thing and does another, you don't say, well, we just have to be uncritical and just gulp everything down. No, you say that guy is a liar. He says he's a Christian. That guy's a liar. That came from Maury on the Bible Answer Man radio broadcast of January 28, 1992. Quote, well, they're, talking about Christians, being gullible. And they're not asking, who is this woman? What is her organization? What is her evidence? They're just gullible. People who like conspiracy theories, you know. It's this kind of stupidity. It's stupidity, brother. It's stupid. And it's this kind of stupidity that just embarrasses me, embarrasses the Lord that these people in the name of Christ would say such insane things. They never give you the address. They don't give you exact dates. Well, did you hear? And then people just grab it and they run. They love to believe that conspiracy. That's coming from Bob Morey, Truth Seekers Radio, February the 19th, 1994. Now, with all that said, let's find out how gullible and stupid 
Maury and Hanegraaff think their radio listeners really are. Welcome to Tales of the Strange and Weird. We're going to take an analysis of Truth Seeker Bob audio cassettes and listen to some choice excerpts. Since many things Truth Seeker Bob says are confused and inaccurate, does this relate to his written research? The answer is yes. What you're about to hear is from the Bible Answer Man broadcast put out by the Christian Research Institute, dated August the 6th, 1991, catalog number J1, and also J3. You'll hear two separate broadcasts given during 1991. And you need stuff that's readable, and this is why I put together this book on Islam. It took me five years. Hmm. It's not a six-months wonder. I had to read uh, the type of research I do, every English title on Islam in the Library of Congress. And now, J3. But this is the reason I wrote my new book, Islam Unveiled. It took me five years. I studied every uh, book uh, on the subject in, the, in English in the Library of Congress, then went to Georgetown University, Temple University, New York City University. Uh, the listeners should be informed here that Islam Unveiled was the name of Maury's Islamic invasion before Harvest House took over the contract for it and changed the name of Maury's book from Islam Unveiled to Islamic Invasion. So he's basically saying Islamic invasion took five years of, quote, research, end quote. Maury's reference to having read every English title in the Library of Congress. It's interesting that if you look at the March-April 1992 Christian Research Newsletter where they interview Truth Seeker Bob, Truth Seeker Bob in this printed interview says that he had read every book in the Library of Congress on Islam. He doesn't mention English titles here, and there are other uh, references to this uh, as well that we won't go into at this moment, but uh, if the listener were to call the Library of Congress, the phone number is area code 202-707-5000, and the Library of Congress reference number is 202-707-5522. They can inquire of a information specialist or a reference worker about the numbers of titles on Islam in the Library of Congress. In fact, the total number of titles is 7,212 as of the date of this recording, and the English titles, as revealed by a Library of Congress information specialist at the time of this recording, uh, using an incomplete computer search of English titles was 1,951 titles for the post-1968 books on Islam. Now, there would be more titles uh, before 1968, but as stated by the information specialist, uh, these titles aren't available, so the number of English titles is actually greater than 1951. Let's now continue listening to the Bible Answer Man, where True Seeker Bob is the guest of Hank Hanegraaff, president of Christian Research Institute. This show is from April 27, 1992, REF catalog J20. And here 
with Maury sitting right next to him, Hanegraaff gives a tremendous plug for Maury's Islamic Invasion book. And suddenly, the number of years of research that have gone into Maury's Islam book goes from five years to ten years. In studio, you've been listening to Dr. Robert Morey, his book, The Islamic Invasion. It's available to you as radio offer number 222. It's a suggested donation of $15 or more. Again, The Islamic Invasion by Dr. Robert A. Morey. Ten years of research have gone into this book, including Morey reading every single book in the Library of Congress on the subject of Islam. After you read it, you'll not only understand Islam and its uh, 800 million followers, you're going to understand how to reach them and how to refute this false religion. And Here now again, another Bible Answer Man broadcast with Maury sitting right next to Hank Hanegraaff. This one coming from April 28, 1992. Islamic Invasion by Robert A. Maury. Ten years of research have gone into the book, including reading every book in the Library of Congress on the subject of Islam. And I'll tell you, folks, that's no small feat. You're able to... Uh, live off of the sweat of a scholar who has cloistered himself in the Library of Congress, studied to show himself approved, taken the nuggets, distilled them in such a way that you can understand it, internalize it, and thus apply it. In other words, touch the lives of other people. After reading this book, you're not only going to understand Islam and its 800 million followers, you're going to be able to understand how to reach them. And that's the bottom line, how to reach them and how to refute the false religion. Folks, it's time to equip yourself. If not now, when? We're at a time where we have stuck our heads in the sand as Christians. We have not equipped ourselves. We are Once again, we hear about the ten years of research and the sweat of a scholar reading all these books in the Library of Congress. But I see, you seem to go against the, the grain of the, from what I've heard. Yeah, I'll make it very, very simple. When I was a student at Westminster, you must understand that God gifted me to be a profound reader. I mean, I'm talking 20 books an hour, 25 books an hour, where I literally would go and, and, and find such things. Robert Morey, who has claimed in his ministry mailings that he held a degree from Faith Theological Seminary, Juranwala, Pakistan, has had this supposed degree revoked by the same institute. The certificate of cancellation is seen here, and the school can be contacted for more information. Well, when it comes to doing research, how does True Seeker Bob evaluate a book? Let's find out. As with any cultic mentality, they claim everybody and his uncle. Uh, in, in regards to Fudge, he tried to sue me. I called his book Argumentum ad Ignorantium because he claimed that no one had ever dealt with the issue. And I looked in his bibliography. He had never read Walter Martin. He had never read Henry Buse. He had never read Lorraine Bent. He never read anybody. Well, he did no research. Hence, his argument is based on sheer, unmitigated ignorance. Using True Seeker Bob's own standards for judging the quality of research for a book, how does Maury's book on Islam stack up? How many books on Islam has True Seeker Bob read according to his own bibliography? His bibliography lists 130 titles. Many of these include 
standard references such as the Encyclopedia Britannica, and tracts from the American Tract Society. Well, he did no research. Hence, his argument is based on sheer, unmitigated ignorance. Is this what True Seeker Bob would say about his own book based on his own standards of judging research? The Library of Congress lists over 7,000 books on the subject of Islam and almost 2,000 titles, if not more, of English titles on Islam in the Library of Congress. Yet, Maury's own bibliography lists only 130 titles. He never read anybody. Well, he did no research. Based on Truth Seeker Bob's small bibliography, by comparison to all the books available on Islam, how many books and writings does T.S. Bob list in his bibliography that are written from a pro-Islam point of view, i.e., books by Muslim scholars and apologists? If he lists any at all, do these represent the sum total of all Muslim scholarship available? Is it possible that T.S. Bob had, quote, never read, end quote, certain Muslim writers, and, quote, hence his argument is based on sheer unmitigated ignorance, end quote. And uh, about Matter 30 fact, years in grace, and I, I have about 30 books, and I do a book a year. For every year of grace when I was born again, I think that's important. When it comes to the Mormons, I have the book, How to Answer Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses. You brought it up, Lori. I wrote a book, How to Answer Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> yeah. No, I, having written 30 books and been involved in the apologetics for 30 years. The listener just heard True Seeker Bob on his True Seekers radio shows. Two excerpts, in fact. One from November 13, 1993 and the other one from April the 30th, 1994. In both cases, True Seeker Bob claims having written 30 books. However, at the time of these recordings, his Research and Education Foundation comprehensive catalog listed only 17 titles. The question then needs to be asked, do small pamphlet-sized booklets count as, quote, books? What about unedited manuscripts that no one wants to print or publish? What constitutes a book? Of course we know Truth Seeker Bob would never exaggerate or sensationalize something. Dr. Mori, uh, weren't you uh, attacked or almost attacked by a Muslim mob at one time? Uh, yeah, well, giving a lecture? I was speaking at a major university in academic lecture and about 400 Arab Muslims stormed the platform. I had two bodyguards and I had to be rustled out a side entrance. Uh, thankfully no one was hurt, emotions were high, and uh, they chanted in Arabic, they got upset, and what frightened me, uh, they accused me of being a an Israeli, not an American, and that I was a member of the Mossad, that is the CIA of the Israeli nation, which means there would be open hunting season on old Mori here. And let me, in case anyone's listening, Hank, be assured I'm not an Israeli and I'm not a member of the Mossad. <laughs> These sensationalistic statements by Truth Seeker Bob were spoken on the Bible Answer Man broadcast of April 28, 1992 with Hank Hanegraaff. Notice these two pictures. One's just a little closer up shot of the other. This is the scene on October 3, 1991 at Jester Center Auditorium at the University of Texas campus immediately following Maury's Islam lecture. Notice three groups of students down on the floor discussing with each other. 
Notice now the number up on the platform where Mori is. Are there 400 Arab Muslims storming the platform? Unfortunately, the photo is not clear, but still the viewer can discern a certain number. Now let's look at the second picture at the bottom. A closer view of the, quote, 400 Arab Muslims, end quote, who, quote, stormed the platform, end quote. Here we see Mori surrounded by these hostile Arabs. How many can be counted here? This photo was taken moments after the above photo. In fact, many in this scene are not Arabs at all, and many are actually Christians, i.e., the two white men to the right behind Mori. The tall one is Christian apologist David Krill. Does this look like a violent situation? And now let's hear a few more quotes from True Seeker Bob. Because there are people like that who, if they really were honest and they really wanted to know the truth, they would be willing to look at this. And there's a lot of liars out here. And Jesus said, be not deceived. There are lots of false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. And there's a lot of people who write a lot of books who lie about a lot of things. I'm just saying that I don't care if they're so-called Christian writers or non-Christian writers. Try to check it out. That is, men who fear God. Therefore, they, they will be trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. I didn't have any previous training, but if a sucker can be taken once, he can be taken several times. But I see, you seem to go against uh, the grain of the, from what I've heard. Yeah, I'll make it very, very simple. When I was a student at Westminster, you must understand that God gifted me to be a profound reader. I mean, I'm talking 20 books an hour, 25 books an hour, where I literally would go and, and, and find such things. A few weeks ago, you were mobbed in Texas, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, there I was speaking at University of Texas Austin on why I'm not a Muslim, and I was invited to give the lecture. It's an academic setting. This is the largest university in the United States. I think they have 75,000 students. Wow. And uh, it's a very wealthy school with the uh, Texas oil money and whatnot, the Texas uh, Longhorn, for those who are football fans. And... Uh, the way it worked out, almost 400 Muslims showed up, and these were Arab Muslim, not so much black Muslim, the Farrakhan kind. And to, to put it long and short, I gave my lecture, and then instead of giving me questions, they rioted. This is from yet another radio show entitled Perspective on WGSL 91 FM with Kevin Johnson of Mount Carmel Outreach. And, of course, here, True Seeker Bob makes his claim about 400 Muslims and a riot taking place, and even makes some statements about the University of Texas having 75,000 students and so forth. All of these things, the 400 Muslim students, the riot, and the 75,000 students at the University of Texas are false. And once again, the listener is invited to get the research paper Islam Bob, and they will see pictures immediately following the lecture that Maury gave, and they will find out that True Seeker Bob is indeed making up tales to sensationalize his lecture. 
Well, what I'm simply saying is that Christian scholars, uh, above and beyond anyone else, should be they should be utterly dedicated to telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help them God. Not hype for the sake of hype. Not sensationalism, not myths, not legends, uh, not statements uh, that cannot be documented, wild statements, for example. You're not doing Christianity a favor by spreading rumors that have no basis in reality. I'm simply and trying to say, look, let's demythologize the situation. That is, take away the myths, the legends, the frauds. Let's get down to reality, and let's just stop pretending. You've got to understand, these people are simply lying. It's hype, and they're simply trying to sell books. Mm -hmm. The previous was True Seeker Bob speaking on the Bible Answer Man radio show of August 8, 1991, where he explains why people sensationalize, lie, and hype certain things. Bob Morey often makes exaggerated or sensationalistic claims to embellish his own work. In the case of his Islamic book, the book entitled Islamic Invasion, he claimed that he read every book in the Library of Congress on the subject of Islam. Now, uh, I, Larry Wessels, decided to investigate that claim by calling the Library of Congress and asking them about this. And uh, another subject heading maybe Jewish-Arab relations, um, economic development, dash dash religious aspects, dash dash Islam. So they still have got the Islam as their subject heading, but some of them may not. So some of them may be their main primary subject entry may be economics, dash dash religious aspects, dash dash Islam. So it's still about Islam. Okay, I see. 5,569 books published since 1968 on the subject of Islam. Well, that would just be wrong for me to say that. I just can't, you can't say a specific number because of these things you've just been describing to me. Right. Uh, so, if someone were to say he's read every single title on the, in English on the, the topic of Islam, how would he possibly be able to do that if he were going there? Would, is that possible to do it if you were actually there, a physical person? I mean, that seems like that would take an awfully long time because of the complexity you just described. Right. I, I would say that that would be a very um, highly unlikely that that, that, that occurrence could, could, you know, have that back in the you, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that was that just something that you, you, popped, you, you picked out of the air when you said 7,000? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that was not. There, uh, from your computer record, you were saying that there's like 7,000 titles. Right. What I did is I just went ahead and searched Islam. I browsed Islam as a subject, and I've got 5,569 with the subject of Islam post-1968, 1,643 pre-1968. Oh. And all these are listed in the Library of Congress, but as you described, the, complex, the complexity level, which could be across different you know, economics or whatever. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm starting to see the situation here, but quite clearly. <laughs> it should also be noticed, in reference to the Library of Congress, that a person can only check out one book at a time, according to the rules of the Library of Congress. 
Therefore, when Maury claims that he can read 20 to 25 books an hour, it would be impossible to fulfill this scenario of his in light of the rules of the Library of Congress to where you can only check out one book at a time. Now, let's see what Robert Morey really thinks of Hank Hanegraaff. I heard you say you're a good friend of Walter Martin's, <clears throat> and he's For a good friend of Christianity. Years. Yes, 27 I, years. I just wondered if you would comment on what do you think the direction of his organization is now, and I was just saying up and let you comment on it. Well, thank you very much. Well, since I'm not a member of CRI, I really can't tell you the direction. Um, the head of it, um, in his own background, uh, didn't get beyond high school, so we're not dealing with someone who knows Greek or Hebrew or theology or philosophy or no academic credentials, but he's just released a book attacking primarily Benny Hinn and some of the blabbit grabbit preachers. Uh, there was a discussion between Benny Hinn and Hank Hanegraaff as a result of that. You're talking about Hank Hanegraaff. Yes. That clip came from the Central Florida Forum radio program hosted by Reverend George Crossley circa 1993. And the next clip you're going to hear is from In Defense of the Faith, another radio program dated March 19, 1994. Well, it's just simply, I mean, you're dealing with people like Hank Hanegraaff, uh, just a high school diploma, no philosophy, no theology, no Greek, no Hebrew. Um, he doesn't know any better. Uh, so he thinks that to deny the foreknowledge of God is perfectly within evangelical or Christian theology. It's simply abysmal ignorance, okay. and you just have to simply uh, pity such a man for making such statements. This leads us to the question, what does Hank Hanegraaff and his CRI staff think of truth seeker Bob and his scholarship? The following clip is from the Bible Answer Man program from February 18, 1993. There's a uh, well-respected theologian that you guys also like also that said that uh, he made an exclusive investigative special report that reveals the heretical nature of Boyd's theology. And I don't know what that means. I sent for that. Well, anybody that would say that is probably not someone that we would recommend. Uh, well, I'm surprised, brother. I don't, you, you want me to mention his name on the air? I don't really care. It doesn't make any difference to me. But I'm just saying that uh, uh, someone that uh, does that uh, has to be someone that is not able to rightly divide uh, what is being written in this book, Oneness, Pentecostals, and the Trinity. We've had it gone over not only internally by our research staff, but also uh, uh, many other outside theologians who are at the very top of their field, orthodox biblical Christians, they don't find any problems with it. There is one man, someone that we would not recommend at all, who uh, did something which you should never do, even if you're dealing with the cultist, and that is you should never take them out of context. This particular individual took Gregory Boyd out of context over 22 times and had him say the exact opposite in some cases of what he actually said. This is not the kind of scholarship that we would recommend in any way. It's not scholarship. Uh, this, this was a, a terrible situation of uh, really uh, taking things and putting them in a different context in which they did not belong. Uh, Robert Bowman is a, is a real scholar when it comes to the area of Jehovah's Witnesses, when it comes to the area of Oneness Pentecostalism. He's gone over this book and given it not only a clean bill of health, 
but says that it is, a, it is an excellent book. Bob and Gretchen Passantino have worked in the area of cults for over 20 years. Right. Uh, they give it. Uh, a thumbs up. Okay. This book, this book is a very fine tool, and the person who has uh, ridiculed it, uh, in my opinion, has clearly shown himself not to be a scholar in these areas. Uh, because uh, uh, again, the, the gentleman that I that I, that I have is the thing here, and he's a well-respected theologian, and he's very, very. I mean, and uh, I'm sure you know. Well, I don't know how you know he's a well-respected theologian, uh, uh, but uh, okay, it, you, okay, uh, well. Uh, Maybe I, sh I shouldn't read it, but maybe I should read it on the air. And to say, to, okay, so I don't know who wrote this this thing here, but the the uh, the newsletter is the researcher. Okay, and it says here it says in an exclusive investigative special report, Dr. Mori, Dr. Robert Mori, reveals the heretical nature of voice theology. And I don't know if Dr. Robert Mori wrote this or someone else uh, from his staff wrote this. Well, we should we will hope and pray that he did not uh, pen those words himself, because it is one of the. Uh, uh, as Robert Bowman has uh, articulated, one of the worst pieces of scholarship that we have seen. In fact, I think, Ken, you made the statement that you have been in countercult ministry for many, many years. You've taught comparative uh, uh, religions uh, on, a, on a college level, university level, and uh, you've never seen anything that was as shoddy from a, uh, from a scholarship uh, point of view. So it, it, it's probably the worst thing we've ever seen. Uh, I was literally shocked when I saw how this individual misrepresented another Christian's work. It was uh, literally shocking. And uh, again, uh, Greg Boyd, you know, Greg Boyd's come a long way. He used to be a member of the United Pentecostal Church. He is a person that uh, attended Princeton Seminary, and uh, now he has become a, a fine Christian man, uh, a man who has a great love for the gospel. And even if he was a heretic, that's one thing, but don't take him out of context. That's, That's right. dishonest and not very scholarly. That's about all we'll say about it. We don't want to dignify it with any more airtime. Obviously, Hank Hanegraaff and his CRI staff do not think much of Truth Seeker Bob and his scholarship. It is interesting to see Hanegraaff blasting Maury for exposing Hanegraaff's endorsement of Gregory Boyd, who is an advocate of open theism, which is a blatant heresy. For more on open theism, see our video, Unpopular Bible Doctrines number 15, The Immutability of God, that's unchangeableness, versus open theism heresies on YouTube. Question, what is open theism? Gregory Boyd, author of the Hank Hanegraaff endorsed book, Oneness Pentecostals and the Trinity, published in 1992, Boyd also published another book called Trinity and Process that same year. Is an open theist. Boyd was a professor of theology at Bethel University for 16 years before he resigned after there was a dispute between himself and some of the professors there over his open theism advocacy. Craig Boyd now teaches at Bethel University on an adjunct basis. Boyd is also known as one of the leading supporters of open theism, which he explores in the book, God of the Possible, published in 2000. In essence, open theism is the view that the future is partly open and therefore known to God partly as a realm of possibilities. Boyd was raised a Roman Catholic, later became an atheist, 
then converted to oneness Pentecostalism, and then evolved into an open theist. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Answer, open theism, also known as openness theology, the openness of God, and free will theism, is an attempt to explain the foreknowledge of God in relationship to the free will of man, thus attempting to give fallen sinful man a way to overcome the sovereignty of God in determining the future. The argument of open theism is essentially this. Human beings are truly free. If God absolutely knew the future, human beings could not truly be free. Therefore, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. Open theism holds that the future is not knowable. Therefore, God knows everything that can be known, but he does not know the future. The Wikipedia entry for open theism states, quote, while this argument has historically been used by some open theists, currently most open theists affirm that God knows the future perfectly, but simply deny God believes the future is fixed, end quote. Open theism bases these beliefs on scripture passages which describe God changing his mind or being surprised or seeming to gain knowledge as found in Genesis 6, 6, Genesis 22, 12, Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, Jonah 3, 10. In light of the many other scriptures that declare God's knowledge of the future, these scriptures should be understood as God describing himself in ways that we can understand. God knows what our actions and decisions will be, but he changes his mind in regard to his actions based on our actions. God's disappointment at the wickedness of humanity does not mean he was not aware it would occur. In contradiction to open theism, Psalm 139.4 and verse 16 state, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. O Lord, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. End quote. Isaiah 46.11 says, quote, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. End quote. That's God talking there. There are many verses such as these throughout the Bible. How could God predict intricate details in the Old Testament about people, places, and events if he does not know the future? How could God in any manner guarantee our eternal salvation if he does not know what the future holds, how could the hundreds of Old Testament Bible prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah not come to pass without God controlling the future? See our videos, Supernatural Bible Prophecy Concerning Jesus the Jewish Messiah, Part 1 and Part 2, for more on this. But I'm, I'm setting a table here before we get into all these prophecies, because... This stuff uh, really bears out scientifically when it comes to probability ratios. Okay, after examining eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. To illustrate how large the number 10 to the 17th is, a figure with 17 zeros after it, Stoner gave this illustration. Imagine 
covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars to a level of two feet deep. The total number of silver dollars needed to cover the whole state would be 10 to the 17th power. Now, choose just one of those silver dollars, mark it, and drop it from an airplane. Then, thoroughly stir all the silver dollars all over the state. When that has been done, blindfold one man, tell him he can travel wherever he wishes in the state of Texas. But sometime he must stop, reach down into the two feet of silver dollars and try to pull up that one specific silver dollar that has been marked. Now, the chance of his finding that one silver dollar in the state of Texas will be the chance the prophets had for eight of their prophecies coming true in any one man in the future. In financial terms, is there anyone who would not invest in a financial venture if the chance of failure were 1 in 10 to the 17th power? This is the kind of sure investment we are offered by God for belief in His Messiah. Ultimately, open theism fails in that it attempts to explain the unexplainable, the relationship between God's foreknowledge and man's free will. Open theism fails in that it rejects God's true omniscience and sovereignty. God must be understood through faith, for, quote, without faith it is impossible to please God, end quote. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6a. Open theism is therefore not scriptural. It is simply another way for finite man to try to understand an infinite God. Open theism should be rejected by followers of Christ. While open theism is an explanation for the relationship between God's foreknowledge and human free will, it is not the biblical explanation at all. Recommended resource, No Other God, a response to open theism by John Frame. The Walid Nasser critique of Maury's book, The Islamic Invasion. The following is the cover letter that accompanied Walid Nasser's critique of Robert Maury's Islamic Invasion. Walid Nasser, Master of Divinity, International Evangelist and Teacher, P.O. Box 1386-4, Tampa, Florida, 33681-3864, USA. May 6, 1997. Reverend Larry Wessels, P.O. Box 1444-41, Austin, Texas, 78714. Dear Larry, thanks for sending me the T.S. Bob update reports. I have made a copy of my appendix from my book of my critique of Robert Morey's book on Islam, which I found very sensationalized, distasteful, and most unscholarly. You have my permission to use excerpts and quotations from it if you need to do that. But please know that my book has copyright, and this is a part of it as an appendix. The book is not yet available in the U.S., and we are about to have the first printing of it made soon. It was published in Nigeria earlier, but not the U.S., as I use it for a manual to train nationals on how to reach Muslims as part of my vision to raise up an army of 10,000 nationals equipped to reach the Muslim masses of their nations through my MATS, that's Muslim Awareness and Training Seminar. So far, 
We have trained 200 in Australia, 900 in Nigeria, and coming up in August, over 4,000 in Kenya, then 500 in India in November. Praise the Lord. I am more interested in reaching the Muslims than in, in unveiling and exposing Islam. I am enclosing two reports of our ministry to better acquaint you with it. If you do know of any missions-minded U.S. churches with a real interest in reaching Muslims worldwide, I would appreciate your recommendation of our ministry to them. To raise up an army of trained and equipped nationals reaching Muslims requires an army of missions-minded churches here at home. By the way, what happened to Robert Morey? Is he still doing the same thing, especially since your revelations of his lack of accuracy and scholarship? Also, I think sending Al Crestra a tape would be beneficial. Al is very careful and scholarly, but I guess he was just taken by Maury's advertisements of himself. Be blessed for the untold multitudes, Waleed Nasser. Appendix D. This coming from Waleed Nasser's book. The appendix is entitled Misconceptions, Misrepresentations, and Harmful Teachings of Some, Quote, Experts, End Quote. Waleed Nasser, P.O. Box 13864, Tampa, Florida, 33681, copyright 1997. Lots of books have been written recently about Islam by mostly Western writers who are acknowledged as experts on Islam. Others are busy conducting radio and television interviews, setting up panels, and even debates about Islam without stopping to weigh their own knowledge, background, expertise, credentials, and preparedness on the subject. Consequently, we have an avalanche of misconceptions, misrepresentations, and harmful teachings being propagated to Christians about Islam under the guise of training for enlightenment and outreach. Most of these, quote, experts, end quote, really became experts by consulting a book or two on Islam by other Western writers without themselves having a decent knowledge of Islam, its history, beliefs, practices, and above all, its language, Arabic, the language of its own sacred scripture, the Quran. I recently had the chance to hear one such, quote, expert, end quote, on an interview on a local Christian station. I was stunned and shocked by both the content and attitude of what he had to say. I could hardly believe my ears. There he was employing all kinds of misrepresentations of Islam, Muhammad, and the Quran, when all the while he presented himself as one exposing the truth in order to win Muslims and educate Christians. He made false and ignorant accusations and tried to justify them by misquoting texts from the Quran, quoting others without regard to their context, and bluntly misrepresenting and distorting others still. He did the same to the theology of Islam, its history, and its language of Arabic. So I got his book and found it to be full of the same errors, if not worse, that I heard him make on radio. I will proceed to list some of his major misrepresentations.
and errors first. Then I will list some errors of another book by another author, trusting that they will act as models for all misrepresentations, misconceptions, and harmful teachings out there so that you as a Christian worker can know what to avoid. Since this work has to do with what they wrote and not with who they are, I will not mention the names of the authors, but I will mention the titles of the two books. The first is The Islamic Invasion, Confronting the World's Fastest Growing Religion. We note the following six different types of blunders in that work. Ignorance of the teachings of Islam. One, on dietary laws. On page 28 of his book, the author claims that, and of course he's talking here about Robert Morey, that, quote, what Muhammad ate and did not eat is made to be a divine law for all people, end quote. Although Islam, like Judaism, prohibits certain foods based on uncleanness, it does not make what Muhammad ate as a divine law for all people. The prohibition has to do with uncleanness and not Muhammad's taste, and there is no forcing the foods upon people in Islam. Besides, if that were true, then Muslims everywhere would have to eat dates by law since Muhammad liked dates. Two, on the concept of jihad. Now, what I want viewers hearing this to see is the page and the information that Waleed Nasser has provided. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all, but uh, the viewer at home can freeze frame the picture and uh, read it for themselves in its entirety and then proceed from there. So, point number three, the origin of the Kaaba. And you can see the information there. Freeze frame it as necessary. Point four, the 99 names of God. And we have Waleed's information about that right there. Now, number two, ignorance of the Quran. On the call of Muhammad, that's point one. And you have the information provided there. Point two, on marriage and Muhammad. You have your information provided there. Point three, on relationship with the New Testament. You have the information provided there. Now going down to Roman numeral three, ignorance of Islamic history. Now these are fairly fascinating when it concerns Maury's book. Uh, so let's look at this in more detail. Point one, on Muhammad's grandfather, the author, that's Robert Morey, tries to show that Muhammad was completely ineffective with those who knew him best, namely his family. He mentions that his own grandfather lived and died a pagan and never embraced Islam, page 70. This shows the gross ignorance of Islamic history by the author. When Muhammad's grandfather died, Muhammad was only an eight-year-old boy, and his preaching of Islam did not begin until he was 40 years old. So when his grandfather died, he could not have become a Muslim because there was no Islam yet. Number two, on Islamic names, the author, that's Mori, makes Yehud to be the name of an Islamic army general instead of the name of the slopes below Mount Yehud, some three miles north of Medina, where one of the battles of Islam was fought, and later came to be known as the Battle of Yehud. 
The author says, quote, the Meccans had finally decided that Muhammad was a serious threat and approached his band with a large army headed by Yahud. That's from Mori's book, page 83. The Muslims were headed by Muhammad Mustafa and the Meccans by Abu Sufyan. But the name of the place they fought at was Yahud. This is enough to show how little this, quote, expert, end quote, on Islam really knows. Now, Roman numeral four, misconceptions and misrepresentations. On the understanding of Allah, that's point one. Over and over again, the author insists that Allah of Islam is the same as the pagan moon god of the Arabs before Muhammad, pages 47 through 53. And although the pagan Arabs worship Allah as the highest god among many gods, it is not exactly fair to say that there was no progress in Muhammad's introduction of Allah as the one and only God who created the heavens and the earth and who revealed himself to the world through the Torah and the gospel. This was a marked advance over what the pagan Arabs believed. In fact, Muhammad broke all the idols of the Kaaba that the pagan Arabs worshipped. One must give credit where credit is due. Yet, of course, it was due to the influence of the Jews and Christians of Arabia that Muhammad adopted this monotheism. Next, we see point two on the understanding of the table. You can freeze frame the screen and read the information there. We look at point three on Muhammad's marriage to Zainab. Once again, the information is there. Roman numeral five, presuppositions, biases, and disparaging remarks. Number one, presupposition, Allah and the Arabic Bible. And there's plenty of information here about this. As I said, freeze frame the screen to read it all in detail. Number two, anti-Arab bias, Solomon Rushdie. You have the information there. Three, anti-Arab bias, Arab racism. Number four, Disparaging attitude, religious rituals. And finally, we have five disparaging remark, Muhammad, a child molester, and the information provided there. This is just uh, some of uh, Walid Nasser's own research, and he does speak Arabic, so he has far better understanding of Islam than Mori does. And now let's take a quick look at a debate that Mori did with a Muslim lawyer in studio. And we'll see how well Mori knows and understands Islam against this Muslim lawyer and expert on Islam. The following clip is from Mori's debate with Dr. Khalid al-Mansur, which took place in May 1994. It was a four-hour televised debate, and it was a debate that True Seeker Bob didn't want anybody to see or hear. But what you'll hear now is just a few clips from it uh, to give you an idea how these conspiracy theories of Mori and some of his other uh, Islamic apologetics uh, work out. I will swap you horror fact. stories. Here we have the Armenians, a wonderful Christian people. In come the Muslims in one of the greatest holocausts celebrated every April where they slaughtered and enslaved Armenian men, women, and children, million, village by village. Hundred million? 
Oh, what's up? Is forty million? How oh. much was it? Forty million Armenians? All together when you go through the ages starting from the first century. Is that Let me tell you. Slaughter them in the first century. No, the first century. They weren't Muslims, of, of so Islam. get your when Islam, facts correct. Right. When Islam, the Islam did not operate first, in the first no, century. No. When Islam first came into Arabia. What I'm saying is this. Wait a minute, what are you saying? I can uh, what I'm saying is this is very simple. All right. I can swap you horror story. You'll never reach a hundred million. For horror million. story. You'll never the reach Muslims have million. killed more than a hundred million, my dear friend. Where? This is name what me one mean? Muslim country. Well, in Pakistan. What consequences do you mean? Pardon me? What what consequences do you mean? Death, imprisonment. What's going on in Egypt right now? Pakistan. Two men right, just you, were murdered. You want, me to, you want me to name you some? Name me an Islamic country yeah, right. that does not I'll, have I'm Islamic law. I'm ready. Law. Sure, give it to me. Malaysia. No. Oh, me, no way. Let me finish. They have let the law. Finish. Oh, you picked the wrong one, honey. Malaysia, Indonesia, Kuwait. There's churches in Kuwait, yes. Have you seen, you don't know there are churches in Kuwait? Of course I know, but oh. I talked to the Christians who were underground yeah. because they had been told that if they openly proselytize, they will be put to death. 2,000 Christians wow. have been arrested in Saudi Arabia. Right now in Malaysia, Where? the law has been Let's go passed one at a time. that Kuwait, no Christian is allowed. In Kuwait, Kuwait, in a hotel, let me just tell you, you haven't been to Kuwait, have you? No. Well, let me tell you about it. I talked to the missionaries who have. Missionaries. I talked to a lot of missionaries, but let me talk about myself. I'm in the Sheraton Hotel, and I'm listening to Christians try to explain to me. They have a Bible in Arabic. That's right. And they call God Allah, and they tried to tell me that it would be to my advantage to convert to Christianity. That is just a fact. And then the there's a Sheraton, church. If I yeah, if I yeah, if I were I'm to convert, about, I could go down to the church and pray. If that's what I wanted to do, it's there today. There are churches in Malaysia. No. There's churches in Indonesia. You no, asked me for one, and I gave you three. No, one country. I gave you one, and, and now it was you not want true. to go. You to didn't answer it. I told you no. my experience you in Kuwait. You've never been to Kuwait. In a sh yeah, I'm talking about people who live there. Citizens, Kuwaitis. I'm in the country and here's someone sitting in Sheridan. That tells you, you're going to tell me about the populace by sitting in I'm the Sheridan? I'm telling you of a person who was proselytized. You said it couldn't happen. Was it happen. a Kuwaiti or a Westerner who was trying to witness to you? They were together. No, no. Was it a Kuwaiti I said citizen? They were together. It's a Kuwaiti and a Western Christian. In the Sheridan, in talking the Sheridan, to an American. Talking to an American. And they say it's perfect with no conflicting varied readings. Do you yes. admit that there are varied readings? I haven't found any conflicting varied readings. Well, Arthur Jeffrey, in his book, Just for Surah 2, gives 90 well, you give variant me, just readings. Well, you give me one. What do you mean, give you give one? Give me one. One conflict. You, give oh. me one. Well, if you read this particular translation the by Quran? use of... He yeah. has numerous footnotes at times. Give, give me one, not numerous. One, your best one. The best one is yes. in Surah Two. Yes. There are ninety conflicting. Give me one of them. I do not have well, Arthur Jeffrey. You can't book give one here. But because of distortions like you are describing now, I'm reading from chapter nine and verse five. Fight and slay the pagans. But what is wherever it? you find them, seize them, beleaguer them, lie in wait for them. Here's chapter uh, Surah five thirty three. But read the entire story. You will find out this is after. It is saying after they attack. Read the entire story. No. No. I beg your pardon. In Mori's book, Islamic Invasion, he makes a big deal about the moon god, Allah, and the pre-Islamic origins of Islam. 
Listen to this following quote by Maury. The original meaning of something does not necessarily indicate its meaning today. Thus, the word Easter today in 1994, to me, means a celebration of Christ's resurrection from the dead. So it doesn't matter that before the Christian era, uh, that there were those who worshipped the, you know, the festival of spring and whatnot. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, the meaning of it now, like with Christmas, is around Christ. So I think it's important that we always must remember the contemporary meaning of terms is the context of understanding. But I see, you seem to go against the, the grain of the, from what I've heard. Yeah, I'll make it very, very simple. When I was a student at Westminster, you must understand that God gifted me to be a profound reader. I mean, I'm talking 20 books an hour, 25 books an hour, where I literally would go and, and, and find such things. This is just my own humble opinion, but I think Maury should have said comic in his statement. In other words, he should have said he can read 25 comic books an hour. As we have heard in the Perry Robinson testimony, Hanegraaff covered for numerous heretical groups just because it was financially beneficial to his so-called ministry. I myself remember when Hanegraaff was covering for former members of Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God as no longer being a cult, when in fact they still were despite changing a few doctrines. Hanegraaff also went against Walter Martin's stand against the Witness Lee and the local church cultism. Listen to Walter Martin himself speak about this group at the link indicated here. Did you see the local church ad in yesterday's paper? Yeah, I did. And I've already stated my opinion on it, and I'm not going to get into it again. My opinion is unvaried. We ought to pray for the local church. We ought to pray for Witness Lee and for the people that surround him. We ought to love them for Christ's sake and avoid their teachings like the plague that it is. And we should not permit ourselves to get involved in argumentation with them. They are looking for arguments. They are dying to have me take out a half-page ad to answer their harebrained theology. And I have no intention of doing it. Just keep one thought in your mind. Every source they quote which allegedly disproves what we believe is quoted from people who disagree with them. All they've done is taken them out of context and made it look as if that's the truth. It isn't. The time will come when the truth will be known. In the meantime, Christians should just pray for them and avoid them. Witness Lee's cult will have to be judged by the Holy Spirit. I have done my job and my responsibility is finished. I have a cassette on it, some tracks on it, I've answered questions on it. Enough. Now let the Spirit of God deal with it. Here's my own position paper against Witness Lee's local church, and many of my points come from Walter's points. I've debated Witness Lee cult members on campus, in various locations, and even in their own sanctuary here in Austin in the past, and nothing has changed. By God's grace only, I was able to lead a few of Witness Lee's followers back to the God of the Scriptures. 
Freeze the screen on each page of my Witness Lee paper if you'd like to read what it says in detail. Okay, as so viewers at home can see, this is a copy of my paper called Witness Lee's Local Church versus the Sure Word. That's the Sure Word of God. And I've got a quote there from Witness Lee right underneath it. It says, To be a Christian simply means to be mingled with God, to be a God-man, end quote, from Witness Lee. And, of course, my paper here shows a brief history of where the local church came from. As we look on the next page, I go into the doctrines of the local church. And one of the major areas where Witness Lee and the local church go wrong is on the very nature of God himself. I have all the documentation there. As I've said many times, uh, viewers at home can freeze frame these pages on their screen at home and then read each page individually if they want to get all the documentation. On page three, I'm quoting Dr. Walter Martin, what he says about certain things. In fact, I owe uh, uh, Dr. Martin a lot of thanks for his research in this matter. As we go down the page, you see various things I have there. Page four is some of uh, Witness Lee's favorite arguments, his blurring of the Trinity and things of that nature. The sure word of God shows these doctrines. Now, on page five, I start out with the sure word of God shows these doctrines to be completely heretical and blasphemous. And I give the documentation there. Uh, you have Lee's doctrine of sin and Satan. And as we go on to page six, Lee's doctrine of salvation. You can see how he thinks you're supposed to be saved. Uh, Lee's doctrine of church exclusivism on page seven is shown there with footnotes and everything listed. Now, page eight, uh, as we go down, Lee's doctrine concerning Bible study and prayer and among other things. Page nine is uh, my conclusion on the map. And what I say at the beginning there is the local church is simply a group of sincere people, many of whom are immature Christians who have been misled into joining this rather vocal sect, who are polarized around Witness Lee's interpretation of the Bible. Lee, with almost papal authority, guides and directs the thinking, activity, and worship of local church membership through his many books, pamphlets, and tapes. And then I go on to state my conclusions there. And then, of course, uh, the following page, I have all my footnotes to document everything I was saying in this report, and it goes on to page 11, and then some of my other resources there. And, of course, I used to be director of Dayspring Evangelism, and you see there our old address. Way back in the day, back in the 1980s, uh, of course, we no longer have that mailing address, so don't pay any attention to it now. I'm uh, now running Christian Answers of Austin, Texas. That was sort of a, a local ministry there in Austin. Notice here this article, which is posted online, called, Is the Local Church a Cult of Christianity? Notice here what Hanegraaff says. While Hank Hanegraaff may indeed not consider the local church to be a cult in his amicus curiae, he offers the following positive commentary. From my own direct study of and interaction with the local church and living stream ministry, I have concluded that the word cult does not apply to the local church, either sociologically or theologically. While I disagree with local church leaders, as well as many other Christian leaders on secondary theological issues such as eschatology and ecclesiology, these are issues Christians can and do debate vigorously without dividing over them. Source, Hank Hanegraaff, August 7, 
2006. Hence, Hanegraaff makes it clear that he, and by extension CRI, view the local church as theologically in agreement with the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. This is a strange turn of events. After all, in a 1978 CRI statement titled The Teachings of Witness Lee in the Local Church, authored by Cal Beisner and Bob and Gretchen Passantino, they wrote, and this is under the auspices of Walter Martin, our conclusion can only be that some of the basic teachings of Witness Lee in the local church are heretical and dangerous. We urge Christians to pray for those in the local church, help them see Lee's errors, and return to the truth as it is in Jesus and the Word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet. Let us all heed the warning of God's Word in all matters. Acts chapter 20, verse 31. A number of the basic teachings of the local church are false, and it is man's carnal nature as well as Satan that breeds falsity. John 8:44. Such teachings are darkness, Ephesians 6:12, and the Christian must not walk in darkness, 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7. That source is Cal Beisner and Bob and Gretchen Passantino, the teachings of Witness Lee in the local church, Christian Research Institute statement, DL-075. Freeze the screen pages if you want to read more or look this article up online. That's of the Witness Lee and the local church religious group. Here's a video of CRI's Paul Young, the right-hand man of Hank Hanegraaff. This was recorded on August 26, 2011. The video itself is about 27 minutes and 35 seconds long. This video is a testimony of Paul Young, Chief Operating Officer of Christian Research Institute, CRI, at the recent Chinese-speaking perfecting train in New Jersey by the uh, Witness Lee Religious Group's site. Now, what's interesting about this uh, testimony of Paul Young at this Witness Lee Religious Organization meeting is that it, it turns out Paul Young who's part of CRI, which is supposed to be a counter-cult ministry, is actually part of a group that Walter Martin put in the cult category and said was very dangerous. Doctrines, particularly something close to modalism when it comes to the nature of God. Yet, here he is saying great things about this Witness Lee religious group. Let's take a look. I'm so thankful for each one of you. I am learning from you. We are learning together. And it's sad for me to report that some of my friends at the time, and also after I heard Brother Lee, told me to shun that move, that work. I am yeah. so glad that I am fellowshipping at the church in Charlotte. This is my family. You are my brothers and sisters. And every day it is getting better. What, what I did realize in becoming part of the Lord's recovery was what you win them by is what you win them to. I'm so grateful for the recovery Bible. The footnotes are gold mines. I gave her a copy of this book, The Normal Christian Life. 
But I am loving what I have discovered. And if this is more important than the cure for cancer, I have to tell everybody. Now, while I was doing this research on this, I found by watching YouTube that there was another link to this video. It's found on YouTube called Hank Hanegrass Speaks on Watchman Nee's Impact on the Western World. The description text for this video says, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man at the Christian Research Institute, speaks on June 23, 2012 at an open house event sponsored by the church in Cerritos, California. Of course, that's a Witness Lee religious group outfit. And you can see there the video of it, if you so desire. Now, looking at the church in Cerritos, the Witness Lee organization, on their site, it talks about how they welcome anyone. Now, you can see the picture of this fairly massive building, it looks like in the photo, of their church building that was dedicated and Hanegraaff helped out with as far as being there, give them a talk. And then it has some of their information there. You have a fall college conference, 2016. But as you go down the page to find out more about these guys, you see they have a big picture of one of Witness Lee's books, the Holy Word for Morning Revival. And then you also see a life study for Matthew by Witness Lee. And of course, we've already exposed all this Witness Lee stuff as being false earlier in this video. So this is, in my opinion, pretty terrible. I mean, you have the founder of Christian Research Institute, Walter Martin, exposing this group as being false and dangerous doctrines. And now you have someone like Hanegraaff who does not believe what Walter Martin believed. That's why he doesn't promote any of Walter's stuff, his books, tapes. He's thrown all of that under the bus. And now you have Hank Hanegraaff's man, Paul Young, as a member of this outfit. Amazing. As you see here, an open letter by CRI's Paul Young, he's basically defending Witness Lee and his local church against all attacks against this Witness League group. And this may be in direct reference to an open letter that we're going to show you next by a bunch of evangelical Christian scholars on the problems with Witness League's doctrinal stances on a number of issues. But anyway, one other thing I'd like to mention to the viewers here is, and this is public record information, uh, but there in North Carolina, in Union County, the tax records show a house that's jointly owned by Paul Young and also Hank Hanegraaff. Of course, as you see there, it says Hendrick Hanegraaff, and of course his wife, Catherine. Now, this house is valued at $1,122,600. And uh, you kind of wonder, it's right there in the same golf community where Hanegraaff's other house is. And for both of them to own a joint property right there in the golf course, and you can see the picture of it right there, how big it is, it, it, it's rather interesting. I wonder why they had to buy a house together. I'm just curious about that. I wasn't able to find that out. But apparently uh, they did it, and here it is. Besides all this, numerous Christian ministers, seminarians, theologians, professors, apologists have disagreed with Anagraf's protection of this Witness Lee heretical cult group 
such as can be seen here in this open letter which is posted online at http colon double slash www.open-letter.org slash a theological letter like this from dozens of Christian scholars exposes the magnitude of what kind of theological idiot Hanegraaff really is in regard to essential Bible doctrine. As the viewers at home can see, this open letter written to the leadership of Living Stream Ministry and the local churches outlines some of the essential theological differences that Orthodox Christianity has with Witness Lee's cult group. One is on the very nature of God himself, as you can see there, on the nature of God. Then we see further down the page, on the nature of humanity. And then you have the on the on the next page, on the legitimacy of evangelical churches and denominations. And then down near the bottom, on lawsuits with evangelical Christians. And then here you have all of the various signers, most of which are PhDs in their theological fields. And uh, Hanegraaff then would obviously disagree with all these people. Likewise, I found it repulsive when Hanegraaff invited the editor of the book, The Agony of Deceit, Michael Horton, onto his radio broadcast to supposedly endorse the book since Walter Martin had written a chapter for the book exposing word faith preachers. This book has been endorsed by Walter Martin, had many other notable Christian writers contributing to it as seen here, and the book was even dedicated to Walter Martin. Yet Hanegraaff, instead of endorsing the book, chose to denigrate and attack the book in unexpected ambush style with Michael Horton sitting there in the radio studio. This was one of Walter Martin's last works before his death, yet Hanegraaff, Walter's so-called, quote, hand-picked successor, end quote, as Hanegraaff claims, through the book in which it was found, under the bus. Here's a clip from one of our series of videos based on this book called Agony of the Phony Word Faith TV Preachers, number three, Real Signs and Wonders or Fake Miracles for Money, where we go through Walter Martin's chapter in this book. We have a blow-up from uh, uh, Michael's book, starting with chapter 5, Ye Shall Be As Gods, written by Walter Martin himself. And brother, what I'd like you to do is uh, maybe uh, mention some of these biblical passages that relate to this, and then uh, start uh, analyzing for our viewers uh, what we're seeing on the screen here. Well, the first comes from uh, the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden which he seems to uh, continue propagating throughout the ages. You surely will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That was the promise Satan made. And you remember Jesus Christ, the second Adam, when he is taken by Satan to a high mountaintop and tempted, he says, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. All you'll have to do, Jesus, is name it and claim it. I see. And now you get into some uh, quotes here. You got Earl Polk. Yeah, Earl the Polk, bishop. the, the, the quote-unquote bishop. bishop, Earl Polk writes, Adam and Eve were placed in the world as the seed and expression of God, just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God 
has little gods. But he says we have trouble comprehending this truth. Until we comprehend that we are little gods and we begin to act like little gods, we cannot manifest the kingdom of God. So he's teaching little gods and it takes us right back to what Satan That's said right. in Genesis 3 as we mentioned already. That's right. And now we, Tilton adds, you are a God kind of creature. Originally you were designed to be as a God in this world. And uh, to finish that quote, Man was created and designed by God to be the God of this world. Of course, man forfeited this dominion to Satan who became the God of this world. Kenneth Copeland adds, Man had total authority to rule as God over every living creature on earth and he was to rule by speaking words. His words would carry the power and anointing of God that was in him from the time he was first created. I see. See, that's the point that you speak, you rule by speaking words. As God said, let there be light, and there was light. Mm -hmm. We're to, we are now gods, and so we can do the same thing. We can speak things into existence. Or command things That's into right. existence. Pat Robertson, in fact, uh, makes that very comment uh, when he tells us uh, exactly how we're to call things uh, into existence. He says, many Christians ha believe and teach that you have to pray for things to happen. Robertson says, no, you don't pray for things to happen. You command things. It's the spoken word. He says, therefore, you must command the money to come to you. And why did Hanegraaff refuse to endorse the book, The Agony of the Sea? Hanegraaff argued that Pat Robertson should not have been attacked in the book. Why would Hanegraaff do that unless he might have felt he could have derived some sort of financial benefit from leaving Robertson alone? Or he needed an excuse to come up with his own book which would later be called Christianity in Crisis, which was mainly written and researched by his brow-beaten staffers. Anyone looking seriously at Pat Robertson knows he's just another phony TV preacher and false prophet. Here's some research material on Pat Robertson. Those who want to can freeze frame each individual page if they want to read all the material that's on each page. I'm just going to read some of it. For instance, down here, each year Robertson takes to the airways with something he calls words of knowledge, predictions that he says come from God. Here are a few of the hundreds of revelations from God Robertson claims to have received as he begs for money from his supporters. 1980, Robertson predicted that the USSR would invade the Middle East. 1982 and 1984, Robertson predicted global economic collapse and that the USSR would invade Israel, control all the oil in the Middle East, and foul up the world economy. 1988, Robertson said God told him to run for President of the United States. Robertson did run for President and failed miserably. Apparently, God did not tell him to win. 1996, God told Robertson that Bill Clinton would not be elected for a second term. He also said that a terrorist with a nuclear weapon would strike within the United States. 1998, Robertson said God would strike the United States with tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, and maybe even a meteor due to Orlando, Florida's city council voting to fly rainbow flags during a gay pride celebration. Orlando was never hit, though Virginia Beach, Robertson's home, was. 2005, Robertson said God told him that George W. Bush would pass Social Security reform, tax reform, and that the Supreme Court would end up packed with conservative judges. 
He also said there would be a wide-scale conversion of Muslims to Christianity. 2006, Robertson said God told him that tsunamis would ravage the coast of the United States. 2007, Robert predicted that there would be a massive terrorist event aimed at the United States which would result in the mass killing during the second half of the year. Quote, the Lord didn't say nuclear, but I do believe it'll be something like that. There'll be a mass killing, probably millions of people, major cities injured, end quote, Robertson said. 2012, Robertson said God told him who would win the presidential election that year, but he would not tell. However, he later said, I won't get into great detail about elections, but I sure did miss it, end quote. Robertson also said that 2012 would bring about a collapse of the American economy. This information came only after a question-and-answer session with God that included Robertson asking if the disaster would be the result of an EMP blast or a Mayan galaxy alignment, all of which God took a pass on. 2013, for this year, Robertson revisited some older financial themes again, saying that a financial reckoning is coming. Debts called in, money devalued, people on fixed incomes will suffer. Creditors will seize assets to pay back debts. And of course, all these things are a violation, particularly of Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. But if you want to see even more crazy and wild stuff that uh, Pat Robertson has been involved in, besides his phony, baloney, word-faith uh, teachings that Walter Martin and others blasted in the book, The Agony of Deceit, just read on from some of this. Hanegraaff became an expert at hiding Walter Martin's work on any subject from public view if Hanegraaff did not agree with Walter's position. The classic example of this is Hanegraaff pretending that Walter Martin never wrote a booklet on Roman Catholicism. Here it is called The Roman Catholic Church in History, written in 1960. What ought our attitude to be? It ought to be an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of joy, because God has delivered us from this system into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. We are not the descendants of this papacy, nor do we wish to be. We do not wish its sacraments. We do not wish its dogmas. We worship only Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, Redeemer and Savior of lost men. We reject a corrupt church, a backslidden church, an apostate church, and reach out to her people with the love of Christ. Holding forth Holy Scripture, as Strossmeyer said, and standing upon the liberty wherein Christ has set us free. Let us not think that Rome has changed her basic positions. She has not. Her catechisms are essentially the same. Her dogmas, uncompromising. It is the same Roman Catholic Church as at the Council of Trent only carefully adapted to American Protestant culture. It is a Roman Catholic Church 
which today threatens Protestantism in various parts of the world whenever she gains the upper hand. Now we just heard Walter Martin himself say the Roman Catholic Church was apostate. Right. In fact, that comes from uh, Walter's tape, which I, of course, I already told everybody I bought just about every tape they ever put out by good old Walter. And here it is right here, Peter the Rock, Catholic Church Tradition and the Bible. And he said what you just heard right on this audio cassette. This is Larry Wessels. Walter Martin says, Roman Catholicism nullifies the gospel. Page 39 from his book, The Roman Catholic Church in History. Cross-reference this to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where having another or nullified gospel is cursed by God. The Roman Church, in effect, nullifies the good doctrine of the gospel by adding the traditions or commandments of men. Herein lies the deadly parallel to Judaism mentioned by our Lord in Mark 7. For those who would like to obtain a free transcript of Walter's entire book on Roman Catholicism, go to our YouTube video called The Roman Catholic Church in History by Walter Martin. 1. Pope Peter. 2. Catholic Tradition. And from there, go to the comments section below this video to hit the links on the following comment. For those interested in getting a free transcript of this video, please go to, and your link is right there, and you'll find that on the YouTube page when you see it. Just click on that and I'll take you right where you need to go. Once there, scroll down to the sermon transcription section where there will be a variety of options available such as view transcript, download PDF, and send to Kindle. This video is now immediately available in 20 plus different foreign language translations. You can now share this video with friends, neighbors, or workmates that may speak a different primary language. This video message information can be easily sent to any Kindle ebook reader wirelessly over Wi-Fi or 3G in minutes using the Send to Kindle link found on this sermon page link. The ultimate way to read on the go. 2 Timothy 2.15 We have been exposing the religious con man Hanegraaff about this for decades. See our posted videos on this subject on our YouTube channel. Those videos are called Review of Walter Martin's Book on Roman Catholicism, Parts 1 and 2. Is Romanism an apostate religion or not? Next, Analysis of Hank Hanegraaff and Norman Geisler versus Walter Martin on Roman Catholicism, Part 3. Original Bible Answer Man Walter Martin says the Roman Catholic Church is corrupt and apostate. Virgin Mary's Seven Steps to Godhood via Catholic Dogma exposed by Bible Answer Man Walter Martin. Walter Martin's classic work called The Kingdom of the Cults published in 1965 is considered the most important reference on cults over the past 50 years, yet it does not mention Roman Catholicism.
The reasoning by Walter Martin in his mind was simple. The Christian church in Rome, Italy, was a true Christian church back when the Apostle Paul was writing to that Christian church in Rome back in the first century. See the epistle of Paul, the Apostle, to the Romans in the Bible. However, over time, the so-called Church of Rome evolved or morphed into something else which became apostate and corrupt, devoid of the true Christian gospel. Thus it became cursed by Galatians 1, 6-9. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. In the Greek, that's one of the strongest terms to indicate damnation. Let him be sovereignly damned by God to everlasting destruction. Concerning lawsuits, here's a report that can be found on the internet concerning Hanegraaff suing a Christian apologist named Bill Alnor, who was also a friend of mine and who did a radio broadcast for our ministry. You can find it on YouTube called UFOs in the New Age, Extraterrestrial Messages or Doctrines of Fourth Dimension Demonic Spirits. Now, viewers at home can find more than these couple of articles on Hanegraaff's lawsuits. But anyway, this one here you're looking at just says defamation lawsuit filed by Hank Hanegraaff thrown out of court. And of course, this was the, as it says here, a defamation lawsuit filed by Hank Hanegraaff against Christian apologist Bill Alnor has been thrown out of court. And of course, this goes back to January 2005 and people can go and find out much more about this situation. But Hanegraaff lost that lawsuit. And now here's another report. It says, Bible Answer Man Sues Apologist by Dwana Litz. This is from November 14, 2006. And uh, as you see here, there's much information. There's more links that can be seen concerning all this. But it says right up here, at the beginning, Hank Hanegraaff, the self-styled Bible answer man, will have to give an answer to God someday. He will have to give an answer for why he has sued a Christian brother and is now suing another Christian brother in a court of law and disobeying the Bible. Now it goes on from there. Uh, further down we see where it says Hank Hanegraaff obviously has no qualms about Christians suing Christians. And of course more information about that. And uh, looking further down the page, there's actually more information uh, from uh, Walter Martin's eldest daughter, uh, Jill Martin Reshi, and her blog, and the link is there. So Hanegraaff suing Christians, it seems to uh, give him no problem at all. Yet, as we saw earlier in this video presentation, D. James Kennedy, who could have easily sued Hanegraaff for plagiarism, using uh, D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion materials, did not because 
as he said, as Dr. Kennedy himself said, Christians shouldn't be suing Christians because the Bible says for Christians not to sue Christians. So we see a little bit of hypocrisy here in uh, Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, the self-righteous fake Bible answer man, likes to selectively ignore any Bible passage just like any other false prophet does when that Bible passage does not suit his purposes, particularly if Hanegraaff perceives that someone out there, whether Christian or not, may be hurting his financial monetary intake. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says that Hanegraaff ignores. Verse 7, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. In my own case, I noticed all types of scandals and trouble were brewing under Hanegraaff's perverted rule of Walter Martin's Christian Research Institute back in the 1990s. So I put out an eight-page report called Matthew 18 Lawsuit, exposing a lot of what was going on over there. Okay, as our viewers can see from my own report that I compiled, the Bible Answer Man, I call it, of course, the Matthew 18 Lawsuit, the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Christian Research Institute, CRI, named as defendants. Down below we see how I document a wrongful termination suit filed in Orange County, California on April 7, 1994. Former CRI employee Brad Sparks charges that Hanegraaff and other ministry personnel fired him because he blew the whistle on alleged ethical violations at CRI. Now, I'm not going to go through all the reading of this, but uh, as I've said many times already in this video, Viewers at home can freeze frame the page here and they can read all the information to their heart's content then just start the video up again. And as you go from page to page, and we'll put each page up, you can see what's going on here and from various news reports from other sources. Like here on page three, you see something from Charisma Magazine from October 1994. It talks about the, the problems going on, the lawsuit talks about on page four, misappropriation of charitable contributions, financial excesses, racketeering as well as fraud. And it says also, besides the large salary Hanegraaff and his wife Kathy Hanegraaff receive, estimated to be over $750,000 plus benefit, CRI monies go to Hanegraaff to the tune of $50,000 per year for a housing allowance. And then there's much more information provided there. It talks about his $731,000 house out in California. And as we go to page five, another news story from Christian Media. And this brings up that group that Perry Robinson was talking about in his talk that you've already heard in this video about set free and the envelopes and all that information is there. As we go through it, we see on the next page information continuing about set free and heresy hunters and things like that. At the bottom here, you see that book review about uh, Walter Martin's book, The Roman Catholic Church in History. But then we go to a report update on all these matters. And it kind of encapsulates 
a lot of what's been going on here with all this. And uh, as we move towards the back end of this, we find here from Christianity Today, dated September 11, 1995, it says, Apologetics Ministry resolves wrongful termination suit. Other ex-employees still question book royalties. And this has to do with Hank Canegraaff there, as you can see. There's questions about Christianity in crisis, and people are invited to uh, freeze this so they can read the article in toto. It is interesting that while I was making this report known throughout the country by way of our national mailing list, and I was getting a lot of requests for it as a result, I got a call one day from an underling who worked at Hanegraaff's outfit. He asked me to stop distributing my Matthew 18 lawsuit report about Hanegraaff. I told him I would if Hanegraaff were to provide me with evidence that he could refute all the allegations against him. The underling told me he would within a few weeks, so in the meantime, I promised to stop making it available. After waiting almost a month and never getting anything from Hanegraaff, I went right back to making the report available. I concluded from that experience that CRI does not keep their promises. What's interesting here is what Walter Martin's own family says about Hank Hanegraaff. And as you can see there in the paperwork before you, Walter Martin's family urges Hank Hanegraaff to step down as head of CRI. Hank Hanegraaff has been asked to step down from his post as president of the Christian Research Institute, CRI, by family members of Dr. Walter Martin, who founded the organization in 1960. A majority of Martin's family members signed a statement asking Hanegraaff to resign. Walter Martin's eldest daughter, Jill Martin Reshi, is a lead critic. A statement calling on Hanegraaff to resign as CRI's president has been signed by Rishi and her husband, as well as other members of Martin's family, including his children, Daniel, Elaine, and Debbie, and Walter Martin's widow, Darlene. For more documentation concerning Hank Hanegraaff and CRI, see the Facebook group called Walter Martin, the Original Bible Answer Man, run by Walter Martin's eldest daughter, Jill Martin Reshi. While we were editing this video, we were tipped off that Hank Hanegraaff had recently changed his doctrinal statement on his website as of November 2017. Here's what it looks like. As you see here under his beliefs, it says our beliefs on the CRI website. And he quotes 1 Timothy 4.16. And underneath that it says, Over the years there have been numerous suggestions for amending our statement of faith to reflect particular sectarian beliefs biases. However, the Christian Research Institute, CRI, is committed to what is aptly referred to as, quote, mere Christianity, end quote. In other words, quote, in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, end quote. And then as you can see there on the page, it goes on to talk about the Nicene Creed from the 4th century, and it talks more about one of Hanegraaff's anomalies that he likes to do, which is making stuff up that's more easy to remember. In this case, he has doctrine there. And as it shows you here, deity of Christ, original sin, canon, trinity, resurrection, incarnation, new creation, eschatology. And that's 
pretty much their new doctrinal statement. It's about as bland as you can get. This is so different from Walter Martin's original doctrinal statement. Hanegraaff focuses on mere Christianity, a phrase made famous by C.S. Lewis's book called Mere Christianity. This is because Hanegraaff likes to minimize the exclusivity of the gospel to its lowest common ecumenical denominator to give him the most broad appeal he can possibly get. By throwing the biblical gospel under the bus, Hanegraaff can then appeal to a much larger group of people for financial support. Okay, here's an example from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. As a viewer at home can see, do all roads lead to heaven? Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, there are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him, but they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background though he might still say he believed the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. Many of the good pagans, long before Christ's birth, may have been in this position, end quote. That's coming from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, pages 176 through 177. But the problem is, for Lewis, what does the Bible say? 1 Timothy 2.5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is both God and man, and he is the one mediator between God and men. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 14.6 Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Romans 8.34 Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Jesus Christ is the only name by which men can be saved, Acts 4.12. Jesus Christ is the only one who brings us salvation when we believe on him, 1 Timothy 2.5. Buddha is not Christ. Buddha is a pagan god or, or just an enlightened man, according to some of the Buddhist groups. The Bible also says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now this would refute C.S. Lewis's false claims and his false gospel. Verse 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns 
or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now, what's interesting here in Matthew 7, if you were to read to the rest of that, read through the rest of that chapter, you'll find that Jesus mentions many people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful works in your name and do all these things? Uh, they're people claiming to be Christians. But even to those people, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. So all these things show that C.S. Lewis and his gospel, his mere Christianity, do not conform to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, or if you want to, go to Luke 13 and Luke 14 for more information about that. For the viewers at home, here's a statement about C.S. Lewis that we've placed in the comments section uh, under a lot of our videos on YouTube. And uh, you can freeze frame it if you'd like to see a little bit more about this. We'll place the different pages of it here on the screen. And as I said, you can freeze frame each page, read the information, and go on from there. On page 35 of The Grand Miracle and Other Selected Essays, Lewis said, quote, The time is always ripe for reunion. Divisions between Christians are a sin and a scandal, and Christians ought at all times to be making contributions toward reunion, unquote. Lewis bent over backwards to find common ground with all denominations, excluding from his books any doctrine that might be offensive to anyone. And this to the point that even Mormons enjoy reading his writings. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis's stated purpose is to provide a non-controversial theology of all things. I, never, I could never dream of a non-controversial theology. What doctrine in God's Word has not been the battleground for, a great, for great controversy through the ages? His theology is a generic kind of Christianity that suits everybody who can in any way relate to God. In the foreword to Mere Christianity, Lewis says that uh, he submitted this book to four clergymen an Anglican, a Methodist, a Roman Catholic, and a Presbyterian for criticism before its publication. He wanted to make sure he didn't offend anybody. In his books, Lewis also, and this is probably where our children come in mostly today, he sought to blend paganism with Christianity. He had a certain respect and awe for pagan religions. In his book, C.S. Lewis, A Biography, Roger L. Green quotes Lewis on page 276 in referring to Lewis's travels in the Mediterranean. Quote, At Daphne, it was hard not to pray to Apollo the healer, 
But somehow one didn't feel it would have been wrong. Would have been on, it would have only been addressing Christ's subspecies Apollonus. Unquote. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all of his books promote the idea that Christianity and paganism can be blended together. The Chronicles of Narnia are an attempt to blend Christianity and paganism using thinly veiled pagan gods and goddesses like Bacchus as characters. He gives them other names, but it's thinly veiled reference to these pagan gods. In Prince Caspian, on page 192, Aslan, who is supposed to represent Christ, leads in a Bacchanalian orgy. His chronicles actually serve as an introduction of children to the philosophies of the occult-slash-pagan world. How can this be when paganism and Christianity are so diametrically opposed? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 18, that God requires separation of His people from paganism. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And in verse 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. In summary, then, what C.S. Lewis believed, though he professed to be a Christian, was contrary to biblical Christianity. The last question I, with which I want to deal in the message is, why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? I want to give you about five reasons. First of all, because of Lewis's widespread popularity and influence in today's Christianity. Lewis is popular, as I stated, among Catholics, Pentecostals, occultists, Baptists, conservatives, evangelical, uh, evangelicals, and all other stripes of Christians today. He is also very popular in homeschooling circles. And that's one reason I wanted to preach this message, because... Uh, as far as I know, all of our children are homeschooled. Why is he so popular? Well, there's several reasons. For one, because he has great powers of communication. Brother, he knows how to get an idea across. For another, he could illustrate everything clearly. A third reason is because his books are so easy to read. Fourth, he is popular because of the spiritual weakness and vulnerability of modern Christians. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Fifth, he is popular because most of today's Christians want the world's approval. And C.S. Lewis keeps Christians from being called fools for Christ's sake. The mention of his name gives them acceptance with the world by giving them the endorsement of an intellectual who is respected by the world. Why preach on C.S. Lewis? Second, 
because Christians are required to investigate and test all religious teaching before accepting it. Turn to 1 John 4, 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Christians are required to investigate and test all religious teaching before they accept it. 1 John 4, 1 says to Christians, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We must measure every book and every teacher by the yardstick of God's holy word. Look at Isaiah 8 and verse 20. I don't know how many times I've come back to this verse in thinking about different people and their new theologies or their distinct theologies. Isaiah 8 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, that is, to the Old Testament Scriptures, to the Scriptures. If they speak not according to this word, the Scriptures, it is because there is no light in them. Now turn to Galatians 1, 9. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9. We must measure every book and every teacher by the Word of God. Galatians 1, 9, As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Next, turn to 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. This certainly describes the age in which we live, when so many professing Christians have fallen for this man and others like him. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Isn't that a significant word? Fables means myths. I ask you today, what I'm asking you today is this. Look at God's Word and look at this man's life and teachings and then decide how to think of C.S. Lewis and his works. Why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? Thirdly, because of the shallowness and lack of spiritual discernment among professing Christians today. Modern Christians are alarmingly ignorant of God's Word and spiritual things. Most Christians don't seem to have the spiritual discernment to realize who or what C.S. Lewis was, and thus they promote his works as being great Christian books. Uh, you know, after reading these things, I wonder if these people have really read what C.S. Lewis said. Did you know that many churches today have even used the Chronicles of Narnia for their Sunday school curriculum? Why preach a sermon on C.S. Lewis? Fourthly, because God's Word commands His preachers to identify and warn against false prophets and false teachers. Look at 
uh, verse 17 of our text in Romans 16 says that we are to mark them, that's false teachers, and avoid them. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. According to what we've seen in this message, C.S. Lewis is not a teacher of the truth. And young Christians should therefore not be directed to his books. We must be careful to direct young Christians to faithful, sound Christian books, whether their authors are famous or obscure. Why preach on C.S. Lewis? Finally, because God's curse is on those who preach other gospels. Turn to Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I want to close by reading this passage in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul is speaking to people in the churches of Galatia. And he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let us pray. A not totally inerrant Bible. That's what C.S. Lewis believed in. Lewis believed the Bible was the Word of God, but he did not think that meant every word in Scripture ought to be regarded as literal history. He wrote that most Christians, quote, still believe, as I do, that all Holy Scripture is, in some sense, though not all parts of it, in the same sense, the Word of God, end quote. As C.S. Lewis wrote in a personal letter, he said, the total result is not, quote, the Word of God, in the sense that every passage in itself gives impeccable science or history. It carries the Word of God, and we, under grace, with attention to tradition and to interpreters wiser than ourselves, and with the use of such intelligence and learning as we may have, receive that Word from it, not by using it as an encyclopedia or an encyclical, but by steeping ourselves in its tone and temper, and so learning its overall message, end quote. Now, C.S. Lewis is at odds with Jesus Christ and the Scripture. Let's find out how. And this sort of reminds me also of Hanegraaff in his dismissal of the book of Genesis earlier in this presentation. Facts and Evidences. Number one, Genesis chapter one states, God said nine times. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent, the devil, actually questions, hath God said? Point two, Malachi says, thus says the Lord, 23 times. God speaks from Genesis to Malachi. Point three, the Lord spoke, appears 560 times in the first five books of the Bible alone. Point four, Isaiah claimed his message came directly from God 40 times. Ezekiel claimed 
that his message came from God 60 times. Jeremiah claims his message came from God 100 times. At least 3,800 times in the Old Testament, quote, the Lord spoke, end quote, appears. Point five. Jesus quoted from 24 Old Testament books alone. The quotes are still the same today. They have not been lost in transmission. Examples. Jesus believed Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. John chapter 7, verse 19. Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Jesus believed Isaiah was a prophet. That's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Cross-reference that with Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Cross-reference that with Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus believed Daniel to be a prophet. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Jesus believed in the Adam and Eve account. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Jesus believed the great flood and Noah accounts. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus believed the Sodom and Gomorrah accounts. Matthew chapter 11, verse 24. Luke chapter 17, 28 through 29. Jesus believed the accounts concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Luke chapter 20, verse 37. Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. Jesus believed in the Jonah and the great fish account. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and following. Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God, authoritative and without error. Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 27 and 44. Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 11, verse 51. Luke 17, 29, and also 32. Matthew 24, 15, 34, and 18. Mark chapter 12, verse 26. John chapter 6, 31, 32. Also John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus passed the same authority of the Old Testament to the New Testament. John 14, 26, John 15, 26 through 27, John 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus believed the Psalms were inspired by God. Luke chapter 20, verse 21 through 44, John chapter 10, verse 34, cross-reference that with Psalm 82, verse 6. To summarize, Jesus simply believed the Bible was the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. And anyone that doesn't believe in the Bible as the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, doesn't believe Jesus. And if they don't believe in Jesus, they cannot be saved. Remember, the way to shoot the head off the devil and his multitude of lies is with the sure Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Jesus defeated the devil three separate times by rebuking the devil with the word of God. Jesus said, quote, It is written in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, 
Jesus said, and he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responded to the devil's second temptation. Jesus responded again, It is written, Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And on the devil's final temptation in this section of scripture, Jesus rebuked the devil a third time in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, saying, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. All right, now we've seen how Hank Canegraaff has changed his doctrinal statement for his Christian Research Institute away from the original doctrinal statement. As you can see now on your screen, here they are. The old CRI beliefs says right here, it is the commitment of the Christian Research Institute to faithfully uphold the revealed truths of Holy Scripture. We therefore commit ourselves to the following summary statement of the vital teachings of Scripture and the Christian faith. We believe that, and then there's number one, the Holy Scriptures comprised of the Old and New Testaments, are fully and verbally inspired by God and are therefore infallible in the original writings and completely trustworthy in all areas in which they speak. And those at home can read the rest. Number two, there is only one eternal, almighty, and perfect God. Within the being of this one true God exists three eternally distinct and co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are the one true God. Three, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took upon himself human flesh through the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He who is true God became true man, uniting two natures into one person forever. And those at home can read the rest there. Number four, the Holy Spirit is the eternal third person of the triune God, the regenerator and sanctifier of the redeemed, the bestower of spiritual fruit and gifts, and the abiding advocate who empowers believers for godly living and service. Point five, in Adam, human beings were created in the image of God, i.e., they share in a finite way the communicable attributes of God, including personality, spirituality, rationality, and morality. And you can read there about the fall of Adam and so forth. Point six, Jesus' death on the cross provided a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of humanity. In salvation, we are rescued from God's wrath by his unmerited grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. It's a key point here in the original CRI doctrinal statement. Seven, those who have received the free gift of salvation will be raised from the dead or raptured, snatched up from their earthly lives to meet Christ at his second coming, and their bodies will be transformed like unto his glorious immortal body. And those at home or watching this video can read the rest there. Point eight, the Christian church, which is the body and bride of Christ, is composed of all persons 
who through saving faith in Christ Jesus have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the information is provided there. What we notice immediately is there's no mere Christianity of the uh, C.S. Lewis kind mentioned here in this original CRI doctrinal statement. C.S. Lewis and his mere Christianity are nowhere to be found. Another very important part here is point six. Jesus' death on the cross provided a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of humanity. In salvation, we are rescued from God's wrath by his unmerited grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, is completely thrown out of the new CRI doctrinal statement of Hanegraaff. And what he's basically done by throwing out point six is he's thrown out the whole Protestant Reformation by getting rid of point six. He's basically saying the Reformers and the Protestants and their doctrines on this of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, is false. For more on this, let's hear from R.C. Sproul, one of my more favorite Christian theologians. At the church where I'm the minister of preaching and teaching, we have on our bulletin every Sunday morning a list of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and they include sola fide, which means justification by faith alone, Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone. Solus Christus, that our salvation is through Christ alone. Sola scriptura, that the sole authority that binds the conscience of the Christian is the Bible alone. And then finally, sola Deo gloria, to God alone belongs the glory. And so we're going to start our study of the solas by looking at the first one, sola fides. Again, the substantive issue was that was the core point of dispute was the doctrine of justification, and the Protestant view is expressed in the shorthand of the Latin sola fide. At the heart of this dispute was not a tangential debate over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or in a needless controversy over pedantic points of theology and of doctrine that professors disagreed about. But this issue touched the very heart of the Christian faith because the question of justification Answer, it is designed to answer the, the deeper question, how can an unjust person possibly survive the judgment of a just and holy God? Now, in our day, I find that people really don't care that much about the doctrine of justification. It has been reduced pretty much to a non-issue. Just as the differences among churches historically over the substance and the meaning of the gospel itself, that those differences have now been minimized as being no significant matter. 
because we're living in a time in the first place of relativism that says truth is relative, or pluralism that says there are many different approaches to truth and views of truth, and doctrinal issues should never divide us because what really counts are personal relationships, not doctrine. That, despite the New Testament, is uh, replete with uh, apostolic concern about correct doctrine. But that's not where the church is in this day and age. And sometimes we have to ask the question, why? Well, to try to answer that question, why? Let me use a little anecdote that uh, came to my attention just yesterday. I was driving my car down the highway, and I was listening to my friend Alistair Begg on Christian radio, and he was uh, giving the second of his addresses on being an almost Christian. And he talked about people who are exposed to the preaching of the gospel, who join the church, who come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but who have never really committed their lives to Christ. And on, in the context of this particular radio program, at the end of his message, where uh, Alistair was basically giving an altar call over the radio, he said to the people in his own congregation, there are some of you here today who have heard this message of the gospel and are untouched by it. You're un indifferent to it. And you have not responded to it. And you, perhaps today, will not respond to it. And for you people, what you are faced with is the judgment of hell itself. And then he went on to give a recapitulation of the biblical doctrine of the last judgment and of hell, and told his congregation what awaited those people who rejected the gospel of Christ. And basically what he was saying is, is that those people who reject the gospel of Christ stay in their sins and remain unjustified. And we think back to the Old Testament to David's rhetorical question, if the Lord would mark iniquities, who would stand? And it's rhetorical because the question is obvious that the answer is no one. And what Alistair was trying to awaken 21st century Americans to with his message was that promise, that divine promise from the lips of God that all men will be brought into his judgment and will be judged according to the righteousness of Christ. And those who are found wanting will be sent into the abyss of hell is a doctrine that the church doesn't believe anymore. Because if it did believe it, it would preach it. And if it did believe it, justification would be just as much a theological issue today as it was in the 16th century. You see, if you're going to understand the upheaval that came about in the 16th century, you have to understand that the church in the 16th century believed in a last judgment. The church in the 16th century believed in the wrath of God. The church in the 16th century believed in the justice of God. And the church in the 16th century believed in hell. 
That's why at center stage was the question, how can I be saved? Recently, I've published a book with the simple title, Saved from What? A book that I read or I wrote at the risk of offending the intelligence of anybody out there. Why would anybody ask the question, what we're saved from? Isn't it axiomatic? Isn't it manifest? Isn't it clear that what we're saved from is the wrath of God that is to come? I would think it would be axiomatic, but it's not. People are now saying what I'm saved from are bad habits, addictions, social failure, psychological deficiency, broken relationships, and all the rest. Well, and we are so concerned about the relationships that we have in this world, we don't even worry about the relationship that we have with a just and holy God. But what the Christian faith is about in the first instance is not the restoration of human relationships, although it cares very much about human relationships. In the first instance, it has to do with the repair of our relationship to God. Justification by faith alone. He made the famous statement that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And the article that is so important that he said that if we lose it, we lose Christianity. He said justification by faith alone is the prince, the Lord, the... Uh, authority for all else that comes to us out of sacred scripture. Again, going back to the motto, it's the article upon which the church stands or falls. What did he mean by that? He meant that if you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther by extension would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? How a person gains salvation. The biggest problem that the human race has is this. God is holy. He's righteous. He's just. And we're not. And so the question of justification boils down to this. How can I, as an unjust person, have a right relationship with my Creator? That justification is the hinge on which everything turns. It's not the doctrine it saves, it's the Christ who saves. And what the church is trying to explain in terms of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is to explain how Christ saves his people. And what we're saying is that justification is by putting our trust in Christ and in Christ alone, not in our theology textbooks, not in our creeds, as important as they may be, not in our confessions, but in our actual faith whose object is Christ, not the doctrine about Christ. 
You see the difference, I hope. Now, I often wondered myself, I know for sure that no one is saved just because they affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The devil knows that's true. But the other side of the coin is not so easy. What happens if you deny the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And that's a different matter. Because now you're denying that you're saved by Christ and by Christ alone. And that denial may be enough to damn you. That was believed by the Roman Catholic Church, as we will see, as well as the Protestants. Both of them believed that the doctrine of salvation was crucial for our uh, everlasting redemption. And what we believed about Christ was critical for ever. But uh, they also believed that the false teaching of it was worth damnation, as we will see when we look at the Council of Trent and also at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Pantograph has a very good idea marketing-wise by using a mere Christianity gospel, which basically is no gospel at all. Viewers should watch our video. 87% of evangelical Christians don't know what the gospel is or what justification is. Now, this kind of ties into what R.C. Sproul was saying about how people don't really have much idea of what's going on these days as far as justification and other things. But Hanegraaff's tapping into something here where he can take advantage of the ignorance of so-called Christians and come across like he's some kind of expert on Bible theology and Gospels and all that kind of stuff. Check out that video, which will really explain how the evangelical so-called Christian community is in terrible shape and why, for marketing purposes, Hanegraaff has done a, a good thing in the sense of being able to make money from a group like this, where 87% of them don't know what the gospel is in the first place and have no clue what justification is. Now let's hear from researcher Jay Howard how this confidence man and opportunist Hanegraaff took over Walter Martin's ministry. Good afternoon. Today we're going to be talking uh, quite extensively about the presidency of, the, uh, of Hank Hanegraaff of the Christian Research Institute. For many years there has been concern and some doubt whether he was truly uh, hand-picked by Walter Martin, the, the founder of the ministry. And tonight we're going to be looking at this issue uh, more in depth than I think anybody else has really looked at before. We're going to be dealing primarily with the hand-picked successor issue and how he actually became president of CRI. Also, we're going to be looking at several uh, scandals that took place after his presidency began in 1989. <clears throat> Shortly after the death of Walter Martin on June 26, 1989, the Christian Research Institute published a ministry newsletter which served as a tribute to him. It was in this newsletter, for the first time, there was a public mention of a man named Hank Hanegraaff and that he would be the new president of CRI. At that time, it was believed by most people outside of CRI, since virtually no one had heard of Hank Hanegraaff, that Martin had probably discovered him in some seminary and had been impressed with his theological brilliance and apologetic acumen. Up to this time in 1989, there was no mention of him in any of CRI's publications. He had never authored any articles, never mentioned in any newsletters, hosted the BioLanceMan program, nor been involved in any public ministry for CRI. 
To the supporters of CRI, he was a complete unknown entity. For several years after this, it, was never, it never occurred to me that he was anything else but the hand-picked successor of Walter Martin that he incessantly claimed to be. In those first few years, he repeated the hand-picked successor mantra to anyone who would listen. He repeated it on the radio, uh, in public appearances, in, public, in CRI publications, and he said it so many times and for so long that everybody just assumed it was true. In 1999, in a chance meeting with Kevin Rishi, Walter Martin's son-in-law, I began talking with the Martin family about Hank Hanegraaff. They began to share with me with, uh, some of their ongoing concerns with his veracity. They had come to the conclusion that Walter Martin had hired Hank Hanegraaff uh, to simply help with fundraising at CRI and that no one from the Martin family had ever heard him talk about Hanegraaff as the next president of CRI. I decided I had to investigate the pres presidential claims of Hank Hanegraaff. I needed to understand what was really true, so I began to research and interview as many people as possible that were part of CRI in the 1980s and 1990s. It would also be necessary, I concluded, to interview people who currently worked for the ministry. I obtained the name of a former board member of Walter Martin, who had served on the CRI's board for 19 years. I spoke with initially two researchers who worked with Martin in the 1980s and worked in the office on a daily basis. Their names are Craig Hawkins and Rich Pohl. They all recalled clearly the Monday morning when they heard of the death of Walter Martin. But they also told me that no, at no time did Martin ever talk to the staff about Hanegraaff ever becoming the new president of the ministry. To their knowledge, he was strictly involved in fundraising and increasing the visibility of CRI to the public. This was also a statement made by Stan Thomason, the board member who had been with Walter Martin on the board for 19 years. He had never heard Walter Martin mention Hank Hanegraaff as a possible successor in any CRI board meeting, meetings or in personal conversations. In an interview I did with him in August of 2000, we had the following exchange. Did you ever hear Martin state that Hanegraaff was to be his, his successor? Uh, Stan Thomason. No, he was looking for other individuals, but he never mentioned Hank Hanegraaff as his successor. I had contacted CRI via email in June of 2000 to ask what post-high school education Hanegraaff had and if they could furnish me with either a letter or audio tape of Martin expressing his desire that Hanegraaff become president upon his death. I received no reply. Almost a month later, on July 25th, I sent another email stating I was looking for a letter or a tape of Martin offering the presidency to Hanegraaff and that my inquiry was in conjunction with a small article I was writing concerning Hanegraaff as president of CRI. Within 24 hours, I received an email response. Curiously, there was no information in the body of the email concerning Martin's public or private decision to make Hank Hanegraaff the next president of the ministry. I was invited to call a toll-free number and talk to John Stoffel, the Ministry Operations Manager at CRI, who had sent me the email. In the ensuing conversation, he questioned my motives for calling him. He told me of the problems with, this, with the Walter Martin website. He also told me that all the things that Jill Rishi and her husband Kevin had told me about Hanegraaff were all lies. The one thing he did not comment on was whether there was any proof of the so-called hand-picked successor story. He then suggested that I speak with Elliot Miller, who had worked with Walter Martin for, for many years and who was still an employee of the ministry. I then repeated my question to Elliot Miller if he knew of any letter or audio tape by Walter Martin. He told me there was no such evidence of Martin's offer to Hanegraaff. I then asked him if he ever heard Martin mention to the staff that Hanegraaff was to be the next president. 
Miller informed me that he had heard him say this at least on one or two occasions in the presence of other researchers. I asked him if any of the other ex-staff members could confirm the story. He said some probably could, but I, I should not be surprised if they said Martin never said it because, he went on, some of them may have an axe to grind with Hanegraaff and probably would not tell me the truth. Elliot Miller wanted me to believe that most of the, all the ex-staff members uh, that have uh, been interviewed by Bill Alnor and myself concerning this issue have lied to us for one reason or another. And though Miller is the only research person left from the old 1980s Martin staff because the rest were either fired by Hanegraaff or quit because of the pressure they felt from him, we are supposed to take his word over multiple statements of ex-staffers who never heard Martin mention Hanegraaff as a possible president. The idea that he is the only one telling the truth defies the laws of probability. Since he is the only one still employed at CRI as senior editor of the Christian Research Journal, he has much to lose if he was to ever contradict Hank's story. During my research in the summer of 2000, I also interviewed Tony Colorile, a longtime uh, friend of Walter Martin who knew him when he was still living in New Jersey before moving the ministry to Southern California in the 1970s. Mr. Colorile came out to California in October of 1988 for the dedication of the new headquarters building of CRI in Irvine, California. And I asked him these questions. You asked Martin to, in October of 1988 of the dedication how he was doing. Tony Colorill. He said he was training some young men like Craig Hawkins and Rich Paul, but he did not say anything about a successor. I met Hank Hanegraaff only once during this time. Hank Hanegraaff drove Walter and me to a Baptist church in Garden Grove where Walter was speaking at a cult conference. And my question was, did he say anything about Hank Hanegraaff during the drive? No, not a word, said Tony. This would indeed be a strange occurrence. Tony Collarill and Walter Martin had been friends for decades. October of 1988 was less than nine months before Hank Hanegraaff would take over the presidency. Yet we are to believe that, that Walter Martin, who had been grooming Hanegraaff for the presidency for months, did not take this golden opportunity to tell his good friend Tony Collarill that they were being driven to the speaking engagement by the next president of CRI. Martin should have been proud of his new potential president and protege, yet he did not say anything to Mr. Collarill. Though a few minutes later, a few minutes before, he had been talking freely about the abilities of Craig Hawkins and Rich Pohl. If it were true that Martin had mentioned Hanegraaff as a future president to many staffers, why would he not make his intentions clear to his longtime friend from New Jersey? We have found no one, whether they are family of Walter Martin, former CRI board members, ex-staff members, or close friends of Walter Martin, who ever heard him discuss Hank Hanegraaff as the future president of CRI. The only person who has, who has come forward to the contrary is Elliot Miller, the only researcher who is still employed with the ministry from this original staff of Walter Martin, and a man who has proven himself completely and utterly loyal to Hank Hanegraaff. Since there is no empirical evidence that Hank Hanegraaff was ever asked by Walter Martin to take over the ministry, the question needs to be asked, is it possible that Walter Martin would promote a man like Hanegraaff? First, it can be adequately demonstrated Walter Martin had a vast love for the educational process. I began reading The Kingdom and the Cults, uh, Martin's opus work, in 1976. After finishing reading my copy, I became extremely interested in acquiring other writings by him and listening to his lectures via audio tape. Until his death in 1989, I read no less than six of his books, listened to dozens of hours of his tapes, and from September of 1978 to April of 1979, I lived in Anaheim, California, and attended his Sunday school class that he taught at Melodyland Church. 
the church that he was associated with in the 1970s. Throughout the, his writings and lectures, he made frequent reference to his educational experiences at schools like Stony Brook, New York University, and his days in seminary. He recounted experience after experience that had helped shape his life and his thinking. He told stories in great details of teachers and fellow students he had known throughout his life. He spoke with great affection of how his educational background had led him inexorably to the place where he could defend the Christian worldview against all comers with a combination of skills that heretofore had not been employed before to uplift the cross of Christ and defeat its legions of enemies in the guise of false religious systems. To say that Walter Martin had a love of education is a little like saying that Mona Lisa is just another painting. He surrounded himself at CRI with a research staff that was highly educated. By the early 1980s, the researchers you encountered in the office had bachelor's degrees, some were working towards master's degrees, and others on doctorates. In stark contrast, when you look at the biographical information on Hank Hanegraaff on the CRI website, there is not even the tiniest reference to any education or schools that he attended in his life. The only college background that we know that he has is Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan from 1968 through 1972, but he never graduated. He had not even declared a major field of study. It is beyond the pale to believe that a man who has such reverence for higher education and surrounded himself with, a, with men and women who, with advanced degrees would select a man who has so little higher education. The reason that there is no mention of Hanegraaff's educational background is fairly apparent. Were CRI to say that he has only less than four years of college, it would tend to cause people to wonder why a person who is trusted with such an important and scholastically intense ministry has so little academic training to run such an organization. To underscore this point of Hanegraaff's underqualified academic background and why Martin would not trust him to, to lead CRI, Kevin Rishi, the son-in-law of Walter Martin, told me about a conversation he had had with Martin in 1981. The year after Kevin married Jill Martin, they decided to move to Southern California. Coming to California with no job prospects, Kevin was anxious to land a job at his father-in-law's ministry. He asked if he could work as a researcher in the office. He was told by Martin that he had a strict policy to hire only people who had at least a bachelor's degree to work in the research department. At this time, Kevin had only one year of school. Kevin and Jill had met while they were students at Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma. I contacted Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the school that Hank Canegraaff attended after he got out of school. In speaking with their records department, they were able to tell us about his transcripts. He attended from 1968 to 72, but never graduated. In fact, I was told that on this transcripts there was no mention of a major. I was told that the major is always listed on the transcript when a student declares the information. There was not even sufficient classes taken in any one area of study, I was told, to indicate if he had a major field of study in mind. His lack of drive to obtain even a four-year degree seems to be the polar opposite of Walter Martin's thirst for higher education. The official story by Hank Hanegraaff is that he has been telling since 1989 is that Walter Martin had something to prove. The story goes that Martin had always had a theory that anyone, no matter how common, could be turned into an apologetic and cult-researching machine by working and studying directly with him. Apparently, if we are to believe Hanegraaff, he was Martin's Eliza Doolittle in a kind of Christian version of My Fair Lady. The Christian world has been led to believe all these years that Walter Martin broke his own rule because he wanted to test his theory. 
that not only hired Hank Anagraf with virtually no college background, but advanced him to the very pinnacle of the ministry, that of president. There is a fatal flaw in the myth that Hanegraaff has been passing off as the truth all these years. That is the fact that when you read all of Walter Martin's material and you listen to his countless hours of lectures on audio tape, he never mentions once about his desire to implement this so-called theory that Hanegraaff has foisted on the, the Christian public. Martin did talk quite a bit about making information accessible to everyone. This, however, is not the same as taking an unskilled person and working to make him the president of the largest cult apologetics ministry in the world to show that he could train anyone. Walter Martin's love for education would not allow him to do this. It is clear that Hank Hanegraaff was never really conversant with the works of, of Martin or he would never have advanced this ludicrous theory. Over the years it has become clear that the leadership of CRI is actively trying to hide the fact that Hanegraaff does not have the academic qualification to be president. When people inquired about Hanegraaff's educational background, they received a standard reply. This is the automated response that CRI used to send out when this inquiry came in. Thank you for visiting CRI's website. If you wish to ask Hank specific questions or, or respond to your comments, you can submit your email with your mailing address through the following address. Thank you for your understanding and patience. May God bless you, CRI Operations. CRI has recently changed the information that they release about his education. Instead of making it into a personal inquiry issue between the person who sends in the request and Hanegraaff, they have altered their response. This is the new one. Greetings in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for contacting the Christian Research Institute. Although the volume of inquiries we receive has continued to increase, we do not currently have staff to consistently provide a timely and in-depth response to each inquiry. Hank Canegraaff was disciplined under the ministry of Dr. D. James Kennedy and once served on the staff of Evangelism Explosion. Hank is for the most part a self-taught apologist and much of his knowledge comes through personal study. When he was a non-believer in his late 20s, one of the resources that helped convince him of Christianity's validity is evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. We carry the new expanded version, the new evidence that demands a verdict for $29.99. Now, parenthetically, I find this a little unusual that right in the middle of a letter explaining Hank Hanegraaff's qualifications, they actually make a plea for somebody to buy this book, but that's what they do. How does Hank find time to study? Well, there is no easy to follow formulaic answer to your question. There are some practical considerations that may be taken into account. First of all, as host of the Bible Answerman radio broadcast and president of CRI, it is literally Hank's business to study theology, cults, and so forth, and keep up to date on events affecting the Christian community. Therefore, during these time when, there, when others are on the clock in their secular vocations, Hank is typically hard at work conducting primary source research. Even this must be balanced. However, since the duties as president of CRI encompass much more than his research obligations. In addition, as you can probably imagine, Hank's passion for defending the truth of God's word is also an integral part of his personal life as well. Therefore, you are as likely to find him reading and studying the scripture outside of the work setting as you are to find him so doing within the walls of CRI. Apart from the above, the answer really just boils down to time management. When Hank is on the airplane bound for a speaking engagement, he studies. In mornings before his children wake up to get ready for school, he studies. At night after his kids have gone to bed, he studies. Rest assured, we are not employing hyperbole here. When you occupy the office of CRI, even 
Spare moments need to be utilized for God's glory. Finally, and as Hanks would say, perhaps most importantly, his wife shares Hanks' commitment to truth and works tirelessly to assist him as needed, freeing him up for more pressing pursuits. This response was made possible by the sacrificial gifts of people who have been helped by the ministry of CRI. So it closes by asking for a financial contribution. But again, what they're pointing out here is that he just studies all the time. There's no real time when he doesn't study. The only thing, again, that is missing is any mention of any educational background that would allow him to become the president of this ministry. The request for the educational background of the president of a ministry is not all that unusual. For CRI to take such a guarded position about handographs is extremely strange. However, for CRI under this present leadership to hide information from the public is becoming all too common. To examine how other ministries dealt with the question of education of their leadership, I contacted several well-known ministries. Focus on the Family, Insight for Living, the Apologetics Resource Center, Spiritual Conference Project, Grace to You. They all talk openly and freely about the educational experiences of their president. Also, I find it interesting that even uh, though my ministry search was random, all the ministries I looked at had information about the education of their president. So in the light of this, it would, be, it would seem extremely uh, surprising that CRI would not discuss the education or lack thereof of Hank Anagraf. In fact, the biographical information available from CRI on Hank Anagraf is extremely sketchy to say the best of it. When you read the information, it tells you that he is the president and chairman of the board of CRI, the host of the Bible Answer Man program. It tells very briefly why he is a Christian. It spends paragraphs promoting his books, some of his media appearances, and says he and Kathy, his current wife, have nine children. What is striking is that there is absolutely no mention or no information in his biographical uh, statement that would hint at why he is qualified to be president of this ministry. It reads more like a promotional brochure for the writings of Hank Hanegraaff than it does a biographical piece. While it is true that many cult apologetics ministries started by individuals since the 1970s have founders and presidents that were all but self-taught in these fields, that it is imperative that all who work in this area of ministry must have a college degree is not the heart of the objection. It comes down to would Walter Martin ask a man who does not even possess an undergraduate college degree to lead his organization? Where even uh, a newly hired researcher must have a four-year degree? It is overwhelmingly clear that this would not have been something that Martin would, would do. Hank Hanegraaff talked often in the early days of how Walter Martin had groomed him for the presidency. However, when you look at the Christian Research Journal as far back as 1987, there is not one article written by him or a mention of him. If he was being groomed by Walter Martin, why didn't he ever host the Bible Answer Man program? Martin oftentimes allowed other research staff to host the, the radio program. It would only be fitting that the man that would take over his office someday would fill in from time to time. The fact is that it was over a year after Martin died that he finally got behind the microphone of the Bible Answer Man program full time. It is abundantly clear that he used the first year to try to cram as much information about cults and apologetics into his mind as possible. Still to this day, he does not have a fraction of the information that Martin had acquired in a lifetime of preparation. There is also no record of him speaking on behalf of CRI at any cult conference before July of 1989. That Martin was anxious to groom young talented minds, this is true. 
when you look at the CRI activity of researchers like Robert Bowman, Craig Hawkins, Ron Rhodes, Rich Paul, Paul Cardin, and others, they were continually writing articles, and, and some of them hosted the radio program multiple times before and after the death of Walter Martin. For a man who was the handpicked successor, he did absolutely nothing in the area of cult and apologetic ministry for CRI before July of 1989. The Monday of June 28, 1989, two days after Martin had died, at the CRI headquarters in Irvine, California, according to staff members who were there at that morning, was an incredible mixture of stunned sadness and overwhelming confusion. Contrary to Hanegraaff's assertions that Mar Martin had planned for this eventuality, it was not true. Though he had struggled for many years with diabetes, his death was sudden, and after all, he was only 60 years old. He didn't have a full sense of how sick he was. And though it is true that he was always interested in training young men and women to become top apologetic researchers, his family and staff were never told of any one individual who was being groomed to take his place at the time of his death, including Hank Hanarap. According to Darlene Martin, Walter's widow, Hanarap assumed the role of media spokesman for CRA after the death of Martin. He helped draft the media press release talked with the media who wanted information and acted as a buffer between the ministry, Martin's family, and the outside world. Mrs. Martin told me how kind and thoughtful Hanegraaff was to her during this, those tr trying days. In the next couple of days, Hanegraaff began to see the opportunity that lay before him. He realized there was no clear presidential hopeful waiting in the wings, and he began his conspiracy to take over the ministry. The question is often asked, if Hanegraaff is not the legitimate president of CRI, how could he take over the ministry without raising concern? There are only two men who know how it happened, Hank Hanegraaff and Everett Jacobson, one of the remaining board members for Martin's board. It is obviously it's not in Hanegraaff's best interest to tell an Everett Jacobson, who was on the board of directors until his death in July 2007, never spoke to anyone outside of CRI of what convinced him that Martin wanted Hanegraaff to assume the reins of the ministry. Jill Rishi, who remains the main spokesman for the Martin family and is Everett Jacobson's niece, has stated that even though, though 19 years had gone by, Jacobson had never explained to her in all that time about why he backed Hanegraaff in 1989. When we look back on the days immediately after June 26th, it is clear that there was a power vacuum and the family and the staff are struggling with shock and profound grief. With this in mind, it is extremely easy to see how someone who was opportunistic could take full advantage of the situation. Since Stan Thompson, the, the other board member, was moved off the board in the spring of 1990, it is clear that he had nothing to do with the coup. Therefore, seeing that Everett Jacobson had never spoken to anyone outside of CRI about the matter and he was one of only two left from the original board of directors, it becomes obvious that he was the one that Hanegraaff approached. It has been said that Hanegraaff is a very persuasive and charming person when he wants to be. It seems clear from things that the Martin family has said to me that the exchange between Hank Hanegraaff and Everett Jacobson was not a financial one. So it was through persuasion that Hanegraaff convinced Jacobson that he was to be the next president. Stan Thompson confirmed with me in a meeting I had with him in January 2008 that when he asked Everett Jacobson how he knew Hanegraaff was Martin's choice, he replied, God told me. It should be noticed that Jacobson never replied that Martin uh, had told him about this information, but he never revealed to Mr. Thomason how exactly God had broken the news to him.
The staff of researchers, secretaries, shipping, accounting, and receptionists were extremely motivated to work for CRI. Because of the uniqueness of the ministry in Southern California and because they believed in its mission, they were obviously willing to work with Walter Martin or whoever was at the helm of the ministry. They would uh, not have been they would not have had inside information about the working of the board and its choices. Therefore, it is logical that they would have no real reason to suspect Hanegraaff's new presidency in the beginning, since there was a seemingly full and exuberant backing by the CRI board consisting at the time of Everett Jacobson, Stan Tonneson, and Hank Hanegraaff. There was a, a great deal of talk by Hanegraaff after Dr. Martin died that he had been groomed to take over the ministry. It is easily demonstrated that he was, in reality, only brought on to the board at CRI to help raise financing for the ministry. When the board minutes of CRI are examined, it is clear that he was only presenting financial-related information, and he was never called upon to be involved in theological aspects of the ministry, but reported almost exclusively on business issues. The following are excerpts from CRI board minutes. On February 23, 1987, Walter Martin introduces the idea of having Hank on the board of directors. This is a quote from the minutes now. Dr. Martin presented the name of Hank Hanegraaff as a possible board member, end quote. After he was brought on the board, he was referenced in the subsequent minutes as presenting financially related information. This is from the May 27, 1987 board minutes. Quote, Hank Hanegraaff stated, we must maximize the potential of our current donor base and get volunteers to, in to increase the turnaround time in responding to letters received at CRI. Hank will work with Leona to accomplish this task. End quote. July 3rd, 1987, another quote about Hank Hanegraaff in the board minutes. Hank Hanegraaff stated that, that we need to solve the problem of the, of the deficit and managerial need immediately. Hank said that development is commitment to detail. End quote. July 29, uh, 1988, Hank Hanegraaff addressed the capital campaign for the new building. He said that we have to establish a goal, allow for shrinkage, identify persons who will do the solicitation and then identify those people capable of solicitation and finally to identify people to be solicited, Hank will implement the program." End quote. On June 3, 1989, this is less than one month before Dr. Martin would die and Hanegraaff would become the hand-picked successor, he was still talking business only. Quote, Hank reported on the proposed CRI cruise and read a letter being sent to selected supporters. It would be a Caribbean cruise from October 28th to November 4th of this year. A motion by Stan was made to proceed with the cruise and that Hank arranged to have letters sent out to all people on our mailing list. Hank presented a written report on Brazil and made comments on his trip to Brazil. Hank feels that CRI is definitely in the right place in Brazil. Hank commented on the many different problems at CRI that were critical and should be dealt with immediately. The board gave Hank complete authority to deal with and correct all the problems at CRI. Hank will give a report at the next board meeting on this matter. Note, the only other board members besides Dr. Martin were Everett Jacobson, a banker, and Stanley Thomason, a pharmaceutical researcher. These two men did not have the time to devote to these problems. This would have hardly signified that Martin had planned to turn over the ministry to Hank Kinograf, but only that he had time on his hands. Hank was given authority by the board to build the BAM program by adding or subtracting radio stations in order to make the BAM program profitable. Note, this again was only a business-related project. 
He was not being offered to appear on BAM and had never spent any time on the radio show. To put this into perspective, it would be analogous to a business manager at a hospital being offered a position as, as the head of thoracic medicine. It would never happen because he has no training in that field. In fact, in a resume kept on file for Hank Hanegraaff by CRI, it states, uh, Heinrich H. Hanegraaff, our newest board member of the bo board at CRI, is president and founder of Memory Dynamics Incorporated, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Mr. Hanegraaff has served in the past as faculty member of the Development Association for Christian Institutions. Note that he did not supply the Ministry of Serve International in Atlanta, Georgia, from which he was fired from in the early 1980s. He has been development consultant to Christian organizations in long-range planning, management, marketing, development strategy, and staff training. By providing training, technical assistance, and consulting services in current and capital giving programs, he has helped Christian organizations as Campus Crusade for Christ, University Fellowship, and Youth with a Mission to significantly increase donation income. Again, this is strictly a business-related resume and never mentioned any background in culture or apologetics. If Martin was mentoring Hank in the ministry aspects of CRI, the board minutes would have reflected at least some of this. It is clear that the only interest Martin had in Hank was as a fundraiser and, and a person who would help CRI find ways of cutting costs at the ministry. In those early years that, that Hanegraaff was involved on the board, there was actually a couple of men who were discussed as possible associate directors at CRI. The first was Ron Carlson, who is currently has a ministry called the Christian Ministries International. The other was John Stewart. These two were talked about during various board meetings as working directly with Walter Martin. In, in board meeting minutes dated October 17, 1985, there is this mention. Ron Carlson is still interested in the position of associate director of CRI, but has not sold his house, and if he accepts the position, it, it will not be available until sometime in 1986. In the board minutes dated September 12, 1986, uh, there is this mention of John Stewart as a possible assistant director. Stan then brought up John Stewart's proposal and reiterated the board's discussion earlier in the meeting to John. Walter stated his views on, on what he expected from an assistant director. There's nothing in any of the minutes from those years in which there was ever discussion about Hanegraaff as a possible associate director for CRI. This associate director's position appears to be the, the position that was offered when Martin had special interest in a man. It will be incumbent for CRI at this date to show actual documents that would show Martin's interest in Hanegraaff to be the next president. Hanegraaff has spoken over the years of conversations that he had with Walter Martin of his keen interest in Hanegraaff's abilities. Claiming private conversations with, uh, with Martin about his alleged interest in Hanegraaff as a replacement for him is hardly offering rock-solid evidence. It is as if Walter Martin and Hank Hanegraaff had a meeting under the bridge in Pomona, California at 2 in the morning where Martin pledged that he would be the next president. Perhaps CRI will attempt to claim that since October 1988, Hanegraaff was given an executive position on the board. Martin meant that, that to indicate that he wanted him to take over the ministry. Logic would not be on its side. Most boards contain titles such as vice president, secretary, etc. This is not usually an indicator of an ability to assume leadership outside of the boardroom. In Hanegraaff's case, it was believed by Martin that he could oversee the financial issues of the ministry. If a person with a normal ego was put in this position, they would not conclude that they were all prepared to carry out any and all tasks that the well-trained head of the organization performed. 
After Walter Martin's death, Stan Thompson was made vice president of CRI. If Hanegraaff had died suddenly, would it then have been appropriate to appoint Mr. Tonnerson, who by trade was a pharmaceutical researcher, the new president of CRI? In almost all cases, the board position is a function within the board only. Many people have written to CRI for over the years asking to, to see some type of written evidence for Hanegraaff's claim that Martin wanted him to take over when he died. Those requests have gone completely unanswered. We will now see the way in which a great ministry was usurped by a man who can rightfully be de described as a megalomaniac. The question needs to be asked, if Hank Hanegraaff truly had the, the best interests of CRI at heart, why was he in such a hurry to be crowned president of CRI? A man who did not have the abilities to carry out in the capacity of president of CRI. No one on the board had any real theological training to be the president of this most vital ministry. Stan Thompson was a pharmaceutical researcher in New Jersey, and Everett Jacobson was a banker in Florida. If the intent was not to usurp a ministry that he had no rightful claim to, only the continued preservation of a great ministry, the correct thing to do would have been to put together a CRI search committee to find the most qualified person to become the new president, but that was not Hanegraaff's chief motivation. His motivation clearly was to find a way to control CRI to, to such an extent that it would help him achieve a level of wealth that would, would allow him to acquire the things in life that he seems to believe would get him the respectability that he so craved. In a calculated attempt to steal the presidency, he convened a board meeting at 8.45 a.m. the morning of Walter Martin's funeral. The following was a recorded by Everett Jacobson, the board secretary. A special board meeting of the Christian Research Institute was held on June 29, 1989 at 17 Hugh Street, Irvine, California, due to the homegoing and passing of the president of the Institute, Dr. Walter Martin, on June 26, 1989. Present were Stan Tonneson, Everett Jacobson, and Hank Hanegraaff. The meeting was called to order at 8.45 a.m., the, the opening prayer in a meditation by Hank Hanegraaff. Everett made a, made a motion that Hank be named president of Christian Research Institute with reaffirmation that Stan Thompson continue in the capacity of Vice President, Treasurer, and uh, Everett Jacobson as Secretary. A second was made by Stan Thompson, and the motion unanimously passed. Why 8.45 in the morning of Walter Martin's funeral? Clearly, the naming of his successor could have been put off until much later. It would have given Theorite uh, not only time to grieve, but to conduct a national search to find the most qualified person to, to lead the ministry forward. However, time was not Hank Hanegraaff's friend. He was a desperate man. He needed to move quickly to cement his position before anyone had time to think. He wanted that vote in the morning so he could, in the afternoon, tell John Ankerberg, the man who acted as the MC at the funeral, that he had been unanimously voted in as the new president. So that afternoon, as the, as the hundreds of in attendance at the funeral listened on, John Ankerberg made it official. The board of, of CRI had granted to Hank Hanegraaff the position of president. The only thing not known to those in attendance and the thousands of CRI supporters around the world was that the board was not made up of multiple people, but only three. One who had secretly been convinced by Hanegraaff and one who had never been approached. When people hear the phrase board of directors, it conjures up an image of a large group of people, perhaps at half a dozen or more. So when John Ankerberg said it was a, a unanimous vote, it sounded more dramatic than it really was because all it took was simply Jacobson and Hanegraaff to vote for Hanegraaff. In reality, Stan Tonneson's vote was extraneous. Hanegraaff would have still been president uh, had Tonneson voted against him. 
The sad truth is that had there been even one more person on the board, the presidency of Hank Canegraaff probably would never have happened. On June 29th, uh, the memorial service for Dr. Walter Martin was held at Capistrano Valley Church. Darlene Martin spoke to the audience and in her closing remark appeared to announce for the first time that Walter Martin had picked Hank Anagraf to be his, his successor. The following is the text from that portion of her message. Walter and I talked often about who would take over for him at CRI if God were to take him home. Since last October, Walter Martin asked Hank Anagraf to work with him and to be that man. Little did we know that it would come this soon, but Hank is a man that Walter Martin wanted, that Walter wanted to lead CRI. And I'm, etern you know, and I'm eternally grateful for this man, uh, for the uplifting that he has done for me in these past few days. He's a godsend, and I'm grateful for him and his family. I know the Lord is going to bless CRI, that the ministry is going to flourish under Hank's direction. I thank the Lord for him and for CRI and for all the staff, from who um, are going to carry on even in the midst of Walter's absence. And I just praise the Lord for it. Thank you again. This would appear to be proof that Walter Martin had personally asked Hank Hanegraaff to take over the ministry. After all, it was the wife of the founder who made the announcement. However, the truth is that the page that she read last was given to her by Hank Hanegraaff a few minutes before she went to the podium. The message she read was written in someone else's handwriting at the bottom of her proposed notes. According to Darlene Martin, Hank Hanegraaff approached her before the funeral only a few minutes before they were all ushered into the sanctuary, as she, the rest of the Martin family, and the three remaining board members waited in a room. Hank Hanegraaff came up to her and asked her for her prepared message. He told her that he would bring it back in a couple of minutes. When he did, he told her to read what was on the bottom of her notes at the end of her presentation. I have had um, a handwriting analyst look at the printed message and the report states that the printed message was definitely not Darlene Martin's handwriting. Also on the audio tape of the memorial service, there's a distinct pause when Darlene Martin got to the uh, portion that was handwritten. She falters and appears to be reading something that she's not familiar with. This was indeed the case. Darlene Martin explained during an interview that this indeed was a known text to her. She stated that her husband did not like to discuss ministry activities at home and definitely had not discussed possible replacements in the event of his death with her. What a better way to begin your presidency than to make it appear as if Darlene Martin knew of her husband's plan and approved. This form of arrogant sleight of hand is common with Hank Canegraaff. It should be evident that this is not a case of hand-picked successor gone bad. Hank Hanegraaff had planned this ministry coup. We, we know of no other example in the history of Christian ministries where this form of Machiavellian-style takeover has ever been accomplished. According to Stan Townison, within days of the death of Walter Martin, Hank Canegraaff asked and received a president's salary of $60,000. It should be noted that in the early 1993 interview with Ron Rhodes for the Christian Research Institute, Hank Canegraaff said this about his interest in acquiring wealth. As a new Christian, my life changed dramatically. Before becoming a Christian, my life was characterized by a pervading sense of inferiority. I never felt as though I measured up. The only way to make myself feel significant was to acquire wealth. It was as though I was saying, look at me, I'm worthwhile, I have a beautiful home, and own a lot of nice things. In this case, his old sinful desire for money is still affecting him. His love of money has completely overshadowed his presidency. 
Whereas Walter Martin earned a modest livelihood from CRI, Hank Hanegraaff and his wife Kathy have a combined income from the ministry in, a, in excess of $335,000 as of 2005. This is easily the largest salary within the Christian counter-cult community. It is also in the upper 5% of all Christian ministry salaries. In Hanegraaff's first public message as head of CRI, he made this statement about his primary task. One of the greatest tributes to the leadership of Walter Martin is that he astutely prepared for his home going. He often expressed the fact that CRI would be more important in the decade of the 90s and beyond than when originally founded 30 years ago. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Martin developed a plan so CRI could move forward with strength and vision. In the near future, it will be my privilege to un unfold for you the exciting vision and plans he left behind for the ministry of CRI. Now the question is, has he really kept to the visions of Walter Martin that he mentioned in this presentation? Uh, in fact, during the, the uh, memorial service, he talks uh, quite a bit towards the end of the memorial service about the, uh, the love that he has for the late Walter Martin and how he was going to fulfill the vision of Walter Martin as the new president. Now, uh, for the next few minutes, we're going to look at some of the scandals that have broken since Hank Hanarap took over the ministry at CRI. There's three things we're going to uh, take a consideration of. One is the early firings that took place from 1989 to about 1995, 1994. And um, many of the key people that Walter Martin had hired as staffers were simply dismissed or um, chased out of the organization right after Hanegraaff took over. Also, we're going to look at a scandal, a financial scandal that rocked CRI in 2002 when a young woman found that there were receipts being uncovered at CRI that showed that lots of high-priced items were being purchased for Hank Hanegraaff with CRI money. The third scandal we're going to look at briefly is the uh, letter that was written in January of 2005 that uh, tried to raise money based on uh, the fact that the uh, Hank Hanegraaff claimed that the, the post office uh, that operated the mail for him in Southern California had lost their mail for 90 days. We're going to study, we're going to look at that letter as well. But let's go back to the, the firings of original staff members under Walter Martin uh, when, when uh, Hank Hanegraaff originally took over. It should not be too difficult to understand why a person who managed uh, to steal a ministry and was uh, destined to use the organization for his own personal gratification and financial enrichment. It should also not be too difficult to believe how anyone in the first few years who questioned his abilities to lead CRI or who would show concern for how he was using staff and other CRI resources to create a personal wealth for himself was fired or forced to quit. The surprise is how quickly his own need for power and wealth so completely began to, um, to color his decisions. And even the first few weeks after he took control, his first act as president was to increase the salary he would receive to $60,000 per year within days after Walter Martin died. This was to be the first sign that CRI's primary mission would no longer be about ministry, but rather how Hank Hanegraaff would be able to enrich himself on the backs of staff and thousands of well-meaning contributors. It should be noted that from the founding of CRI in uh, 1960 by Walter Martin, whose mission was to minister to the church and to reach into the vastly under-evangelized kingdom of the cults, 
had never been known to create an air of scandal or suspicion in nearly 30 years of ministry. Contrast that to Hank Anagraf, who was not present for 30 days before people began to see problems in how he was running the ministry. It was because Walter Martin was called to this area of ministry and Hanegraaff was only becoming involved when he realized how much wealth could be extruded from the organization. The first major scandal began within months after he took over in June of 1989. Walter Martin had been very good at finding talented young researchers to help him carry out this very important ministry. This in a real way was key to helping provide up-to-date information on the many cults and false teachings that were constant threat to the health of the church. The training and education of the research staff was going to create a barrier between Hank Anagraaff, at least in his mind, and the ultimate control of CRI. He was painfully aware that each of his own research staff were required to have something that he lacked, a college degree. It is truly ironic that while Hank Anagraaff publicly made quite a noise about how much he had a mandate to carry out the vision of Walter Martin. However, behind the closed doors of CRI, he began to find ways of firing or forcing to resign the very people that Martin had stated he had such pride in. This is a list of employees that, who, who left CRI from July 1989 to April 1994. Uh, note the first employee left within a month after Hank Canagraph took over. Uh, Lisa Hawkins was a secretary. She left in July of 89. Dan Schlesinger, he was the uh, research coordinator and accused of being divisive and was uh, presented with several points of criticism by Hank Canagraff. He was fired in October of 1989. Jerry Kessler was a data entry department uh, person and he was fired by Hank Canagraff one day after he turned in a, a one-month notice of resignation because of his complaints of Hank Canagraff. He was fired in, in March 1990. Craig Nelson, director of broadcast media, uh, he was fired when he questioned why Hanegraaff's for-profit company personal witness training and memory dynamics was not paying for advertising on the radio program. He was fired in May 1990. Craig Hawkins was a researcher and also hosted the Bible Lifespan program. He confronted Hanegraaff on five points of lapses of integrity and attempted to resign. The board tried to intervene and tried to get them to reconcile, but Hanegraaff pushed the, the uh, resignation. He, he left in uh, June of 1990. Mark Hoover was the Human Resources Accounts Payable Officer. He witnessed the misuse of CRI funds for Hanegraaff's memory dynamics business, attempt to document irregular handlings of CRI checks to memory dynamics with little or no documentation. He left in June of 1990. Stan Thomason, who was the board member for 19 years under Walter Martin, though he was not a paid employee, he was, he was planning to confront Hanegraaff at a board meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, was a list of letters from staff members who complained of unjust treatment and unethical behavior on the part of Hanegraaff. He exited in July of 1990. Robert Claypool was the security uh, chief for CRI. He was released by the board of CRI after he began to investigate into the financial irregularities of Hank Hanegraaff. This was started after several employees began complaining. He left in July of 1990. Dan Kistler, David Anderson, and Denise Lee were correspondence research assistants. And um, Dan Kistler was interrogated by Hanegraaff concerning his brother Jerry's letter of resignation. All three later resigned in August 1990 to avoid an anticipated firing. Dennis Green, director of marketing, he had confronted Hanegraaff for failure to pay for an ad in the Christian Research Journal that was to promote um, personal witnessing training material. 
He also spoke to Hanegraaff about fulfilling the deferred compensation contract that he had, he had agreed upon for Dennis. He resigned in December 1990 because he believed the struggle with Hanegraaff would adversely affect his career. Janice Seaver, uh, she was uh, fired for talking too much in 1991. 1991. Dan McEngall, um, he was fired without cause in 1991. Robert Bowman, who was a researcher and special project editor, he was let go after he complained that Hanegraaff was putting his name on CRI perspectives that he had written. He was told he was being let go doing, due to financial problems at the ministry. He was the only one let go during the crisis. He later found out that during the month, CRI had the highest month of contributions in CRI history to that date. That was the month before he was let go. He was fired in January of 1992. Perry Robinson, correspondence processing accounts receivable specialist, um, he was finally suspended and then fired in, in February of 1992. Ross Hooper, Michael Williams, and Wallace Helms were the, the entire uh, correspondence processing department. They were fired for insubordination and gossip. They asked many questions about financial improprieties involving Hanegraaff's upcoming book. They also asked why free or low-cost material on the word faith was suddenly banned and people were told to wait for the, his forthcoming book, Christianity in Crisis. They also voiced concern for his lack of theological training. They were let go in October of 1992. Mike Stevens, who was CRI Director of Media, he had delivered several negative critiques of Hanegraaff's handling of the Bible Instrument Program. After Hanegraaff took over uh, full-time behind the microphone, only a few months after Craig Hawkins was fired in June of 1990, he was fired in October of 1992. Mary Cook, Shipping Department Coordinator, she sent a complaint to the board over financial abuses and the size of Hanegraaff's salary. She was fired in July of 1993. Andy Kingsbury and Robert Velarde, Correspondence Research Assistants, Kingsbury had asked questions about CRI's departure from e ECFA. There was an attempt to fire him for too many jokes. They ultimately resigned to, to avoid further negative personal actions. Brad Sparks, who was Scientific Assistant to President, he criticized Hanegraaff's video performance in, in a failed attempt to buy the full gospel building uh, in February 1993. He questioned Hanegraaff on December 2, 1993 about Kingsbury Velarde forced departures. He was terminated on March 4, 1994. Miriam Takahashi, she was a librarian. She was told of her termination on that same day at 9.45 in the morning. Joan Moore, executive assistant researcher, she was fired because she leaked information about the impending mass firings on March 4, 1994. Rich Bonas, correspondence research assistant, fired at 2 p.m. on March 4, 1994. Ed Hammond, correspondence research assistant, he was told of his firings at 2 p.m. on March 4, 1994. Donnie Bergeron, customer service representative, he had resigned effective March 8, 1994 but he was moved up to March 4, 1994, by the administration. Jim Sawyer, customer service representative, he, he was yelled at by a supervisor, Terrell Bryan, and was in, for discussing the day's mass firings. He quit in protest the same day. B.G. Orpeza or and Stephen Ross, they were demoted from research assistant positions in, in, in research and executive departments to positions in correspondence processing in March of 1994. Ellen Grisby, she was demoted from from position of as Hank Hanegraaff's Executive Secretary to Developmental Department Representative in March of 1994. Robert Lyle, the Vice President for Research, he was fired three days after the mass firings of March 4, 1994. Naomi Merchant, she was Executive Assistant to the President, but due to a demotion of Grisby, she was overwhelmed by the extra work 
she quit in April of 1994. These type of magnitude of firings and demotions were unprecedented under Walter Martin. However, even in the first few weeks and months, as we have just seen with the compiled list of former employers after Hank Hangrafts uh, took over, many employees began to see financial abuse in an incredible heavy-handed approach in the, the misuse of power. Both are indicative of a person who was not called uh, to Christian ministry, but saw CRI and its crisis as a fantastic opportunity to create his own personal fiefdom. There seems to be another motive for getting rid of most of the research staff. At the time Hank Anagraf became president, uh, researchers were uh, required to have a minimum of four years degree. Since Hanegraaff had never finished his degree at Calvin College, he may have felt threatened by their combined knowledge of world religions, cults, and apologetics. Knowing he had nowhere uh, near the grasp of information that the president of the largest cult apologetics ministry would need to be considered competent. Since he took the reins of power in such an unethical manner, it appears he may have begun to entertain the notion that some of them would begin to identify his vast reservoir of ignorance and plan their own coup. His statement to Craig Nelson in early February 1990 concerning Craig Hawkins, quote, Craig Hawkins is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's power hungry. It bears this out. This form of paranoia is indicative of a man who has a guilty conscience. He assumes others will do to him what he knows he has already done. Hank Hanegraaff will probably claim that with any change of leadership, you will see a change in personnel. While this is true, an organization like CRI, whose very reason for being is to inform others concerning the cults and how to respond in love to this large mission field, it will be ineffective if you strip of its, of its most experienced and gifted researchers. It would be like the new president of a soft drink company on, on his first day firing everyone who worked in the plant that bottled the beverage. He would severely impair his companies from providing the product for which it exists. A good president would find creative ways to work with the talent and keep them happy, so they would continue to work for which the organization is known. Rather, what CRI was saddled with was a petulant, immature president who was still controlled by his most irrational hunger for wealth and self-aggrandizement. During the first few months and after the wave of firings began, Many employees wrote heartfelt letters to the CRI board asking for help and intervention. The following are excerpts from three of the letters that were written expressing their deep concern for what was happening at CRI. The first letter is from Dan Schlesinger, a former research coordinator. Now these are excerpts of, of his letter. As I stated above, I felt the position of CRI research department coordinator. I held the position of research de department coordinator previous to my departing CRI. Given the fact that I was that I held a uh, responsible position at CRI and not wanting to perpetuate rumor or misinformation regarding Hank's position or, or agenda, I refrained from addressing questions or giving my own personal opinions to those coming to me with concerns. However, questions kept coming from individuals pulling me aside or coming to my office regarding Hank's qualifications, etc. After several weeks of this, I began to see there was much greater concern on all levels of ministry, never mind my own personal questions and opinions, than I first suspected. The executive committee, Elliot Miller, Rich Paul, and Paul Carden, advised me to go directly to Hank and share with him all that had happened the previous couple of weeks. I immediately went to Hank, Jane Huckabee was there also, and began to share the aforementioned concerns. Hank got very upset, raising his voice at me, asking what right I had to question his credentials. 
He then questioned my background in education, though at the time I had a master's degree, and insisted he could debate with the best of there was on the subject of creation, evolution, and other issues, and that he had memorized all of Walter Martin's tapes and read over 16 books on the New Age movement. When questioning his lack of formal education, Hank responded by saying, I was arrogant and prideful to even bring up the subject. Hank then insisted that I name the individuals who raised questions and other concerns. I felt uncomfortable in doing so and asked that they remain unknown until a later date. Hank insisted that I name names, and so I gave him an example regarding one individual sharing briefly his concern. I really realize now I probably should not have mentioned this person, but as was the case in most instances, Hank had a rather forceful and manipulative way of getting what he wanted. After an hour or so, Hank asked me to leave and, and said that he would call me back to his office later that morning. Once again, about mid-afternoon of the same day, I was called back into Hank's office. This time he, he was to be told that several individuals recommended dismissing me because of my attitude problems. Hank told me that he was told that I had a long history of divisiveness and failed to submit to those whom I was accountable to. In spite of all these allegations, Hank stated he was willing to give uh, me another chance to work it out and therefore allowed me to continue on with CRI. After a couple of hours or so, Hank was interrupted by a phone call regarding his seminar tapes. He got up and left to take care of his business and finally came back to the meeting. He immediately stated that it would be to the best interest of CRI and for me to part company and go on my way. I broke down and cried. He said he would do anything he could to make my departure smooth and painless as possible and that he would be more than happy to, to write me a letter of recommendation. I was told I could pick up my books and other belongings later, not at that time I left CRI the day that day devastated. From the first time I came, I, I was made aware of Hank Hanegraaff's possible involvement with CRI. I had personal reservations whether it would be to the best interest of CRI to bring him on, except in an executive administrative capacity. It had been communicated to, to the research staff that he would function in this role. However, after Hanks uh, shared his own objectives in a company meeting, it became quite clear that he was going to integrate his own ministry, PWT, with CRI's ministry. At first, it seemed there would, might be some merit to what he was saying. However, in reality, what he was really saying was CRI would become his ministry. Indeed, since Dr. Martin's untimely death, that's exactly what has happened what it has become. Hank has no formal education. One would think that a person holding the position of president of an apologetic and countercult ministry would possess at least a BA or MA degree in a field of relevant to CRI's area of ministry. Though many in the research department hold BA or MA degrees, the credibility both academic and spiritual of CRI suffers when its own president and leader lacks any formal education. This leads me to my second point. Hank's depth of knowledge to include his critical thinking abilities on the cults, the occult, apologetics, and theology is, is lacking. This is evidenced by statements he has made to the research staff as well as on the radio program on BAM. Hank's burden calling to reach cultists for Christ. As I understand Hank's background, he has primarily developed a ministry which teaches people how to memorize basic information related to the Bible. To my knowledge, he has never been interested in countercult studies, at least on the level that Dr. Martin and CRI staff have been. What has his personal experience been with reaching out to cults and the occult before coming to CRI? Moreover, what has his burden been, particularly as it relates to the ministry of CRI? Those of us on the research staff have years of counter-cult apologetics ministry before coming to CRI based on a special burden and calling 
to reach those lost in the cults for Jesus Christ. Hank consistently demonstrates conduct and becoming Christian leadership. When confronted by concerns, questions, or comments regarding his credentials or decision-making, Hank exhibits anger, verbal outbursts, endless self-defense, manipulation of others' words, and self-aggrandizement. These are not marks or characteristics of a sensitive, humble Christian leader. Hank's ego-building and self-serving motives are spiritually unhealthy to a ministry which prides itself on doctrinal and spiritual discernment. Need I say more on this? Hank Hanegraaff is not an apologist, theologian, nor an expert on the cult or the occult. Hank Hanegraaff, in my opinion, is a lay evangelist pretending to be what he is not. He should be exercising those gifts God has bestowed on him in his respective ministry, field of ministry. Hank Hanegraaff needs to be removed from the ministry of CRI. He should not be allowed to pontificate on matters of faith or doctrine as he is clearly unqualified to do so. Either should he be allowed to perpetuate the wrongdoing he has brought on many others since my departure. The next letter, uh, our excerpt from Richard Bonas, who worked in the shipping department. I have worked at CRI in the shipping department since September of 1989. During this time of nine months, I have never been reprimanded in any way by the administration, so I am not seeking revenge by saying that Hank Canagraf is unfit spiritually and emotionally to be president of CRI. I base this uh, accusation primarily not solely on the evidence which suggests that Hank Canagraf may be uh, consumed with the love of money. Hank has been and is concurrently using CRI for his own personal gain. He does this by using CRI as a means of advertising and distribution of personal witness training, memory, dynamics, materials. I have personally been involved with Hank's PWT seminars as worship leader, but must now refrain from any further involvement. Hank has used CRI to purchase a large quantity of PWT materials, irregardless of the small amount of orders for them that we receive. This is the most unethical action I have personally seen. My knowledge of it began with the writing of a purchase order, uh, number 3696, on PO 3696, you will see 50 manuals and 50 tapes, PWT slash 001. Ordered at the bottom, you will see 50 manuals and 50 tapes, PWT slash 001, to be ordered at a later date. This second order is not based on need as a result of sales. The second order will be made only because of pressure exerted by Hank, Kathy, and Jane Huckabee on our shipping department head, Mary Cook, whose job is to decide what and how much we order. I am foreman of shipping and know our stock needs. We do not need more PWT materials. We can't even sell what we've stocked. We've received very few orders for PWT materials. Jane demanded we order a 100 PWT slash 001, bringing the total peel bill to approximately $6,000 and promised Kathy H. full payment before we ever receive stock. Jane and Hank, because of their position at CRI, can tell CRI what to buy from PWT slash MD. This may not be illegal, but perhaps it's unethical, especially in a Christian ministry where funds are so precious. I told Hank many employees were becoming despondent. I said, Hank, you can't run a ministry like a business to which he said, you're wrong, and accused me of over-spiritualizing the situation. Finally, the most uh, painful occurrence at CRI has been the mass exodus of godly employees who truly love CRI. Many left frustrated, spiritually drained, and, in, and bitter. And now there is an overall feeling of fear, distrust, and darkness each day at the ministry. I love Hank and Jane and Scott as part of my family in Christ, but I, I can no longer stand by and watch power be used in such an unrighteous and insensitive way. 
The broken hearts of employees and my own personal experiences, letters from supporters and the Holy Spirit in prayer bring me to this conclusion that Hank Hanegraaff should be removed as president of CRI. The reality of the situation at CRI is painfully obvious to anyone who has eyes to see. This next letter is an excerpt from uh, Michael Stevens. He was the former director of Bradcast Media. This is what he says. Within a few short months after Craig Hawkins departed the ministry, uh, Hank decided to go on and host the live broadcast daily instead of just on Wednesdays. This was shortly after he told me personally that when he, he would listen to the Bible as a man, hosted by Paul Card and Rob Bowman, Ken Samples et al., he realized that he could answer nine of every ten questions that he would hear on the show. This comment made me very nervous, as I know what it is like dealing with everything from alleged contradictions to, to logic to different theological viewpoints to cultists knowing how to manipulate scripture. But sure enough, Hank was so confident that everything he could easily be handled by giving a bottom line response or a pat answer of some sort. Never did a BAM broadcast go by without Hank rewording a caller's questions. To enable himself to answer the re rewarded question, Hank would usually ask, does that help? Or something along those lines. And the response by the caller was often something like, well, actually, in which Hank would say, well, stay on the line and we'll send you out some information and not ever really answer the question probably due to ignorance. I still listen to the broadcast almost on a daily basis since KWVE 107.9 FM, where I now work, carries it. Sure enough, this pattern has not changed at all. In fact, it has worsened, in my opinion. There was also two other unfortunate things that happened on the Bible Answerman program quite regularly. The first is this. Hank would walk into the studio, briefly scan the pre-screened caller sheets, and then scramble to work to find a, a, a quick fix answer. Sometimes he would ask Ron Rhodes or, or Bob Lyle what this word meant or what the cult believes. Some of the questions to which Hank had no answer were frighteningly simple. I must say that he didn't always do this. The sad fact is that when he didn't, the answer would often be wrong. The other occurrence which was particularly disturbing was when Bob Lyle or Erwin de Castro or someone was assigned to watch uh, to pre-screen caller sheets and provide written responses for Hank to read on the air. Sometimes it was a CRI perspective which someone else wrote. Sometimes it was a CRI drawer item or statement. Sometimes it was something scribbled by hand. He was able to develop a technique which he would purposely stumble every few words to give the illusion that the answer was at the top of his head. He would often say, if my memory serves me correctly, when citing a scripture reference or a date or a name or something, when he was actually reading off the paper, this for the purpose of convincing the audience that his answers were truly from memory. This happened daily. I even have plenty of witnesses to this fact who still work there. This is not the Bible answer man in the true sense of the word. The true Bible answer man should be a man who knows the answers from the Bible. But none was more embarrassing than when a lay Mormon, Richard Hopkins, turned Hank into a theological pretzel while standing in the hallway of CRI after debating Robert Morey. Here was Hank Hanegraaff, president of the largest evangelical counter-cult ministry on earth, being led around on a doctrinal leash by some self-proclaimed LDS apologist who doesn't even do this sort of thing full-time. One example, while speaking of Colossians 1, 15, and 16, a favorite among those who deny the deity of Christ, Hank boasted with much arrogance to Mr. Hopkins that he had memorized the verse. Richard's very polite response was, yes, 
I not only memorized the verse, but I studied in the Greek and then went on to prove his point. Once again, Hank was left speechless and at a loss what to say, but sure enough, Hank, well, you know. Another example of Hank's insecurity and immaturity was a time when he had Bob Eliff of the Religious Information Service in Long Beach, California as a guest on the Bible Landsman program. Bob's forte is Iglesia Ni Cristo, a growing Aryan cult who's originated in the Philippines. The focus on the broadcast was on this religious group, but somehow Hank steered some of the caller's questions back to talking about uh, the word faith movement, his favorite subject. I handed him a note during the program which suggests that he stick to the topic at hand and to keep his uh, comments about word of faith to a minimum. Little did I know this was a big mistake. After that day's broadcast, I noticed Hank stomp up to his office with a body language that resembled a spoiled little child who didn't get what he wanted. Concerned, I followed him up to his office and inquired about the apparent problem. Hank's response, look, if you don't want me on the broadcast, just tell me. You and Craig Hawkins and everybody else are all alike. Hank, you don't know nothing about no cults. Hank, you don't know theology. Hey, Mike, do what you want. Why don't you just host the show yourself? He said all this without ever looking me in the eye. I could not believe my eyes and ears. Another such instance which surprised me was when Hank made a very unfavorable remark regarding the abilities of others on staff. When speaking on the topic of seminars, he stated with much confidence that he was the only person in the organization who could give a seminar. Having studied under the Bodines and been quite impressed with their teaching abilities, I was puzzled by this remark. I said, well, what about Jerry and Marion? Hank's response with a smirk, let me say that again. I am the only one on staff who can give a decent seminar. Now, at the end of these letters, and we literally have like a dozen or more of them, uh, we saw many of these letters had similar type phrases in them. Words like paranoia, lover of money, arrogant, underqualified, uneducated, not called to this type of ministry, angry outbursts, manipulative. These were words repeated over and over in these letters. It just, it just comes up regularly in all these letters from these former staff members who were concerned about Hanegraaff as the president of CRI. Now these are obviously not words that you want um, identified with a Christian leader who is supposed to be humble and, and loving and, and giving as a Christian leader, but these are the words of a person who really has no place in Christian ministry. And besides the fact that this information should show you rather emphatically that Hank Hanegraaff had no place becoming the president of CRI, he was not handpicked by Walter Martin in any, any sense of the term. But not only that, but since his, his um, becoming president in 1989, we have seen several scandals erupt at CRI. This one, of course, the, the massive firings, uh, problems with original uh, staff that, that Martin had hired, this, this was a problem. Then the second scandal I want to highlight what took place in the year 2002, when a young woman who worked in the correspondence area stumbled over some receipts that indicated that Hank Hanegraaff was being given gifts, financial monies, towards personal purchases that had nothing to do with CRI. She began to stay late at night and uh, actually photocopy these receipts that she kept coming in contact with, and then she kept a, a list of them at her house. But she, she came across receipts in excess of tens of thousands of dollars. One was for flooring 
in excess of $9,000 for the Hank Hanegraaff house. There were purchases of personal computers for his children. There was a uh, mention of a uh, country club membership for Hank Hanegraaff that was paid for CRI with CRI funding. There's also the uh, purchase of a $60,000 plus Lexus sports car that was given to Hank Hanegraaff as a, as a luxury vehicle to be driven by him uh, using CRI funds. Now, it wasn't until the LA Times and the Christianity Today newspaper or magazine broke these stories on a national level that uh, Hanegraaff paid the money back and he referred to these as naive accounting errors, that they were just simply errors that um, were really not meant to have been performed, but they were just accidents. And I'm, I've always been uh, interested in figuring out how do you accidentally go out and buy a $60,000 sports car for the head of your ministry. So that was a major scandal in 2002 that really showed that the financial ends of the ministry was really what Hanegraaff was trying to get out of CRI and that he really, really was not intending to be the minister of CRI the way Walter Martin had intended to be the minister of CRI. Now, the final scandal that I just want to reference was very interesting was in, the, in 2005 when a letter was reported on his website fundraising letter was reported on the CRI website written by Hank Hanegraaff uh, about a, a supposed loss of mail that CRI had, that had happened CRI because the post office had supposedly lost mail for up to 90 days and they, they needed to uh, have an infusion of cash immediately because of this uh, oversight by the US post office in Rancho Santa Margarita. Here's an actual copy of the letter that was sent out to one of his supporters and this is what the, le the letter actually said from Hank Anagraph. I never imagined having to send an urgent memo like this to you. A bizarre error by the U.S. Post Office has cost the Christian Research Institute and Bible Answer Man broadcast an unknown amount of income at a time when we could least afford it. We don't know how much the, we, cut, we lost, but we know it was substantial, perhaps in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Here's what happened. Over the last three months, a time when our ministry receives 17% of its yearly income from supporters, newly hired U.S. post office employees in Rancho Santa Margarita accidentally routed CRI envelopes with contributions and requests for materials to the wrong post office box. To make matters worse, the, the business to which the envelopes were sent threw many of the envelopes into the trash. Only by God's grace did we discover this error before more damage was done. Praise God for his intervention. Our local U.S. Post Office has accepted full responsibility for this error and has fixed the problem. You can be assured that all mail is now being handled correctly. We bear them no ill will and believe this was an honest mistake by novice postal employees, but much has been lost. Here is what I'm asking you to do. And so then they go on and talk about how to replace the money. Now. I looked into this situation of this lost letter. I thought this was very odd when I first saw it on their website. And a friend of mine, Bill Alnor, also looked into it. And we, we actually both contacted the post office there in Rancho Santa Margarita independently of each other. And I was told by the acting uh, post office manager that they had never lost that quantity of mail that CRI had claimed. In fact, there was 30 pieces of mail that were delivered to, to a, a company called On Target Marketing in Southern California for one day. 
that belonged to CRI, but that mail was promptly returned to CRI by on-target marketing, and that was the extent of the loss. There was no 90-day mail lost. In fact, when I talked to the um, acting manager of, of the Rancho Santa Margarita Post Office, he said that we had never officially apologized to CRI because this mail had not been lost for three months. It had only been lost for about one day. It was only 30 pieces. So there was no official apology. Uh, he didn't know what I was talking about, in fact. And there was a, a U.S. Postal investigation that was instigated because of this supposed lost mail situation. And the U.S. Post Office investigatory branch, after looking into the process, found that there was never any lost mail that was caused by this problem at the post office and that CRI was never in any danger of losing three months' worth of, of contributions. But again, this is just uh, another financial problem that keeps coming up at CRI because Hank Anagraf really does not deserve to be the president. He was never meant to be the president. And his need to uh, squeeze money out of people is becoming an apparent problem, which has really been going on over the last nine or ten years. But again, since his uh, taking over in 1989, it's been shown you know, clearly here that uh, he has changed the vision of CRI. A lot of the things that uh, were talked about, Walter Martin being the president, uh, of the paper of the of the CRI journal that's been taken out. The fact that uh, you can barely even he find any mention of him on his own website any longer, Walter Martin's website. The idea that um, uh, even though he he talked in, in glowing terms at his funeral, he no longer even hardly mentions Walter Martin as the president of CRI. So again, we just see that Hank Hanegraaff was really never was intended to be the president of CRI. These scandals kind of show that the true heart of the man, he, he really does not belong at this helm of this ministry. And um, I would ask two things of people who listen to this broadcast. If you are currently supporting uh, CRI financially, I would ask that you stop doing so until the administration of that organization changes to a more godly administration. Because the more money that's poured into CRI, the longer it's going to take for the administrative change to take place, if at all. Now, if you want to give to another Christian counter-cult ministry, there are many good ministries out there that, you, that are in desperate need of your money. Secondly, I would also state that if you are currently writing for CRI Journal or helping them with some of their publications as a paid individual for this, that you discontinue writing for them because you're just, again, further giving them credibility in this area. And uh, since they don't have their own people to write any longer, except for Elliot Miller and, and Hank Hanegraaff, it really would help if uh, they have less writers to choose from um, because it'll, again, further erode their ability to do their job under the Hank Hanegraaff administration. And um, these two things need to be implemented immediately to help you know this ministry overcome because we don't want to see uh, the, the Christian Research Institute uh, cease to, to exist as an organization. What we need to see is the corrupted uh, administration of, of uh, Hank Hanegraaff taken out and in uh, a godly uh, administration put in its place so that CRI can again go back to being what uh, Walter Martin, the founder, had intended 
a ministry that not only helps build the church's ability to, to combat false doctrines and false teachings, but be able to more effectively share the good news of the gospel with those individuals who are lost to the kingdom of the cults and the occult. And this is what we hopefully, this presentation will aid you in doing, will giving you a better sense of how to help CRI become the ministry that it was always intended to be. Thank you. If we as mortal men can find all this dirt on Hanegraaff, what is God going to do to him on Judgment Day? Jesus said, few would be saved. That's in Matthew 7:14. And claiming to be a Christian with many wonderful works is not a guarantee of salvation. That's Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Hanegraaff is in this ministry, he does, for the money he can make. See 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, and also 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, etc. Hanegraaff's love for money throughout his life is undeniable, as well as his lack of love for the brethren. 1 John 3.14 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Jesus said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Hanegraaff clearly looks like a fake Christian to me and a fake Bible answer man. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, looks like a better description of Hanegraaff. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. For someone who is supposed to be running a discernment ministry, Hanegraaff shows a complete lack of discernment. As researcher Jay Howard has already reported, Hanegraaff was brought into the ministry not for its Christian apologetic abilities, but for his ability to raise money for the ministry. And as mentioned, his car chauffeuring, and taxi services to drive Walter Martin around. Thus, I believe it is safe to say that Hanegraaff has been lying to the public during the entire time being the handpicked successor of Walter Martin. Of course, we know liars are condemned in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. Quote, Outside are the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Hanegraaff has proven to be an unrepentant, deceptive liar over many decades, thus demonstrating he is a fake Christian, an unregenerate sinner, and a wolf in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they are ravening wolves. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. 
related videos by tapping or clicking the screen.